Ancient Lights by Algernon Blackwood That instinct, and as a rule it served him well. A mile or so due west along the sandy road till you come to a stile on the right, then across the fields. You'll see the red house straight before you. He glanced at the postcard's instructions once again, and once again he tried to decipher the scratched-out sentence without success. It had been so elaborately inked over that no word was legible. Inked-out sentences in a letter were always enticing. He wondered what it was that had to be so carefully obliterated. The afternoon was boisterous with a tearing, shouting wind that blew from the sea, across the Sussex weld. Massive clouds with rounded, piled-up edges cannoned across gaping spaces of blue sky. Far away the line of downs swept the horizon like an arriving wave. Shank Tonbury Ring rode their crest, a scudding ship, hull down before the wind. He took his hat off and walked rapidly, breathing great draughts of air with delight and exhilaration. The road was deserted, no horsemen, bicycles, or motors, not even a tradesman's cart, no single walker. But anyhow, he would never have asked the way. Keeping a sharp eye for the stile, he pounded along while the wind tossed the cloak against his face and made waves across the blue puddles in the yellow road. The trees showed their under leaves of white. The bracken and the high new grass bent all one way. Great life was in the day, high spirits and dancing everywhere. And for a Croydon surveyor's clerk just out of an office, this was like a holiday at the sea. It was a day for high adventure, and his heart rose up to meet the mood of nature. His umbrella with the silver ring ought to have been a sword, and his brown shoes should have been top-boots with spurs upon the heels. Where hid the enchanted castle and the princess with the hair of sunny gold? His horse. The style came suddenly into view and nipped adventure in the bud. Everyday clothes took him prisoner again. He was a surveyor's clerk middle-aged, earning three pounds a week, coming from Croydon to see about a client's proposed alterations in a wood, something to ensure a better view from the dining-room window. Across the fields, perhaps a mile away, he saw the red house gleaming in the sunshine, and resting on the stile a moment to get his breath, he noticed a copse of oak and hornbeam on the right. Aha, he told himself, so that must be the wood he wants to cut down to improve the view. I'll have a look at it. There were boards up, of course, but there was an inviting little path as well. I'm not a trespasser, he said. It's part of my business, this is. He scrambled awkwardly over the gate and entered the copse. A little round would bring him to the field again. But the moment he passed among the trees the wind ceased shouting and a stillness dropped upon the world. So dense was the growth that the sunshine only came through in isolated patches. The air was close. He mopped his forehead and put his green felt hat on, but a low branch knocked it off again at once, and as he stooped an elastic twig swung back and stung his face. There were flowers along both edges of the little path. Glades opened on either side. Ferns curved about in damper corners, and the smell of earth and foliage was rich and sweet. It was cooler here. What an enchanting little wood, he thought, turning down a small green glade where the sunshine flickered like silver wings. How it danced and fluttered and moved about. 
he put a dark blue flower in his buttonhole. Again his hat, caught by an oak branch as he rose, was knocked from his head, falling across his eyes. And this time he did not put it on again. Swinging his umbrella, he walked on with uncovered head, whistling rather loudly as he went. But the thickness of the trees hardly encouraged whistling, and something of his gaiety and high spirits seemed to leave him. He suddenly found himself treading circumspectly and with caution. The stillness of the wood was so peculiar. There was a rustle among the ferns and leaves, and something shot across the path ten yards ahead, stopped abruptly an instant with head cocked sideways to stare, then dived again beneath the underbrush with the speed of a shadow. He started like a frightened child, laughing the next second that a mere pheasant could have made him jump. In the distance he heard wheels upon the road, and wondered why the sound was pleasant. Good old butcher's cart, he said to himself, then realized that he was going in the wrong direction, and had somehow got turned round, for the road should be behind him, not in front. And he hurriedly took another narrow glade that lost itself in greenness to the right. That's my direction, of course, he said. The trees has mixed me up a bit, it seems. Then found himself abruptly by the gate he had first climbed over. He had merely made a circle. Surprise became almost discomfiture then, and a man, dressed like a gamekeeper in browny green leaned against the gate, hitting his legs with a switch. "'I'm making for Mr. Lumley's farm,' explained the walker. "'This is his wood, I believe,' then stopped dead because it was no man at all, but merely an effect of light and shade and foliage. He stepped back to reconstruct the singular illusion, but the wind shook the branches roughly here on the edge of the wood, and the foliage refused to reconstruct the figure. The leaves all rustled strangely, and just then the sun went behind a cloud making the whole wood look otherwise. Yet how the mind could be thus doubly deceived was indeed remarkable, for it almost seemed to him the man had answered, spoken, or was this the shuffling noise the branches made, and had pointed with his switch to the notice-board upon the nearest tree. The words rang on in his head, but of course he had imagined them. No, it's not his wood, it's ours and some village wit, moreover, had changed the lettering on the weather-beaten board, for it read quite plainly, Trespassers will be persecuted. And while the astonished clerk read the words and chuckled, he said to himself, thinking what a tale he'd have to tell his wife and children later, The blooming wood has tried to chuck me out, but I'll go in again. Why, it's only a matter of a square acre at most. I'm bound to reach the fields on the other side if I keep straight on. He remembered his position in the office. He had a certain dignity to maintain. The cloud passed from below the sun, and the light splashed suddenly in all manner of unlikely places. The man went straight on. He felt a touch of puzzling confusion somewhere. This way the copse had of shifting from sunshine into shadow doubtless troubled sight a little. To his relief at last, a new glade opened through the trees and disclosed the fields with a glimpse of the red house in the distance at the far end but a little wicket-gate that stood across the path had first to be climbed, and as he scrambled heavily over, for it would not open, he got the astonishing feeling that it slid off sideways beneath his weight and towards the wood. Like the moving staircases at Harrod's and Earl's Court, it began to glide off with him. It was quite horrible. He made a violent effort to get down before it carried him into the trees, but his feet became entangled with the bars and umbrella, so that he fell heavily upon the farther side, 
arms spread across the grass and nettles, boots clutched between the first and second bars. He lay there a moment like a man crucified upside down, and while he struggled to get disentangled, feet, bars, and umbrella formed a regular net, he saw the little man in brownie-green go past him with extreme rapidity through the wood. The man was laughing. He passed across the glade some fifty yards away, and he was not alone this time. A companion like himself went with him. The clerk, now upon his feet again, watched them disappear into the gloom of green beyond. They're tramps, not gamekeepers, he said to himself, half mortified, half angry. But his heart was thumping dreadfully, and he dared not utter all his thought. He examined the wicket gate, convinced it was a trick gate somehow, then went hurriedly on again, disturbed beyond belief to see that the glade no longer opened into fields but curved away to the right. What in the world had happened to him? His sight was so utterly at fault. Again the sun flamed out abruptly and lit the floor of the wood with pools of silver, and at the same moment a violent gust of wind passed shouting overhead. Drops fell clattering everywhere upon the leaves, making a sharp pattering as of many footsteps. The whole copse shuddered and went moving. Rain, by George, thought the clerk, and feeling for his umbrella discovered he had lost it. He turned back to the gate and found it lying on the farther side. To his amazement he saw the fields at the far end of the glade, the red house, too, ashine in the sunset. He laughed then, for, of course, in his struggle with the gate, he had somehow got turned round, had fallen back instead of forwards. Climbing over, this time quite easily, he retraced his steps. The silver band he saw had been torn from the umbrella. No doubt his foot, a nail, or something had caught in it and ripped it off. The clerk began to run. He felt extraordinarily dismayed. But, while he ran, the entire wood ran with him, round him, to and fro, trees shifting like living things, leaves folding and unfolding, trunks darting backwards and forwards, and branches disclosing enormous empty spaces, then closing up again before he could look into them. There were footsteps everywhere, and laughing, crying voices, and crowds of figures gathering just behind his back, till the glade, he knew, was thick with moving life. The wind in his ears, of course, produced the voices and the laughter, while sun and clouds, plunging the cops alternately in shadow and bright dazzling light, created the figures. But he did not like it, and went as fast as ever his sturdy legs could take him. He was frightened now. This was no story for his wife and children. He ran like the wind, but his feet made no sound upon the soft mossy turf. Then, to his horror, he saw that the glade grew narrow. Nettles and weeds stood thick across it. It dwindled down into a tiny path, and twenty yards ahead it stopped finally and had melted off among the trees. What the trick gate had failed to achieve, this twisting glade accomplished easily, carried him in bodily among the dense and crowding trees. There was only one thing to do, turn sharply and dash back again, run headlong into the life that followed at his back, followed so closely too that now it almost touched him, pushing him in. And with reckless courage this was what he did. It seemed a fearful thing to do. He turned with a sort of violent spring, head down and shoulders forward, hands stretched before his face. He made the plunge, like a hunted creature he charged full tilt the other way, meeting the wind now in his face. Good Lord! The glade behind him had closed up as well. There was no longer any path at all. Turning round and round like an animal at bay, 
He searched for an opening, a way of escape, searched frantically, breathlessly, terrified now in his bones. But foliage surrounded him, branches blocked the way. The trees stood close and still, unshaken by a breath of wind, and the sun dipped that moment behind a great black cloud. The entire wood turned dark and silent. It watched him. Perhaps it was this final touch of sudden blackness that made him act so foolishly, as though he had really lost his head. At any rate, without pausing to think, he dashed headlong in among the trees again. There was a sensation of being stiflingly surrounded and entangled, and that he must break out at all costs, out and away into the open of the blessed fields and air. He did this ill-considered thing, and apparently charged straight into an oak that deliberately moved into his path to stop him. He saw it shift across a good full yard, and being a measuring man, accustomed to theodolite and chain, he ought to know. He fell, saw stars, and felt a thousand tiny fingers tugging and pulling at his hands and neck and ankles. The stinging nettles, no doubt, were responsible for this. He thought of it later. At the moment it felt diabolically calculated. But another remarkable illusion was not so easily explained. For all in a moment it seemed the entire wood went sliding past him with a thick, deep rustling of leaves and laughter, myriad footsteps, and tiny little active, energetic shapes. Two men in brownie-green gave him a mighty hoist, and he opened his eyes to find himself lying in the meadow beside the stile where first his incredible adventure had begun. The wood stood in its usual place and stared down upon him in the sunlight. There was the red house in the distance as before. Above him grinned the weather-beaten notice-board. Trespassers will be prosecuted. Disheveled in mind and body, and a good deal shaken in his official soul, the clerk walked slowly across the fields. But on the way he glanced once more at the postcard of instructions, and saw with dull amazement that the inked-out sentence was quite legible after all beneath the scratches made across it. There is a shortcut through the wood. The wood I want to cut down if you care to take it. Only care was so badly written it looked more like another word. The C was uncommonly like D. That's the copse that spoils my view of the downs, you see, his client explained to him later, pointing across the fields and referring to the ordnance map beside him. I want it cut down in a path made so-and-so. His finger indicated direction on the map. The fairy wood, it's still called, and it's far older than this house. Come now, if you're ready, Mr. Thomas, we might go out and have a look at it. End of Ancient Lights by Algernon Blackwood The Secret of Crowlets by Henry Cutner This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite. The Secret of Crowlets by Henry Cutner. I awoke from profound sleep to find two black swathed forms standing silently beside me, their faces pale blurs in the gloom. As I blinked to clear my sleep-dimmed eyes, one of them beckoned impatiently, and suddenly I realized the purpose of this midnight summons. For years I had been expecting it, ever since my father, the Baron Crowlitz, had revealed to me the secret and the curse that hung over our ancient house. 
and so without a word i rose and followed my guides as they led me along the gloomy corridors of the castle that had been my home since birth as i proceeded there rose up in my mind the stern face of my father and in my ears rang his solemn words as he told me of the legendary curse of the house of kralitz the unknown secret that was imparted to the eldest son of each generation at a certain time when I had asked my father as he lay on his deathbed, fighting back the approach of dissolution. When you are able to understand, he had told me, watching my face intently from beneath his tufted white brows. Some are told the secret sooner than others. Since the first Baron Kralitz, the secret has been handed down. He clutched at his breast and paused. It was fully five minutes before he had gathered his strength to speak again in his rolling, powerful voice no gasping deathbed confessions for the baron kraulitz he said at last you have seen the ruins of the old monastery near the village franz the first baron burnt it and put the monks to the sword the abbot interfered too often with the baron's whims a girl sought shelter and the abbot refused to give her up at the baron's demand his patience was at an end you know the tales they still tell about them he slew the abbot burned the monastery and took the girl. Before he died, the abbot cursed his slayer and cursed his sons for unborn generations, and it is the nature of this curse that is the secret of our house. I may not tell you what the curse is. Do not seek to discover it before it is revealed to you. Wait patiently, and in due time you will be taken by the warders of the secret down the stairway to the underground cavern, and then you will learn the secret of Kralitz. As the last word passed my father's lips, he died, his stern face still set in its harsh lines. Deep in my memories I had not noticed our path, but now the dark forms of my guides paused beside a gap in the stone flagging, where a stairway which I had never seen during my wanderings about the castle led into subterranean depths. Down this stairway I was conducted, and presently I came to realize that there was light of a sort, a dim phosphorescent radiance that came from no recognizable source, and seemed to be less actual light than the accustoming of my eyes to the near darkness. I went down for a long time. The stairway turned and twisted in the rock, and the bobbing forms ahead were my only relief from the monotony of the interminable descent. And at last, Deep underground, the long stairway ended, and I gazed over the shoulders of my guides at the great door that barred my path. It was roughly chiseled from the solid stone, and upon it were curious and strangely disquieting carvings, symbols which I did not recognize. It swung open, and I passed through and paused, staring about me through a gray sea of mist. I stood upon a gentle slope that fell away into the fog-hidden distance, from which came a pandemonium of muffled bellowing and high-pitched shrill squeakings, vaguely akin to obscene laughter. Dark, half-glimpsed shapes swam into sight through the haze and disappeared again, and great vague shadows swept overhead on silent wings. Almost beside me was a long rectangular table of stone, and at this table two score of men were seated, watching me from eyes that gleamed dully out of deep sockets. My two guides silently took their place among them. 
and suddenly the thick fog began to lift. It was swept raggedly away on the breath of a chill wind. The far dim reaches of the cavern were revealed as the mist swiftly dissipated, and I stood silent in the grip of a mighty fear, and, strangely, an equally potent, unaccountable thrill of delight. A part of my mind seemed to ask, What horror is this? And another part whispered, You know this place. But I could never have seen it before. If I had realized what lay far beneath the castle, I could never have slept at night for the fear that would have obsessed me. For, standing silent, with conflicting tides of horror and ecstasy racing through me, I saw the weird inhabitants of the underground world. Demons, monsters, unnameable things. Nightmare colossi strode bellowing through the murk. The amorphous gray things, like giant slugs, walked upright on stumpy legs. Creatures of shapeless soft pulp, beings with flame-shot eyes scattered over their misshapen bodies like fabled Argus, writhed and twisted there in the evil glow. Winged things that were not bats swooped and fluttered in the tenebrous air, whispering sibilantly, whispering in human voices. Far away at the bottom of the slope I could see the chill gleam of water, a hidden sunless sea. Shapes mercifully almost hidden by distance and the semi-darkness sported and cried, troubling the surface of the lake, the size of which I could only conjecture. And a flapping thing whose leathery wings stretched like a tent above my head swooped and hovered for a moment, staring with flaming eyes, and then darted off and was lost in the gloom. And all the while, as I shuddered with fear and loathing within me, was this evil glee, this voice which whispered, you know this place. You belong here. Is it not good to be home?" I glanced behind me. The great door had swung silently shut, and escape was impossible. And then pride came to my aid. I was a Crowlitz, and a Crowlitz would not acknowledge fear in the face of the devil himself. I stepped forward and confronted the warders, who were still seated, regarding me intently from eyes in which a smoldering fire seemed to burn. Fighting down an insane dread that I might find before me an array of fleshless skeletons, I stepped to the head of the table, where there was a sort of crude throne, and peered closely at the silent figure on my right. It was no bare skull at which I gazed, but a bearded, deadly pale face. The curved, voluptuous lips were crimson, looking almost rouged, and the dull eyes stared through me bleakly. Inhuman agony had etched itself in deep lines on the white face, and gnawing anguish smoldered in the sunken eyes. I cannot hope to convey the utter strangeness, the atmosphere of unearthliness that surrounded him, almost as palpable as the fetid tomb-stench that welled from his dark garments. He waved a black-swathed arm to the vacant seat at the head of the table, and I sat down. This nightmare sense of unreality. I seemed to be drawn in a dream with a hidden part of my mind slowly waking from sleep into evil life to take command of my faculties. The table was set with old-fashioned goblets and trenchers such as had not been used for hundreds of years. There was meat on the trenchers and red liquor in the jeweled goblets. A heady, overpowering fragrance swam up into my nostrils, mixed with the grave smell of my companions and the musty odor of a dank and sunless place. Every white face was turned to me, 
faces that seemed oddly familiar, although I did not know why. Each face was alike in its blood-red sensual lips and its expression of gnawing agony and burning black eyes like the abysmal pits of Tartarus stared at me until I felt the short hairs stir on my neck. But I was a Crowlitz. I stood up and said boldly in archaic German that somehow came familiarly from my lips, I am Franz, 21st Baron Crowlitz. What do you want with me? A murmur of approval went around the long table. There was a stir. From the foot of the board a huge bearded man arose, a man with a frightful scar that made the left side of his face a horror of healed white tissue. Again the odd thrill of familiarity ran through me. I had seen that face before, and vaguely I remembered looking at it through dim twilight. The man spoke in the old guttural German. We greet you, Franz, Baron Kralitz. We greet you and pledge you, Franz, and we pledge the House of Kralitz. With that he caught up the goblet before him and held it high. All along the long table the black-swathed ones arose, and each held high his jeweled cup and pledged me. They drank deeply, savoring the liquor, and I made the bow custom demanded. I said in words that sprang almost unbidden from my mouth, I greet you who are the warders of the secret of Kralitz, and I pledge you in return. And all about me, to the farthermost reaches of the dim cavern, a hush fell, and the bellows and howlings and the insane titterings of the flying things were no longer heard. My companions leaned expectantly forward toward me. Standing alone at the head of the board, I raised my goblet and drank. The liquor was heady, exhilarating, with a faintly brackish flavor and abruptly I knew why the pain-racked ruined face of my companion had seemed familiar. I had seen it often among the portraits of my ancestors, the frowning, disfigured visage of the founder of the House of Crowlitz that glared down from the gloom of the great hall. In that fierce white light of revelation I knew my companions for what they were. I recognized them, one by one, remembering their canvas counterparts. But there was a change. Like an impalpable veil, the stamp of ineradicable evil lay on the tortured faces of my hosts, strangely altering their features so that I could not always be sure I recognized them. One pale sardonic face reminded me of my father, but I could not be sure, so monstrously altered was its expression. I was dining with my ancestors, the house of Crowlitz. My cup still held high, and I drained it, for somehow the grim revelation was not entirely unexpected. A strange glow thrilled through my veins, and I laughed aloud for the evil delight that was in me. The others laughed, too, a deep-throated merriment like the barking of wolves, tortured laughter from men stretched on the rack, mad laughter in hell. And all through the hazy cavern came the clamor of the devil's brood. Great figures that towered many spans high rocked with thundering glee, and the flying things tittered slyly overhead. And out over the vast expanse swept the wave of frightful mirth, until the half-seen things in the black waters sent out bellows that tore at my eardrums, and the unseen roof far ahead sent back roaring echoes of the clamor. And I laughed with them laughed insanely, until I dropped exhausted into my seat and watched the scarred man at the other end of the table as he spoke. 
You are worthy to be of our company, and worthy to eat at the same board. We have pledged each other, and you are one of us. We shall eat together. And we fell to tearing like hungry beasts at the succulent white meat in the jeweled trenchers. Strange monsters served us, and at a chill touch on my arm I turned to find a dreadful crimson thing, like a skinned child, refilling my goblet. Strange, strange and utterly blasphemous was our feast. We shouted and laughed and fed there in the hazy light, while all around us thundered the evil horde. There was hell beneath Castle Kralitz, and it held high carnival this night. Presently we sang a fierce drinking song, swinging the deep cups back and forth in rhythm with our shouted chant. It was an archaic song, but the obsolete words were no handicap, for I mouthed them as though they had been learned at my mother's knee and at the thought of my mother a trembling and a weakness ran through me abruptly, but I banished it with a draught of the heady liquor. Long, long we shouted and sang and caroused there in the great cavern, and after a time we arose together and trooped to where a narrow, high-arched bridge spanned the tenebrous waters of the lake. But I may not speak of what was at the other end of the bridge, nor of the unnameable things that I saw and did. I learned of the fungoid, inhuman beings that dwell on far cold Yuggoth, of the cyclopedian shapes that attend unsleeping Cthulhu in his submarine city, of the strange pleasures that the followers of leprous subterranean Yogg Sothoth may possess, and I learned, too, of the unbelievable manner in which Lod the Source is worshipped beyond the outer galaxies. I plumbed the blackest pits of hell and came back, laughing. I was one with the rest of those dark warders, and I joined them in the Saturnalia of horror until the scarred man spoke to us again. Our time grows short, he said, his scarred and bearded white face like a gargoyle's in the half-light. We must depart soon, but you are a true Kralitz, Franz, and we shall meet again and feast again and make merry for longer than you think. One last pledge. I gave it to him. To the house of Kralitz, may it never fall! And with an exultant shout we drained the pungent dregs of the liquor. Then a strange lassitude fell upon me. With the others I turned my back on the cavern and the shapes that pranced and bellowed and crawled there, and I went up through the carved stone portal. We filed up the stairs, up and up, endlessly, until at last we emerged through the gaping hole in the stone flags and proceeded a dark, silent company back through those interminable corridors. The surroundings began to grow strangely familiar, and suddenly I recognized them. We were in the great burial vaults below the castle, where the baron's kralets were ceremoniously entombed. Each baron had been placed in his stone casket in his separate chamber, and each chamber lay like beads on a necklace, adjacent to the next so that we proceeded from the furthermost tombs of the early Baron Kralitz toward the unoccupied vaults. By immemorial custom each tomb lay bare, an empty mausoleum, until the time had come for its use, when the great stone coffin with the memorial inscription carved upon it would be carried to its place. It was fitting, indeed, for the secret of Kralitz to be hidden here. Abruptly I realized that I was alone, save for the bearded man with the disfiguring scar. The others had vanished, and deep in my thoughts I had not missed them. 
My companion stretched out his black-swathed arm and halted my progress, and I turned to him questioningly. He said in his sonorous voice, I must leave you now. I must go back to my own place. And he pointed to the way whence we had come. I nodded, for I had already recognized my companions for what they were. I knew that each Baron Crowlitz had been laid in his tomb, only to arise as a monstrous thing, neither dead nor alive, to descend into the cavern below and take part in the evil Saturnalia. I realized, too, that with the approach of dawn they had returned to their stone coffins to lie in a death-like trance until the setting sun should bring liberation. My own occult studies had enabled me to recognize these dreadful manifestations. I bowed to my companion and would have proceeded on my way to the upper parts of the castle, but he barred my path. He shook his head slowly, his scar hideous in the phosphorescent gloom. I said, May I not go yet? He stared at me with tortured, smoldering eyes that had looked into hell itself, and he pointed to what lay beside me. And in a flash of nightmare realization I knew the secret of the curse of Crowlitz. There came to me the knowledge that made my brain a frightful thing in which shapes of darkness would ever swirl and scream. The dreadful comprehension of when each Baron Crowlitz was initiated into the Brotherhood of Blood. I knew, I knew, that no coffin had ever been placed unoccupied in the tombs, and I read upon the stone sarcophagus at my feet the inscription that made my doom known to me, my own name. Franz, 21st Baron Crowlitz. End of The Secret of Crowlitz by Henry Kuttner A Ghost Story by Mark Twain I took a large room, far up Broadway in a huge old building whose upper stories had been wholly unoccupied for years, until I came. The place had long been given up to dust and cobwebs, to solitude and silence. I seemed groping among the tombs and invading the privacy of the dead that first night I climbed up to my quarters. For the first time in my life, a superstitious dread came over me, and as I turned a dark angle of the stairway, and an invisible cobweb swung its lazy woof in my face and clung there, I shuddered, as one who had encountered a phantom. I was glad enough when I reached my room, and locked out the mold in the darkness. A cheery fire was burning in the grate, and I sat down before it with a comforting sense of relief. For two hours I sat there, thinking of bygone times, recalling old scenes and summoning half-forgotten faces out of the mists of the past, listening in fancy to voices that long ago grew silent for all time, and to once familiar songs that nobody sings now. And as my reverie softened down to a sadder and sadder pathos, the shrieking of the winds outside softened to a wail, the angry beating of the rain against the panes diminished to a tranquil patter and one by one the noises in the street subsided until the hurrying footsteps of the last belated straggler died away in the distance and left no sound behind. The fire had burned low. A sense of loneliness crept over me. I rose and undressed, moving on tiptoe about the room, doing stealthily what I had to do, as if I were environed by sleeping enemies whose slumbers it would be fatal to break. I covered up in bed and lay listening to the rain and wind and the faint creaking of distant shutters till they lulled me to sleep. I slept profoundly, but how long I do not know. All at once I found myself awake and filled with a shuddering expectancy. All was still, all but my own heart 
I could hear it beat. Presently the bedclothes began to slip away, slowly toward the foot of the bed, as if someone were pulling them. I could not stir. I could not speak. Still, the blankets slipped deliberately away till my breast was uncovered. Then, with a great effort, I seized them and drew them over my head. I waited, listened, waited. Once more that steady pull began, and once more I lay torpid a century of dragging seconds till my breast was naked again. At last I roused my energies and snatched the covers back to their place and held them with a strong grip. I waited. By and by I felt a faint tug and took a fresh grip. The tug strengthened to a steady strain. It grew stronger and stronger. My hold parted, and for the third time the blanket slid away. I groaned. An answering groan came from the foot of the bed. Beaded drops of sweat stood upon my forehead. I was more dead than alive. Presently I heard a heavy footstep in my room. The step of an elephant, it seemed to me. It was not like anything human, but it was moving from me. There was relief in that. I heard it approach the door, pass out without moving bolt or lock, and wander away among the dismal corridors, straining the floors and joists till they creaked again as it passed, and then silence reigned once more. When my excitement had calmed, I said to myself, This is a dream, simply a hideous dream. And so I lay thinking it over until I convinced myself that it was a dream. And then a comforting laugh relaxed my lips and I was happy again. I got up and struck a light. And when I found that the locks and bolts were just as I had left them, another soothing laugh welled in my heart and rippled from my lips. I took my pipe and lit it, and was just sitting down before the fire when, down with the pipe out of my nerveless fingers, the blood forsook my cheeks and my placid breathing was cut short with a gasp. In the ashes, on the hearth, side by side with my own bare footprint, was another, so vast that in comparison mine was but an infant's. Then I had had a visitor, and the elephant tread was explained. I put out the light and returned to bed, palsied with fear. I lay a long time peering into the darkness and listening. Then I heard a grating noise overhead, like the dragging of a heavy body across the floor. Then the throwing down of the body and the shaking of my windows in response to the concussion. In distant parts of the building, I heard the muffled slamming of doors. I heard at intervals stealthy footsteps creeping in and out among the corridors and up and down the stairs. Sometimes these noises approached my door, hesitated, and went away again. I heard the clanking of chains faintly in remote passages, and listened while the clanking grew nearer. While it wearily climbed the stairs, marking each move by a loose surplus of chain that fell with an accented rattle upon each succeeding step, as the goblin that bore it advanced. I heard muttered sentences, half-uttered screams that seemed smothered violently, and the swish of invisible garments, the rush of invisible wings. Then I became conscious that my chamber was invaded, that I was not alone. I heard sighs and breathings about my bed, and mysterious whisperings. Three little spheres of soft, phosphorescent light appeared on the ceiling directly over my head, clung and glowed there a moment, and then dropped, two of them upon my face and one upon the pillow. They spattered liquidly and felt warm. Intuition told me they had turned to gouts of blood as they fell. I needed no light to satisfy myself of that. Then I saw 
pallid faces, dimly luminous and white uplifted hands, floating, bodiless, in the air, floating a moment and then disappearing. The whispering ceased and the voices and the sounds, and a solemn stillness followed. I waited and listened. I felt that I must have light or die. I was weak with fear. I slowly raised myself toward a sitting posture, and my face came into contact with a clammy hand. All strength went from me, apparently, and I fell back like a stricken invalid. Then I heard the rustle of a garment. It seemed to pass to the door and go out. When everything was still once more, I crept out of bed, sick and feeble, and lit the gas, with a hand that trembled as if it were aged with a hundred years. The light brought some little cheer to my spirits. I sat down and fell into a dreamy contemplation of that great footprint in the ashes. By and by, its outlines began to waver and grow dim. I glanced up, and the broad gas flame was slowly wilting away. In the same moment, I heard that elephantine tread again. I noted its approach, nearer and nearer, along the musty halls, and dimmer and dimmer the light waned. The tread reached my very door and paused. The light had dwindled to a sickly blue, and all things about me lay in a spectral twilight. The door did not open, and yet I felt a faint gust of air fan my cheek, and presently was conscious of a huge cloudy presence before me. I watched it with fascinated eyes. A pale glow stole over the thing. Gradually its cloudy folds took shape. An arm appeared, then legs, then a body, and last a great sad face looked out of the vapor. Stripped of its filmy housings, naked, muscular and comely, the majestic Cardiff giant loomed above me. All my misery vanished, for a child might know that no harm could come with that benignant countenance. My cheerful spirits returned at once, and in sympathy with them the gas flamed up brightly again. Never a lonely outcast was so glad to welcome company as I was to greet the friendly giant. I said, Why is it nobody but you? Do you know I've been scared to death for the last two or three hours? I am most honestly glad to see you. I wish I had a chair. Here, here, don't try to sit down in that thing. But it was too late. He was in it before I could stop him. And down he went. I never saw a chair shivered so in my life. Stop, stop, you'll ruin Ev. Too late again. There was another crash, and another chair was resolved into its original elements. Confound it! Haven't you got any judgment at all? Do you want to ruin all the furniture on the place? Here, here, you petrified fool. But it was no use. Before I could arrest him, he had sat down on the bed, and it was a melancholy ruin. Now what sort of a way is that to do? First you come lumbering about the place, bringing a legion of vagabond goblins along with you, to worry me to death. And then, when I overlook an indelicacy of costume, which would not be tolerated anywhere by cultivated people, except in a respectable theater, and not even there if the nudity were of your sex, you repay me by wrecking all the furniture you can find to sit down on? And why will you? You damage yourself as much as you do me. You've broken off the end of your spinal column, and littered up the floor with chips of your hams till the place looks like a marble yard. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. You are big enough to know better. Well, I will not break any more furniture. But what am I to do? I have not had a chance to sit down for a century, 
and the tears came into his eyes. "'Poor devil,' I said. "'I should not have been so harsh with you, "'and you are an orphan, too, no doubt. "'But sit down on the floor here. "'Nothing else can stand your weight. "'And besides, we cannot be sociable with you "'away up there above me. "'I want you down here where I can perch "'on this high-counting house-stool "'and gossip with you face to face.' "'So he sat down on the floor "'and lit a pipe which I gave him, "'threw one of my red blankets over his shoulder, "'inverted my sitz-bath on his head, helmet-fashion, "'and made himself picturesque and comfortable. "'Then he crossed his ankles, while I renewed the fire, "'and exposed the flat, honeycombed bottoms "'of his prodigious feet to the grateful warmth. "'What is the matter with the bottom of your feet, "'and the back of your legs, that they are gouged up so? "'Infernal chilblains. "'I caught them clear up to the back of my head, "'roosting out there, under Newell's farm.' But I love the place. I love it as one loves his old home. There is no peace for me like the peace I feel when I'm there. We talked along for half an hour, and then I noticed that he looked tired, and I spoke of it. Tired, he said? Well, I should think so. And now I will tell you all about it, since you've treated me so well. I am the spirit of the petrified man that lies across the street there in the museum. I am the ghost of the Cardiff giant. I can have no rest, no peace, till they have given that poor body burial again. Now what was the most natural thing for me to do, to make men satisfy this wish? Terrify them into it, haunt the place where the body lay. So I haunted the museum, night after night. I even got other spirits to help me. But it did no good, for nobody ever came to the museum at midnight. Then it occurred to me to come over the way and haunt this place a little. I felt that if I ever got a hearing, I must succeed, for I had the most efficient company that perdition could furnish. Night after night, we have shivered around through these mildewed halls, dragging chains, groaning, whispering, tramping up and down stairs, till, to tell you the truth, I am almost worn out. But when I saw a light in your room tonight, I roused my energies again and went at it with a deal of the old freshness. But I am tired out, entirely fagged out. Give me, I beseech you, give me some hope. I lit off my perch in a burst of excitement and exclaimed, This transcends everything, everything that ever did occur. Why, you poor, blundering old fossil, you've had all your trouble for nothing. You've been haunting a plaster cast of yourself. The real Cardiff giant is in Albany. Confound it! Don't you know your own remains? I never saw such an eloquent look of shame, of pitiable humiliation, overspread a countenance before. The petrified man rose slowly to his feet and said, Honestly, is that true? As true as I'm sitting here. He took the pipe from his mouth and laid it on the mantel, then stood irresolute a moment, unconsciously from old habit, thrusting his hands where his pantaloons' pockets should have been and meditatively dropping his chin on his breast, and finally said, Well, I never felt so absurd before. The petrified man has sold everybody else, and now the mean fraud has ended by selling its own ghost. My son, if there is any charity left in your heart for a poor, friendless phantom like me, don't let this get out. Think how you would feel if you had made such an ass of yourself. I heard his stately tramp die away, step by step, down the stairs, and out into the deserted street, 
and felt sorry that he was gone. Poor fellow! And sorrier still that he had carried off my red blanket and my bathtub. End of A Ghost Story Caterpillars by E. F. Benson I saw a month or two ago, in an Italian paper, that the Villa Cascana, in which I once stayed, had been pulled down, and that a manufactory of some sort was in process of erection on its site. There is therefore no longer any reason for refraining from writing of those things which I myself saw, or imagined I saw, in a certain room and on a certain landing of the villa in question, nor from mentioning the circumstances which followed which may, or may not, according to the opinion of the reader, throw some light on, or be somehow connected with this experience. The Villa Cascana was in all ways but one a perfectly delightful house. Yet, if it were standing now, nothing in the world, I use the phrase in its literal sense, would induce me to set foot in it again. For I believe it to have been haunted in a very terrible and practical manner. Most ghosts, when all is said and done, do not do much harm. They may perhaps terrify, but the person whom they visit usually gets over their visitation. They may, on the other hand, be entirely friendly and beneficent. But the appearances in the Villa Cascana were not beneficent, and had they made their visit in a very slightly different manner, I do not suppose I should have got over it any more than Arthur Inglis did. The house stood on an ilex-clad hill, not far from Sestri di Levante, on the Italian Riviera, looking out over the iridescent blues of that enchanted sea, while behind it rose the pale green chestnut woods that climb up the hillsides till they give place to the pines that, black in contrast with them, crown the slopes. All round it the garden, in the luxuriance of mid-spring, bloomed and was fragrant, and the scent of magnolia and rose, borne on the salt freshness of the winds from the sea, flowed like a stream through the cool vaulted rooms. On the ground floor a broad, pillared loggia ran round three sides of the house, the top of which formed a balcony for certain rooms on the first floor. The main staircase, broad and of grey marble steps, led up from the hall to the landing outside these rooms, which were three in number namely two big sitting-rooms and a bedroom arranged en suite. The latter was unoccupied. The sitting-rooms were in use. From these the main staircase was continued to the second floor, where were situated certain bedrooms, one of which I occupied, while from the other side of the first-floor landing some half-dozen steps led to another suite of rooms, where, at the time I am speaking of, Arthur English, the artist, had his bedroom and studio. Thus the landing outside my bedroom at the top of the house commanded both the landing of the first floor and also the steps that led to Inglis's rooms. Jim Stanley and his wife, finally, whose guest I was, occupied rooms in another wing of the house, where also were the servants' quarters. I arrived just in time for lunch on a brilliant noon of mid-May. The garden was shouting with colour and fragrance, and— not less delightful, after my broiling walk up from the marina, should have been the coming from the reverberating heat and blaze of the day, into the marble coolness of the villa. 
Only—the reader has my bare word for this, and nothing more—the moment I set foot in the house I felt that something was wrong. This feeling, I may say, was quite vague, though very strong, and I remember that when I saw letters waiting for me on the table in the hall I felt certain that the explanation was here. I was convinced that there was bad news of some sort for me. Yet when I opened them I found no such explanation of my premonition. My correspondence all reeked of prosperity. Yet this clear miscarriage of a presentiment did not dissipate my uneasiness. In that cool, fragrant house there was something wrong. I am at pains to mention this, because to the general view it may explain that, though I am as a rule so excellent a sleeper, that the extinction of my light on getting into bed is apparently contemporaneous with being called on the following morning, I slept very badly on my first night in the Villa Cascana. It may also explain the fact that when I did sleep, if it was indeed in sleep that I saw what I thought I saw, I dreamt in a very vivid and original manner. Original, that is to say, in the sense that something that, as far as I knew, had never previously entered into my consciousness, usurped it then. But since, in addition to this evil premonition, certain words and events occurring during the rest of the night might have suggested something of what I thought had happened that night, it will be as well to relate them. After lunch, then, I went round the house with Mrs. Stanley and during our tour she referred, it is true, to the unoccupied bedroom on the first floor, which opened out of the room where we had lunched. "'We left that unoccupied,' she said, "'because Jim and I have a charming bedroom and dressing-room, as you saw in the wing, and if we used it ourselves we should have to turn the dining-room into a dressing-room, and have our meals downstairs. As it is, however, we have our little flat there. Arthur English has his little flat in the other passage.' "'And I remembered, aren't I extraordinary, "'that you once said that the higher up you were in a house, "'the better you were pleased. "'So I put you at the top of the house "'instead of giving you that room. "'It is true that a doubt, "'vague as my uneasy premonition, "'crossed my mind at this. "'I did not see why Mrs. Stanley "'should have explained all this, "'if there had not been more to explain. "'I allow, therefore, that the thought that there was something to explain about the unoccupied bedroom was momentarily present in my mind. "'The second thing that may have borne in on my dream was this. "'At dinner the conversation turned for a moment on ghosts. "'Inglis, with the certainty of conviction, expressed his belief that anybody who could possibly believe in the existence of supernatural phenomena was unworthy of the name of an ass.' the subject instantly dropped. As far as I can recollect, nothing else occurred or was said that could bear on what follows. We all went to bed rather early, and personally I yawned my way upstairs, feeling hideously sleepy. My room was rather hot, and I threw all the windows wide, and from without poured in the white light of the moon and the love-song of many nightingales. I undressed quickly and got into bed but though I had felt so sleepy before, I now felt extremely wide awake. But I was quite content to be awake. I did not toss or turn. I felt perfectly happy listening to the song and seeing the light. Then it is possible I may have gone to sleep, and what follows may have been a dream. I thought, anyhow, that after a time the nightingales ceased singing, and the moon sank. 
I thought also that if, for some unexplained reason, I was going to lie awake all night, I might as well read, and I remembered that I had left a book in which I was interested in the dining-room on the first floor. So I got out of bed, lit a candle, and went downstairs. I went into the room, saw on a side-table the book I had come to look for, and then, simultaneously, saw that the door into the unoccupied bedroom was open. A curious grey light, not of dawn nor of moonshine, came out of it, and I looked in. The bed stood opposite the door, a big four-poster hung with tapestry at the head. Then I saw that the greyish light of the bedroom came from the bed, or rather from what was on the bed, for it was covered with great caterpillars a foot or more in length, which crawled over it. They were faintly luminous, and it was the light from them that showed me the room. Instead of the sucker feet of ordinary caterpillars, they had rows of pincers like crabs, and they moved by grasping what they lay on with their pincers, and then sliding their bodies forward. In colour these dreadful insects were yellowish-grey, and they were covered with irregular lumps and swellings. There must have been hundreds of them, for they formed a sort of writhing, crawling pyramid on the bed. Occasionally one fell off onto the floor with a soft, fleshy thud, and though the floor was of hard concrete, it yielded to the pincer feet as if it had been putty, and crawling back the caterpillar would mount onto the bed again to rejoin its fearful companions. They appeared to have no faces, so to speak, but at one end of them there was a mouth that opened sideways in respiration. Then, as I looked, it seemed to me as if they all suddenly became conscious of my presence. All the mouths, at any rate, were turned in my direction, and the next moment they began dropping off the bed with those soft fleshy thuds onto the floor and wriggling towards me. For one second a paralysis, as of a dream, was on me, but the next I was running upstairs again to my room, and I remember feeling the cold of the marble steps on my bare feet. I rushed into my bedroom and slammed the door behind me, and then, I was certainly wide awake now, I found myself standing by my bed, with the sweat of terror pouring from me. The noise of the banged door still rang in my ears, but as would have been more usual if this had been mere nightmare, the terror that had been mine when I saw those foul beasts crawling about the bed or dropping softly onto the floor did not cease then. Awake now, if dreaming before, I did not at all recover from the horror of dream. It did not seem to me that I had dreamed, and until dawn I sat or stood, not daring to lie down, thinking that every rustle or movement that I heard was the approach of the caterpillars. To them and the claws that bit into the cement, the wood of the door was child's play. Steel would not keep them out. But with the sweet and noble return of day, the horror vanished. The whisper of wind became benignant again. The nameless fear, whatever it was, was smoothed out, and terrified me no longer. Dawn broke, hueless at first, then it grew dove-coloured, then the flaming pageant of light spread over the sky. The admirable rule of the house was that everybody had breakfast where and when he pleased and in consequence it was not till lunch-time that I met any of the other members of our party, since I had breakfast on my balcony, and wrote letters and other things till lunch. In fact, I got down to that meal rather late, after the other three had begun. 
Between my knife and fork there was a small pill-box of cardboard, and as I sat down Inglis spoke. "'Do look at that,' he said. "'Since you're interested in natural history, I found it crawling on my counterpane last night, and I don't know what it is.' I think that before I opened the pill-box I expected something of the sort which I found in it. Inside it, anyhow, was a small caterpillar, greyish-yellow in colour, with curious bumps and excrescences on its rings. It was extremely active, and hurried round the box this way and that. Its feet were unlike the feet of any caterpillar I ever saw. They were like the pincers of a crab. I looked and shut the lid down again. "'No, I don't know it,' I said. "'But it looks rather unwholesome. What are you going to do with it?' "'Oh, I shall keep it,' said Inglis. "'It has begun to spin. I want to see what sort of moth it turns into.' I opened the box again, and saw that these hurrying movements were indeed the beginning of the spinning of the web of its cocoon. Then Inglis spoke again. "'It's got funny feet, too,' he said. "'They're like crab's pincers. What's the Latin for crab?' Uh, "'Oh, yes, cancer. So in case it is unique, let's christen it Cancer Inglisensis.' Then something happened in my brain, some momentary piecing together of all that I had seen or dreamed. Something in his words seemed to me to throw light on it all, and my own intense horror at the experience of the night before linked itself on to what he had just said. In effect, I took the box and threw it, caterpillar and all, out of the window. There was a gravel path just outside, and beyond it a fountain playing into a basin. The box fell into the middle of this. Inglis laughed. "'So the students of the occult don't like solid facts,' he said. "'My poor caterpillar!' The talk went off again at once on to other subjects, and I have only given in detail, as they happened, these trivialities, in order to be sure myself that I have recorded everything that could have borne on occult subjects or on the subject of caterpillars. But at the moment when I threw the pill-box into the fountain, I lost my head. My only excuse is that, as is probably plain, the tenant of it was in miniature exactly what I had seen crowded onto the bed in the unoccupied room and though this translation of those phantoms into flesh and blood, or whatever it is that caterpillars are made of, ought perhaps to have relieved the horror of the night, as a matter of fact it did nothing of the kind. It only made the crawling pyramid that covered the bed in the unoccupied room more hideously real. After lunch we spent a lazy hour or two strolling about the garden, or sitting in the loggia, and it must have been about four o'clock when Stanley and I started off to bathe, down the path that led by the fountain into which I had thrown the pill-box. The water was shallow and clear, and at the bottom of it I saw its white remains. The water had disintegrated the cardboard, and it had become no more than a few strips and shreds of sodden paper. The centre of the fountain was a marble Italian cupid, which squirted the water out of a wine-skin held under its arm, and crawling up its leg was the caterpillar. Strange and scarcely credible as it seemed, it must have survived the falling to bits of its prison, and made its way to shore. And there it was, out of arm's reach, weaving and waving, this way and that, as it evolved its cocoon. Then, as I looked at it, it seemed to me again that, like the caterpillar I had seen last night, it saw me, and breaking out of the threads that surrounded it, it crawled down the marble leg of the cupid, and began swimming like a snake across the water of the fountain towards me. It came with extraordinary speed. 
The fact of a caterpillar being able to swim was new to me, and in another moment was crawling up the marble lip of the basin. Just then Inglis joined us. "'Why, if it isn't old Cancer Inglisensis again,' he said, catching sight of the beast. "'What a tearing hurry it's in!' We were standing side by side on the path, and when the caterpillar had advanced to within about a yard of us it stopped, and began waving again, as if in doubt as to the direction in which it should go. Then it appeared to make up its mind, and crawled onto English's shoe. "'It likes me best,' he said, "'but I don't really know that I like it, and as it won't drown, I think perhaps—' He shook it off his shoe onto the gravel path, and trod on it. All afternoon the air got heavier and heavier with the Sirocco that was without doubt coming up from the south, and that night again I went up to bed, feeling very sleepy. But below my drowsiness, so to speak, there was the consciousness, stronger than before, that there was something wrong in the house, that something dangerous was close at hand. But I fell asleep at once, and how long after I do not know, either woke or dreamt I awoke, feeling that I must get up at once, or I should be too late. Then, dreaming or awake, I lay, and fought this fear, telling myself that I was but the prey of my own nerves, disordered by Sirocco or what not, and at the same time quite clearly knowing in another part of my mind, so to speak, that every moment's delay added to the danger. At last this second feeling became irresistible, and I put on coat and trousers, and went out of my room onto the landing— and then I saw that I had already delayed too long, and that I was now too late. The whole of the landing of the first floor below was invisible under the swarm of caterpillars that crawled there, the folding doors into the sitting-room from which opened the bedroom where I had seen them last night were shut, but they were squeezing through the cracks of it, and dropping one by one through the keyhole, elongating themselves into mere string as they passed, and growing fat and lumpy again on emerging. Some, as if exploring, were nosing about the steps into the passage, at the end of which were Inglis's rooms. Others were crawling on the lowest steps of the staircase that led up to where I stood. The landing, however, was completely covered with them. I was cut off. And of the frozen horror that seized me when I saw that, I can give no idea in words. Then at last a general movement began to take place, and they grew thicker on the steps that led to Inglis's room. Gradually, like some hideous tide of flesh, they advanced along the passage, and I saw the foremost, visible by the pale grey luminousness that came from them, reach his door. Again and again I tried to shout and warn him, in terror all the time that they would turn at the sound of my voice, and mount my stair instead. But for all my efforts I felt that no sound came from my throat. They crawled along the hinge-crack of his door passing through as they had done before, and still I stood there, making impotent efforts to shout to him, to bid him escape while there was time. At last the passage was completely empty. They had all gone, and at that moment I was conscious for the first time of the cold of the marble landing on which I stood barefooted. The dawn was just beginning to break in the eastern sky." Six months after, I met Mrs. Stanley in a country house in England. We talked on many subjects, and at last she said, 
"'I don't think I've seen you since I got that dreadful news about Arthur Inglis a month ago.' "'I haven't heard,' said I. "'No. He has got cancer. They don't even advise an operation, for there is no hope of a cure. He's riddled with it, the doctors say.' "'Now, during all these six months, I do not think a day had passed on which I had not had in my mind the dreams, or whatever you like to call them, which I had seen in the Villa Cascana.' "'It is awful, is it not?' she continued. "'And I can't help feeling that he may have—' "'Caught it at the villa?' I asked. She looked at me in blank surprise. "'Why did you say that?' she asked. "'How did you know?' Then she told me. In the unoccupied bedroom a year before, there had been a fatal case of cancer. She had, of course, taken the best advice, and had been told that the utmost dictates of prudence would be obeyed so long as she did not put anybody to sleep in that room, which had also been thoroughly disinfected and newly whitewashed and painted. But... End of Caterpillars The Cats of Ulthar by H. P. Lovecraft it is said that in Ulthar, which lies beyond the river sky, no man may kill a cat. And this I can verily believe as I gaze upon him who sitteth purring before the fire. For the cat is cryptic, and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egyptus, and bearer of tales from forgotten cities in Miro and Ophir. He is the kin of the jungle's lords, and heir to the secrets of hoary and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin, and he speaks her language. But he is more ancient than the Sphinx, and remembers that which she hath forgotten. In Ulthar, before ever the Burgesses forbade the killing of cats, there dwelt an old cotter and his wife, who delighted to trap and slay the cats of their neighbours. Why they did this I know not, save that many hate the voice of the cat in the night, and take it ill that cats should run stealthily about yards and gardens at twilight. But whatever the reason, this old man and woman took pleasure in trapping and slaying every cat which came near to their hovel. And from some of the sounds heard after dark, many villagers fancied that the manner of slaying was exceedingly peculiar. But the villagers did not discuss such things with the old man and his wife, because of the habitual expression on the withered faces of the two, and because their cottage was so small and so darkly hidden under spreading oaks at the back of a neglected yard. In truth, much as the owners of cats hated these odd folk, they feared them more, and instead of berating them as brutal assassins, merely took care that no cherished pet or mouser should stray toward the remote hovel under the dark trees. When through some unavoidable oversight a cat was missed, and sounds heard after dark, the loser would lament impotently, or console himself by thanking fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. For the people of Ulthar were simple, and knew not whence it is all cats first came. One day a caravan of strange wanderers from the south entered the narrow cobbled streets of Ulthar. Dark wanderers they were, and unlike the other roving folk who passed through the village twice every year. In the market-place they told fortunes for silver, and bought gay beads from the merchants. What was the land of these wanderers none could tell, but it was seen that they were given to strange prayers, 
and that they had painted on the side of their wagons strange figures with human bodies and the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the horns. There was in this singular caravan a little boy with no mother or father, but only a tiny black kitten to cherish. The plague had not been kind to him, yet had left him this small furry thing to mitigate his sorrow, and when one is very young one can find great relief in the lively antics of a black kitten. So the boy whom the dark people called Menes smiled more often than he wept, as he sat playing with his graceful kitten on the steps of an oddly painted wagon. On the third morning of the wanderer's stay in Ulthar, Menes could not find his kitten, and as he sobbed aloud in the market-place, certain villagers told him of the old man and his wife, and of sounds heard in the night. And when he heard these things, his sobbing gave place to meditation, and finally to prayer. He stretched out his arms toward the sun, and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky, and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming. It was very peculiar, but as the little boy uttered his petition there seemed to form overhead the shadowy nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn-flanked discs. Nature is full of such illusions to impress the imaginative. That night the wanderers left Althar, and were never seen again, and the householders were troubled when they noticed that in all the village there was not a cat to be found. From each hearth the familiar cat had vanished. Cats large and small, black, grey, striped, yellow, and white. Old Cranon, the burgomaster, swore that the dark folk had taken the cats away in revenge for the killing of Menny's kitten, and cursed the caravan and the little boy. But Nith, the lean notary, declared that the old cotter and his wife were more likely persons to suspect for their hatred of cats was notorious and increasingly bold. Still, no one durst complain to the sinister couple, even when little Atal, the innkeeper's son, vowed that he had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage, two abreast, as if in performance of some unheard-of rite of beasts. The villagers did not know how much to believe from so small a boy, and though they feared that the evil pair had charmed the cats to their death, they preferred not to chide the old cotter till they met him outside his dark and repellent yard. So Althar went to sleep in vain anger, and when the people awakened at dawn, behold, every cat was back at his accustomed hearth, large and small, black, grey, striped, yellow and white, none was missing. Very sleek and fat did the cats appear, and sonorous with purring content. The citizens talked with one another of the affair, and marveled not a little. Old Cranon again insisted it was the dark folk who had taken them, since cats did not return alive from the cottage of the ancient man and his wife. But all agreed on one thing, that the refusal of all the cats to eat their portions of meat or drink their saucers of milk was exceedingly curious, and for two whole days the sleek, lazy cats of Ulthar would touch no food, but only doze by the fire or in the sun. 
It was fully a week before the villagers noticed that no lights were appearing at dusk in the windows of the cottage under the trees. Then the lean Nith remarked that no one had seen the old man or his wife since the night the cats were away. In another week the burgomaster decided to overcome his fears and call at the strangely silent dwelling as a matter of duty, though in so doing he was careful to take with him Shang the blacksmith and Thull the cutter of stone as witnesses. And when they had broken down the frail door, they found only this. Two cleanly picked human skeletons on the earthen floor, and a number of singular beetles crawling in the shadowy corners. There was subsequently much talk among the burgesses of Ulthar. Zath, the coroner, disputed at length with Nith, the lean notary, and Cranon and Shag and Thull were overwhelmed with questions. Even little Atal, the innkeeper's son, was closely questioned and given a sweetmeat as a reward. They talked of the old cotter and his wife, of the caravan of dark wanderers, of small menies and his black kitten, of the prayer of menies and of the sky during that prayer, of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left, and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees in the repellent yard. And in the end, the Burgesses passed that remarkable law, which is told of by traders in Hathag, and discussed by travellers in Nier, namely, that in Ulthar no man may kill a cat. End of The Cats of Ulthar by H. P. Lovecraft Dreamtown by Henry Sleesar The woman in the doorway looked so harmless. Who was to tell she had some rather startling interests? The woman in the doorway looked like Mom in the homier political cartoons. She was plump, apple-cheeked, white-haired. She wore a fussy old-fashioned nightgown and was busily clutching a worn house-robe around her expansive middle. She blinked at Sol Becker's rain-flattened hair and hangdog expression and said, What is it? What do you want? I am sorry, Sol's voice was pained. The, the man in the diner said you might put me up. I, I had my car stolen. A hitchhiker. Going to Salinas. He was puffing. Hitchhiker? I don't understand. She clucked at the sight of the pool of water he was creating in her foyer. Well, come inside, for heaven's sake, you're soaking. Thanks, Sol said gratefully. With the door firmly shut behind him, the warm interior of the little house covered him like a blanket. He shivered and let the warmth seep over him. I'm terribly sorry. I, I know how late it is. He looked at his watch, but the face was too misty to make out the hour. Must be nearly three, the woman sniffed. You couldn't have come at a worse time. I was just on my way to court. The words slid by him. If I could just stay overnight until the morning, I could call some friends in San Fernando. I, I'm very susceptible to head colds he added inanely. Well, take those shoes off first, the woman grumbled. You can undress in the parlor, if you'll keep off the rug. You won't mind using the sofa? No, of course not. I'd be happy to pay. Oh, tush, nobody's asking you to pay. This isn't a hotel. You mind if I go back upstairs? They're going to miss me at the palace. No, of course not, Saul said. He followed her into the darkened parlor and watched as she turned the screw on a hurricane-style lamp shedding a yellow pool of light over half a flowery sofa and doily-covered wing-chair. You, you go up. I'll be perfectly fine. 
Guess you can use a towel, though. I'll, I'll get you one. Then I'm going up. We wake pretty early in this house. Breakfast's at seven. You'll have to be up if you want any. I, I really can't thank you enough. Tush, the woman said. She scurried out and returned a moment later with a thick bath towel. Sorry I can't give you any bedding, but you'll find it nice and warm in here. She squinted at the dim face of a ship's wheel clock on the mantel and made a noise with her tongue. Three-thirty, she exclaimed. I'll miss the whole execution. The what? Good night, young man, Mom said firmly. She patted off, leaving Sol holding the towel. He patted his face and then scrubbed the wet tangle of brown hair. Carefully he stepped off the carpet and onto the stone floor in front of the fireplace. He removed his drenched coat and suit jacket and squeezed water out over the ashes. He stripped down to his underwear, wondering about next morning's possible embarrassment, and decided to use the damp bath towel as a blanket. The sofa was downy and comfortable. He curled up under the towel, shivered once, and closed his eyes. He was tired and very sleepy, and his customary nightly review was limited to a few detached thoughts about the wedding he was supposed to attend in Salinas that weekend, the hoodlum who had responded to his good nature by dumping him out of his own car, the slogging walk to the village, the little round woman who was hurrying off like the white rabbit to some mysterious appointment on the upper floor. Then he went to sleep. A voice awoke him, shrill and questioning. Are you naked? His eyes flew open, and he pulled the towel protectively around his body and glared at the little girl with the rust-red pigtails. Huh, mister? she said, pushing a finger against her freckled nose. Are you? No, he said angrily, I'm not naked. Will, will you please go away? Sally, it was Mom appearing in the doorway of the parlor. You leave the gentleman alone. She went off again. Yes, Sol said, please let me get dressed, if you don't mind. The girl didn't move. What time is it? Dunno, Sally shrugged. I like poached eggs. They're my favorite eggs in the whole world. That's good, Sol said desperately. Now, why don't you be a good girl and eat your poached eggs in the kitchen? Ain't ready yet. You going to stay for breakfast? I'm not going to do anything until you get out of here. She put the end of a pigtail in her mouth and sat down on the chair opposite. I went to the palace last night. They had an exolution. Please, Sol groaned. Be a good girl, Sally. If you let me get dressed, I'll show you how to take off your thumb. Oh, that's an old trick. Did you ever see an exolution? No. Did you ever see a little girl with her hide tanned? Huh? Sally! Mom again, sterner. You get out of there or you know what. Okay, the girl said blithely. I'm going to the palace again, if I brush my teeth. Aren't you ever going to get up? She skipped out of the room and Sol hastily sat up and reached for his trousers. When he had dressed the clothes still damp and unpleasant against his skin, he went out of the parlor and found the kitchen. Mom was busy at the stove. He said, Good morning. Breakfast in ten minutes, she said cheerfully. You like poached eggs? Sure. Do you have a telephone? In the hallway. Party line. So you may have to wait. He tried for fifteen minutes to get through, but there was a woman on the line who was terribly upset about a cotton dress she had ordered from Sears and was telling the world about it. Finally he got his call through to Salinas, and a sleepy-voiced Fred, his old army buddy, listened somewhat indifferently to his tale of woe. I might miss the wedding, Sol said unhappily. I'm, I'm awfully sorry. Fred didn't seem to be half as sorry as he was. 
When Sol hung up, he was feeling more despondent than ever. A man, tall and rangy, with a bobbing Adam's apple and a lined face, came into the hallway. Hello? he said inquiringly. You the fella had the car stolen? Yes. The man scratched his ear. Take you over to Sheriff Coogan after breakfast. He'll let the Stadies know about it. My name's Dawes. Sol accepted a careful handshake. Don't get many people coming to town, Dawes said, looking at him curiously. Ain't seen a stranger in years, but you look like the rest of us. He chuckled. Mom called out. Breakfast. At the table, Dawes asked his destination. Wedding in Salinas, he explained. Old army friend of mine. I picked this hitchhiker up about two miles from here. He seemed okay. Never can tell, Dawes said, placidly munching egg. Hey, Ma, that's why you were so late coming to court last night? That's right, Pa. She poured the blackest coffee Sol had ever seen. Didn't miss much, though. What court is that? Sol asked politely, his mouth full. I'm a gum, Sally said, a piece of toast sticking out from the side of her mouth. Don't you know nothing? Armagon, Dawes corrected. He looked sheepishly at the stranger. Don't expect Mr. He cocked an eyebrow. What's the name? Becker. Don't expect Mr. Becker knows anything about Armagon. It's just a dream, you know. He smiled apologetically. Dream? You mean this Armagon is a place you dream about? Yup, Dawes said. He lifted cup to lip. Great coffee, Ma. He leaned back with a contented sigh. Dream about it every night. Got so used to the place I get all confused in the daytime. Mom said, I get muddle-headed, too, sometimes. You mean, Saul put his napkin in his lap, you, you mean you dream about the same place? Sure, Sally piped. We all go there at night. I'm going to the palace again, too. If you brush your teeth, Mom said primly. If I brush my teeth... Boy, you should have seen the execution. Execution, her father said. Oh, my goodness, Mom got up hastily. That reminds me. I gotta call poor Mrs. Brundage. It's the least I could do. Good idea, Dawes said. And I'll have to round up some folks and get old Brundage out of there. Saul was staring. He opened his mouth, but couldn't think of the right question to ask. Then he blurted out, What execution? None of your business, the man said coldly. You eat up, young man, if you want me to get Sheriff Coogan looking for your car." The rest of the meal went silently, except for Sally's insistence upon singing her school song between mouthfuls. When Dawes was through, he pushed back his plate and ordered Sol to get ready. Sol grabbed his topcoat and followed the man out the door. "'Have to stop someplace first, Dawes said. But we'll be picking up the sheriff on the way. Okay with you?' "'Fine,' Sol said uneasily. The rain had stopped, but the heavy clouds seemed reluctant to leave the skies over the small town. There was a skittish breeze blowing, and Sol Becker tightened the collar of his coat around his neck as he tried to keep up with the fast-stepping Dawes. They crossed the street diagonally and entered a two-story wooden building. Dawes took the stairs at a brisk pace and pushed open the door on the second floor. A fat man looked up from behind the desk. "'Hi, Charlie. Thought I'd like to see if you wanted to help move Brundage.' The man batted his eyes. Oh, Brundage, he said. You know, I clean forgot about him. He laughed. Imagine me forgetting that. Yeah, Dawes wasn't amused. And you, Prince Regent. Ah, Willie. Well, come on. Stir that fat carcass. Gotta pick up Sheriff Coogan, too. 
This here gentleman has to see him about something else. The man regarded Sol suspiciously. Never seen you before, night or day. Stranger? Come on, Dawes said. The fat man grunted and hoisted himself out of the swivel chair. He followed lamely behind the two men as they went out into the street again. A woman with an empty market-basket nodded casually to them. Morning, folks. Enjoyed it last night. Thought you made a right nice speech, Mr. Dawes. Thanks, Dawes answered gruffly, but obviously flattered. We were just going over to Brundage's to pick up the body. Ma's going to pay a call on Mrs. Brundage around ten o'clock. You care to visit? Why, I think that's very nice, the woman said. I'll be sure to do that. She smiled at the fat man. Morning, Prince. Sol's head was spinning. As they left the woman and continued their determined march down the quiet street, he tried to find answers. Look, Mr. Dawes, he was panting. The pace was fast. Does she dream about this Armagon, too, that woman back there? Yup. Charlie chuckled. He's a stranger, all right. And you, Mr. Sol turned to the fat man. You also know about this palace and everything? I told you, Dawes said testily. Charlie here's Prince Regent. But don't let the fancy title fool you. He's got no more power than any knight of the realm. He's just too dern fat to do much more than sit on a throne and eat grapes. That right, Charlie? The fat man giggled. Here's the sheriff, Dawes said. The sheriff, a sleepy-eyed citizen with a long, sad face, was rocking on a porch as they approached his house, trying to puff a half-lit pipe. He lifted one hand wearily when he saw them. Hi, Cookie, Dawes grinned. Thought you and me and Charlie would get Brundage's body out of the house. This here's Mr. Becker. He's got another problem. Mr. Becker, meet Cookie Coogan. The sheriff joined the procession, pausing only once to inquire into Sol's predicament. He described the hitchhiker incident, but Coogan listened stoically. He murmured something about the troopers and shuffled alongside the puffing fat man. Sol soon realized that their destination was a barber shop. Dawes cupped his hands over the plate glass and peered inside. Gold letters on the glass advertised haircut, shave, and massage parlor. He reported, Nobody in the shop. Must be upstairs. The fat man rang the bell. It was a while before an answer came. It was a reedy woman in a housecoat, her hair in curlers, her eyes red and swollen. Now, now, Dawes said gently, don't you take on like that, Mrs. Brundage. You heard the charges. It had to be this way. My poor Vincent, she sobbed. Better let us up, the sheriff said kindly. No use just letting him lay there, Mrs. Brundage. He didn't mean no harm, the woman snuffled. He was just purely ornery, Vincent was, just plain, mean, stubborn. The law's the law, the fat man sighed. Sol couldn't hold himself in. What law? Who's dead? How did it happen? Dawes looked at him disgustedly. Now is it any of your business? I mean, is it? I, I don't know, Sol said miserably. You better stay out of this, the sheriff warned. This is a local matter, young man. You better stay in the shop while we go up. They filed past him and the crying Mrs. Brundage. When they were out of sight, Saul pleaded with her. What happened? How did your husband die? Please! You must tell me. Was it something to do with Armagon? Do you dream about the place, too? She was shocked at the question. Of course. And your husband? Did he have the same dream? Fresh tears resulted. Can't you leave me alone? She turned her back. I got things to do. You could make yourself comfortable. 
She indicated the barber chairs and left through the back door. Sol looked after her and then ambled over to the first chair and slipped into the high seat. His reflection in the mirror, strangely gray in the dim light, made him groan. His clothes were a mess and he needed a shave. If only Brundage had been alive. He leaped out of a chair as voices sounded behind the door. Dawes was kicking it open with his foot, his arms laden with two rather large feet, still encased in bedroom slippers. Charlie was at the other end of the burden, which appeared to be a middle-aged man in pajamas. The sheriff followed the trio up with a sad undertaker expression. Behind him came Mrs. Brundage, properly weeping. "'We'll take him to the funeral parlor,' Dawes said, breathing hard. "'Weighs a ton, don't he?' "'What killed him?' Sol said. "'Heart attack?' The fat man chuckled. The tableau was grisly. Sol looked away towards the comfortingly mundane atmosphere of the barber shop, but even the sight of the thick padded chairs, the shaving mugs on the wall, the neat rows of cutting instruments, seemed grotesque and morbid. Listen, Sol said as they went through the doorway, about my car. The sheriff turned and regarded him lugubriously. Your car? Young man, ain't you got no respect? Sol swallowed hard and fell silent. He went outside with them the woman slamming the barbershop door behind him. He waited in front of the building while the men toted away the corpse to some new destination. He took a walk. The town was just coming to life. People were strolling out of their houses, commenting on the weather, chuckling amiably about local affairs. Kids on bicycles were beginning to appear, jangling the little bells and hooting to each other. A woman hanging wash in the backyard called out to him, thinking he was somebody else. He found a little park, no more than twenty yards in circumference, centered around a weather-beaten monument of some unrecognizable military figure. Three old men took their places on the bench that circled the general, and leaned on their canes. Sol was a civil engineer, but he made like a reporter. "'Pardon me, sir,' the old man, leathery-faced with a fine yellow mustache, looked at him dumbly. "'Have you ever heard of Armagon?' "'You a stranger?' "'Yes.' Thought so. Saul repeated the question. Course I did. Been going there ever since I was a kid. Night times, that is. How? I mean, what kind of a place is it? Said you're a stranger? Yes. Then taint your business. That was that. He left the park and wandered into a thriving luncheonette. He tried questioning the man behind the counter who merely snickered and said, You staying with the Dawses, ain't you? Better ask Willie, then. He knows the place better than anybody. He asked about the execution, and the man stiffened. Don't think I can talk about that. Fella broke one of the laws. That's about it. Don't see where you come into it. At eleven o'clock he returned to the Dawes residence and found Mom in the kitchen, surrounded by the warm, nostalgic odor of home-baked bread. She told him that her husband had left a message for the stranger, informing him that the state police would be around to get his story. He waited in the house, gloomily turning the pages of the local newspaper, searching for references to Armagon. He found nothing. At eleven-thirty a brown-faced state trooper came to call, and Saul told his story. He was promised nothing and told to stay in town until he was contacted again by the authorities. Mom fixed him a light lunch, the greatest feature of which was some hot biscuits she plucked out of the oven. It made him feel almost normal. He wandered around the town some more after lunch, trying to spark conversation with the residents. He learned little. 
At five-thirty he returned to the Dawes house and was promptly leaped upon by little Sally. "'Hi, hi, hi!' she said, clutching his right leg and almost toppling him over. "'We had a party in school. I had chocolate cake. You going to stay with us?' "'Just another night,' Sol told her, trying to shake the girl off. "'If it's okay with your folks. They haven't found my car yet.' "'Sally!' Mom was peering out of the screen door. "'You let Mr. Becker alone and go wash. Your pa will be home soon.' "'Oh, poo!' the girl said, her pigtail swinging. "'Do you got a girlfriend, mister?' No, Sol struggled towards the house with her dead weight on his leg. Would you mind? I can't walk. Would you be my boyfriend? Well, we'll talk about it if you let go of my leg. Inside the house, she said, We're having pot roast. You stayin'? Of course Mr. Becker's stayin', Mom said. He's our guest. That's very kind of you, Sol said. I really wish you'd let me pay for something. Don't want to hear another word about pay. Mr. Dawes came home an hour later, looking tired. Mom pecked him lightly on the forehead. He glanced at the evening paper and then spoke to Saul. "'Here you been asking questions, Mr. Becker.' Saul nodded, embarrassed. "'Guess I have. I'm awfully curious about this Armagon place. Never heard of anything like it before.' Dawes grunted. "'You ain't a reporter?' "'Oh, no. I'm an engineer. I was just satisfying my own curiosity.' "'Uh-huh.' Dawes looked reflective. You wouldn't be thinking about writing us up or anything. I mean, this is a pretty private affair. Writing it up? Sol blinked. I hadn't thought of it, but you'll have to admit it's sure interesting. Yeah, Dawes said narrowly. I guess it would be. Supper, Mom called. After the meal they spent a quiet evening at home. Sally went to bed screaming her reluctance at 8.30. Mom, dozing in the big chair near the fireplace, padded upstairs at nine. Then Dawes yawned widely and stood up and said good-night at quarter of ten. He paused in the doorway before leaving. "'I'd think about that,' he said. "'Writing it up, I mean. A lot of folks would think you were just plumb crazy.' Sol laughed feebly. I, "'I guess they would at that.' "'Good-night,' Dawes said. "'Good-night.' He read Sally's copy of Treasure Island for about half an hour. Then he undressed, made himself comfortable on the sofa, snuggled under the soft blanket that Mom had provided, and shut his eyes. He reviewed the events of the day before dropping off to sleep. The troublesome Sally, the strange dream-world of Armagon, the visit to the barber shop, the removal of Brundage's body, the conversations with the townspeople, Dawes's suspicious attitude. Then sleep came. He was flanked by marble pillars thrusting toward a high-domed ceiling. The room stretched long and wide before him, the walls bedecked in stunning purple draperies. He whirled at the sound of footsteps echoing stridently on the stone floor. Someone was running towards him. It was Sally, pigtails streaming out behind her, the small body wearing a flowing white toga. She was shrieking, laughing as she skittered past him, clutching a gleaming gold helmet. He called out to her, but she was too busy outdistancing her pursuer. It was Sheriff Coogan puffing and huffing, the metal and gold cloth uniform ludicrous on his lanky frame. "'Consarn, kid,' he wheezed. "'Give me my hat!' Mom was following him, her stout body regal in scarlet robes. "'Sally, you give Mr. Coogan his helmet, you hear?' "'Mrs. Dawes,' Sol said. "'Why, Mr. Becker, how nice to see you again. Pa, pa, look who's here!' Willie Dawes appeared. "'No,' Sol thought. This was King Dawes. Nothing else could explain the magnificence of his attire. 
Yes, Dawes said craftily. So I see. Welcome to Armagon, Mr. Becker. Armagon? Saul gaped. Then this is the place you've been dreaming about? Yup, the king said. And now you're in it, too. Then I'm only dreaming? Charlie, the fat man, clumsy as ever in his robes of state, said, So that's the snooper, eh? Yup, Dawes chuckled. Think you better round up the knights. Saul said, The knights? Exelution, exelution, Sally shrieked. Now wait a minute, Charlie shouted. Running feet, clanging of armor, Saul backed up against a pillar. Now look here, you've gone far enough. Not quite, said the king. The knight stepped forward. Wait, Saul screamed. Familiar faces under shining helmets moved towards him, the tips of sharp-pointed spears gleaming wickedly. And Saul Becker wondered, would he ever wake up? End of Dreamtown by Henry Sleesar The Black Dog by Stephen Crane there was a ceaseless rumble in the air as the heavy raindrops battered upon the laurel thickets and the matted moss and haggard rocks beneath. Four water-soaked men made their difficult ways through the drenched forest. The little man stopped and shook an angry finger at where night was stealthily following them. Cursed be fate and her children and her children's children! We are everlastingly lost! he cried. The panting procession halted under some dripping, drooping hemlocks, and swore in wrathful astonishment. "'It will rain for forty days and forty nights,' said the pudgy man moaningly, "'and I feel like a wet loaf of bread now. We shall never find our way out of this wilderness until I am made into a porridge.' In desperation they started again to drag their listless bodies through the watery bushes, after a time the clouds withdrew from above them, and great winds came from concealment and went sweeping and swirling among the trees. Night also came very near and menaced the wanderers with darkness. The little man had determination in his legs. He scrambled among the thickets and made desperate attempts to find a path or a road. As he climbed a hillock, he espied a small clearing upon which sat desolation and a venerable house, wept over by wind-waved pines. Oh! he cried. Here's a house! His companion straggled painfully after him as he fought the thickets between him and the cabin. At their approach the wind frenziedly opposed them and skirted madly in the trees. The little man boldly confronted the weird glances from the crannies of the cabin and rapped on the door. A score of timbers answered with groans, and within, something fell to the floor with a clang. "'Oh!' said the little man. He stepped back a few paces. Somebody in a distant part started and walked across the floor toward the door with an ominous step. A slate-colored man appeared. He was dressed in a ragged shirt and trousers, the latter stuffed into his boots. Large tears were falling from his eyes. "'How do you do, my friend?' said the little man affably. "'My old uncle Jim Crocker, he's sick to death,' replied the slate-colored man. "'Oh,' said the little man, "'is that so?' 
The latter's clothing clung desperately to him, and water sogged in his boots. He stood patiently on one foot for a time. "'Can you put us up here until tomorrow?' he asked finally. "'Yes,' said the slate-colored person. The party passed into a little unwashed room inhabited by a stove, a stairway, a few precarious chairs, and a misshapen table. "'I'll fry you some poke and make you some coffee,' said the slate-colored man to his guests. "'Go ahead, old boy,' cried the little man cheerfully from where he sat on the table, smoking his pipe and dangling his legs. "'My old uncle Jim Crocker, he sick to death,' said the slate-colored man. "'Think he'll die?' asked the pudgy man gently. "'No!' "'No?' He won't die. He's an old man, but he won't die yet. The black dog ain't been around yet. The black dog? said the little man feebly. He struggled with himself for a moment. What's the black dog? he asked at last. He's a spirit, said the slate-colored man in a voice of somber hue. Oh, he is, well. He haunts these parts, he does, and when people are going to die, he comes and he sets and howls. Oh, said the little man. He looked out of the window and saw night making a million shadows. The little man moved his legs nervously. I don't believe in these things, said he, addressing the slate-colored man who was scuffling with a side of pork. What things? came incoherently from the combatant. Oh, these are phantoms and ghosts and what not? All rot, I say. That's because you have merely a stomach and no soul, grunted the pudgy man. Oh, old pudgeons, cried the little man. His back curved with passion. A tempest of wrath was in the pudgy man's eye. The final epithet used by the little man was a carefully studied insult, always brought forth at a crisis. They quarreled. All right, Pudgeons, bring on your phantom, cried the little man in conclusion. His stout companion's wrath was too huge for words. The little man smiled triumphantly. He had staked his opponent's reputation. The visitors sat silent. The slate-colored man moved about in a small personal atmosphere of gloom. Suddenly... A strange cry came to their ears from somewhere. It was a low, trembling call which made the little man quake privately in his shoes. The slate-colored man bounded at the stairway and disappeared with a flash of legs through a hole in the ceiling. The party below heard two voices in conversation, one belonging to the slate-colored man and the other in the quavering tones of age. Directly, the slate-colored man reappeared from above and said, the old man is took bad for his supper. He hurried, prepared a mixture with hot water, salt, and beef. Beef tea, it might be called. He disappeared again. Once more the party below heard, vaguely talking over their heads. The voice of age arose to a shriek. Open the window, fool! Do you think I can live in the smell of your soup? Mutterings by the slate-colored man and the creaking of the window were heard. The slate-colored man stumbled down the stairs, and said with intense gloom, "'The black dog'll be along soon.' The little man started, and the pudgy man sneered at him. 
They ate a supper and then sat waiting. The pudgy man listened so palpably that the little man wished to kill him. The wood fire became excited and sputtered frantically. Without, a thousand spirits of the wind had become entangled in the pine branches and were slowly pleading to be loosed. loosened. The slate-colored man tiptoed across the room and lit a timid candle. The men sat waiting. The phantom dog lay cuddled to a round bundle, asleep down the roadway against the windward side of an old shanty. The specter's master had moved to Pike County, but the dog lingered as a friend might linger at the tomb of a friend. His fur was like a suit of old clothes. His jowls hung and flopped, exposing his teeth. Yellow famine was in his eyes. The wind-rocked shanty groaned and muttered, but the dog slept. Suddenly, however, he got up and shambled to the roadway. He cast a long glance from his hungry, despairing eyes in the direction of the venerable house. The breeze came full to his nostrils. He threw back his head and gave a long, low howl and started intently up the road. Maybe he smelled a dead man. The group around the fire in the venerable house were listening and waiting. The atmosphere of the room was tense. The slate-colored man's face was twitching and his drabbed hands were gripped together. The little man was continually looking behind his chair. Upon the countenance of the pudgy man appeared conceit for an approaching triumph over the little man, mingled with apprehension for his own safety. Five pipes glowed as rivals of a timid Campbell. Profound silence drooped heavily over them. Finally, the slate-colored man spoke. "'My old Uncle Jim Crocker, he's sick to death.' The four men started and then shrank back in their chairs. "'Damn it!' replied the little man vaguely. Again there was a long silence. Suddenly... It was broken by a wild cry from the room above. It was a shriek that struck upon them with appalling swiftness, like a flash of lightning. The walls whirled and the floor rumbled. It brought the men together with a rush. They huddled in a heap and stared at the white terror in each other's faces. The slate-colored man grasped the candle and flared it above his head. "'The black dog!' he howled and plunged at the stairway. The maddened four men followed frantically for it is better to be in the presence of the awful than only within hearing. Their ears still quivering with the shriek, they bounded through the hole in the ceiling and into the sick room. With quilts drawn closely to shrunk his shrunken breath for a shield, his bony hand gripping the cover, an old man lay with glazing eyes fixed on the open window. His throat gurgled and a froth appeared at his mouth. From the outer darkness came a strange, unnatural wail, burdened with the weight of death, and each note filled with foreboding. It was the song of the spectral dog. "'God!' screamed the little man. He ran to the open window. He could see nothing at first save the pine trees, engaged in a furious combat, tossing back and forth and struggling. The moon was peeping cautiously over the rims of some black clouds but the chant of the phantom guided the little man's eyes, and he at length perceived its shadowy form on the ground under the window. He fell away gasping at the sight. The pudgy man crouched in a corner, chattering insanely. 
the slate-colored man in his fear crooked his legs and looked like a hideous chinese idol the man upon the bed was turned to stone save the froth which pulsated in the final struggle terror will fight the inevitable the little man roared maniacal curses and rushing again to the window began to throw various articles at the spectre a mug a plate a knife a fork all crashed or clanged on the ground but the song of the spectre continued the bowl of beef tea followed as it struck the ground the phantom ceased its cry the men in the chamber sank limply against the walls with the unearthly wail still ringing in their ears and the fear unfaded from their eyes they waited again the little man felt his nerves vibrate destruction was better than another wait he grasped a candle and going to the window held it over his head and looked out oh he said his companions crawled to the window and peered out with him he's eaten the beef tea said the slate-colored man faintly the damn dog was hungry said the pudgy man there's your phantom said the little man to the pudgy man on the bed the old man lay dead without the spectre was wagging its tail the end of the black dog the enchanted omen by anna kingsford the first consciousness which broke my sleep last night was one of floating of being carried swiftly by some invisible force through a vast space then of being gently lowered, then of light, until gradually I found myself on my feet in a broad noonday brightness, and before me an open country. Hills, hills as far as the eye could reach, hills with snow on their tops and mists around their gorges. This was the first thing I saw distinctly. Then casting my eyes towards the ground, I perceived that all about me lay huge masses of grey material which at first I took for blocks of stone having the form of lions. But as I looked at them more intently, my sight grew clearer, and I saw to my horror that they were really alive. A panic seized me, and I tried to run away. But on turning, I became suddenly aware that the whole country was filled with these awful shapes. And the faces of those nearest to me were most dreadful for their eyes, and something in their expression, though not in the form of their faces, were human. I was absolutely alone in a terrible world peopled with lions, two of a monstrous kind. Recovering myself with an effort, I resumed my flight. But as I passed through the midst of this concourse of monsters, it suddenly struck me that they were perfectly unconscious of my presence. I even laid my hands in passing on the heads and manes of several. But they gave no sign of seeing me or of knowing that I touched them. At last I gained a threshold of a great pavilion not apparently built by hands, but formed by nature. The walls were solid, yet they were composed of huge trees standing close together like columns, and the roof of the pavilion was formed by their massive foliage, through which not a ray of outer light penetrated. Such light as there was seemed nebulous, and appeared to rise out of the ground. In the center of this pavilion I stood alone, happy to have got clear away from those terrible beasts and the gaze of their steadfast eyes. As I stood there, I became conscious of the fact that the nebulous light of the place was concentrating itself into a focus on the columned wall opposite to me.
It grew there, becoming denser, and then spread, revealing as it spread a series of moving pictures that appeared to be scenes actually enacted before me. For the figures in the pictures were living, and they moved before my eyes, though I heard neither word nor sound, and this is what I saw. First, there came a writing on the wall of the pavilion. This is the history of our world. These words, as I looked at them, appeared to sink into the wall as they had risen out of it, and to yield place to the pictures which then began to come out in succession, dimly at first, then strong and clear as actual scenes. First, I beheld a beautiful woman with the sweetest face and most perfect form conceivable. She was dwelling in a cave among the hills with her husband, and he too was beautiful, more like an angel than a man. They seemed perfectly happy together, and their dwelling was like paradise. On every side was beauty, sunlight, and repose. This picture sank into the wall as the writing had done. And then came out another, the same man and woman, driving together in a sledge, drawn by Reander over fields of ice, with all about them glaciers and snow, and great mountains veiled in wreaths of slowly moving mist. The sledge went at a rapid pace, and its occupants talked gaily to each other, so far as I could judge by their smiles and the movement of their lips. But what caused me much surprise was that they carried between them, and actually in your hands, a glowing flame, the fervor of which I felt reflected from the picture upon my own cheeks. The eyes around shone with its brightness. The mists upon the snow mountains caught its gleam. Yet strong as were its light and heat, neither the man nor the omen seemed to be burned or dazzled by it. This picture, too, the beauty and brilliancy of which greatly impressed me, sank and disappeared as the former. Next I saw a terrible-looking man clad in an enchanter's robe, standing alone upon an ice crack. In the air above him, poised like a dragonfly, was an evil spirit, having a head and face like that of a human being. The rest of it resembled the tail of a comet, and seemed made of a green fire, which flickered in and out as though swayed by a wind. And as I looked, suddenly, through an opening among the hills, I saw the slaves pass, carrying the beautiful woman and her husband, and in the same instant the enchanter also saw it, and his face contracted, and the evil spirit lowered itself and came between me and him. Then this picture sank and vanished. I next beheld the same cave in the mountains which I had before seen, and the beautiful couple together in it. Then a shadow darkened the door of the cave, and the enchanter was there asking admittance. Cheerfully they bade him enter, and as he came forward with his snake-like eyes fixed on the fair woman, I understood that he wished to have her for his own and was even then devising how to bear her away. And the spirit in the air beside him seemed busy suggesting schemes to this end. Then this picture melted and became confused, giving place for but a brief moment to another, in which I saw the enchanter carrying the omen away in his arms, she struggling and lamenting, her long bright hair streaming behind her. This scene passed from the wall as though a wind had swept over it, and there rose up in its place a picture which impressed me with a more vivid sense of reality than all the rest. It represented a marketplace, in the midst of which was a pile of faggots and a stake, such as were used formerly for the burning of heretics and witches. The marketplace, round which were rows of seats as though for a concourse of spectators, yet appeared quite deserted. I saw only three living beings present, the beautiful woman, the enchanter, and the evil spirit. Nevertheless, I thought that the seats were really occupied by invisible tenants, 
for every now and then there seemed to be a stir in the atmosphere as of a great multitude, and I had, moreover, a strange sense of facing many witnesses. The enchanter laid the omen to the stake, fastened her tail with iron chains, lit the faggots about her feet, and withdrew to a short distance, where he stood with his arms folded, looking on as the flames rose about her. I understood that she had refused his love, and that in his fury he had denounced her as a sorceress. Then in the fire above the pile I saw the evil spirit posing itself like a fly, and rising and sinking and fluttering in the thick smoke. While I wondered what this meant, the flames which had concealed the beautiful woman parted in their midst, and disclosed a sight so horrible and unexpected as to thrill me from head to foot, and curdle my blood. Chained to the stake there stood not a fair woman I had seen there a moment before, but a hideous monster, a woman still, but a woman with three heads and three bodies linked in one. Each of her long arms ended not in a hand, but in a claw like that of a part of a pine. Her hair resembled the locks of the classic Medusa, and her faces were inexpressibly loathsome. She seemed, with all her dreadful heads and limbs, to read in the flames, and yet not to be consumed by them. She gathered them into herself. Her claws caught them and drew them down. Her triple body appeared to suck the fire into itself, as though a blast drove it. The sight appalled me. I covered my face and dared look no more. When at length I again turned my eyes upon the wall, the picture that had so terrified me was gone, and instead of it I saw the enchanter flying through the world, pursued by the evil spirit and that dreadful omen. Through all the world they seemed to go. The scenes changed with marvellous rapidity. Now the picture glowed with the wealth and gorgeousness of the torrid June. Now the ice fields of the north rose into view, and on a pine forest, then a wild seashore, but always the same tree flying figures. Always the horrible tree formed a hobby pursuing the enchanter, and besides had an evil spirit with the dragonfly wings. At last this succession of images ceased, and I beheld a desolate region, in the midst of which sat the omen with the enchanter beside her. He sat reposing in her lap. Either the sight of her must have become familiar to him, and so less horrible, or she had subjugated him by some spell. At all events they were matted at last, and their offspring lay around them, on the stony ground, or moved to and fro. These were lions, monsters with human faces, such as I had seen in the beginning of my dream. Their jaws dripped blood, they paced backwards and forwards, lashing their tails. Then too this picture faded, and sank into the wall as the others had done. And through its melting outlines came out again the walls I had first seen. This is the history of our world. Only they seem to me in some way changed, but how I cannot tell. The horror of the whole thing was too strong upon me to let me dare look longer at the wall. And I awake, repeating to myself the question, how could one woman become three? End of the Enchanted Woman The Apparition by Guy de Maupassant The subject of sequestration of the person came up in speaking of a recent lawsuit, and each of us had a story to tell. A true story, he said. We had been spending the evening together at an old family mansion in the Rue de Grenelle, just a party of intimate friends. The old Marquis de la Tour Samuel, who was eighty-two, rose and, leaning his elbow on the mantelpiece, said in his somewhat shaky voice, I also know of something strange, so strange that it has haunted me all my life. It is now fifty-six years since the incident occurred, and yet not a month passes that I do not see it again in a dream. 
so great is the impression of fear it has left on my mind. For ten minutes I experienced such horrible fright that ever since then a sort of constant terror has remained with me. Sudden noises startle me violently, and objects imperfectly distinguished at night inspire me with a mad desire to flee from them. In short, I am afraid of the dark. But I would not have acknowledged that before I reached my present age. Now I can say anything. I have never receded before real danger, ladies. It is therefore permissible, at 82 years of age, not to be brave in presence of imaginary danger. That affair so completely upset me, caused me such a deep and mysterious and terrible distress that I never spoke of it to anyone. I will now tell it to you exactly as it happened, without any attempt at explanation. In July 1827 I was stationed at Rouen. One day as I was walking along the quay I met a man whom I thought I recognised without being able to recall exactly who he was. Instinctively I made a movement to stop. The stranger perceived it and at once extended his hand. He was a friend to whom I had been deeply attached as a youth. For five years I had not seen him. He seemed to have aged half a century. His hair was quite white and he walked bent over as though completely exhausted. He apparently understood my surprise and he told me of the misfortune which had shattered his life. Having fallen madly in love with a young girl, he had married her. But after a year of more than earthly happiness, she died suddenly of an affection of the heart. He left his country home on the very day of her burial and came to his townhouse in Rouen, where he lived alone and unhappy, so sad and wretched that he thought constantly of suicide. Since I have found you again in this manner, he said, I will ask you to render me an important service. It is to go and get me out of the desk in my bedroom, our bedroom, some papers of which I have urgent need. I cannot send a servant or a business clerk, as discretion and absolute silence are necessary. As for myself, nothing on earth would induce me to re-enter that house. I will give you the key of the room which I myself locked on leaving, and the key of my desk. Also a few words for my gardener, telling him to open the chateau for you. But come and breakfast with me tomorrow, and we will arrange all that. I promised to do him this, this slight favour he asked. It was, for that matter, only a ride which I could make in an hour on horseback, his property being but a few miles distant from Rouen. At ten o'clock the following day I breakfasted tete-a-tete -tete with my friend, but he scarcely spoke. He begged me to pardon him. The thought of the visit I was about to make to that room, the scene of his dead happiness, overcame him, he said. He indeed seemed singularly agitated and preoccupied, as though undergoing some mysterious mental struggle. At length, he explained to me exactly what I had to do. It was very simple. I must take two packages of letters and a roll of papers from the first right-hand drawer of the desk, of which I had the key. He added, I need not beg you to refrain from glancing at them. I was wounded at that remark and told him so somewhat sharply. He stammered, Forgive me, I suffer so and tears came to his eyes. At about one o'clock I took leave of him to accomplish my mission. The weather was glorious and I trotted across the fields listening to the song of the larks and the rhythmical clang of my sword against my boot. Then I entered the forest and walked my horse. Branches of trees caressed my face as I passed, and now and then I caught a leaf of my teeth and chewed it from sheer gladness of heart at being alive and vigorous on such a radiant day. 
As I approached the chateau, I took from my pocket the letter I had for the gardener, and was astonished at finding it sealed. I was so irritated that I was about to turn back without having fulfilled my promise, but reflected that I should thereby display undue susceptibility. My friend in his troubled condition might easily have fastened the envelope without noticing that he had did so. The manor looked as if it had been abandoned for twenty years. The open gate was falling from its hinges, the walks were overgrown with grass, and the flower beds were no longer distinguishable. The noise I made by kicking at a shutter brought out an old man from a side door. He seemed stunned with astonishment at seeing me. On receiving my letter, he read it, re-read it, turned it over and over, looked me up and down, put the paper in his pocket, and finally said, Well, what is it you wish? I replied shortly, You ought to know since you have just read your master's orders. I wish to enter the chateau. He seemed overcome. Then you are going in... into her room? I began to lose patience. Damn it! Are you presuming to question me? He stammered in confusion. No, sir, but... But it has not been opened since... since the death. If you will be kind enough to wait five minutes, I will go and see if... I interrupted him angrily. See here, what do you mean by your tricks? You know very well you cannot enter the room, since here is the key. He no longer objected. Then, sir, I will show you the way. Show me the staircase and leave me. I'll find my way without you. But, sir, indeed, this time I lost patience and pushed him aside, went into the house. I first went through the kitchen, then two rooms occupied by this man and his wife. I then crossed a large hall, mounted a staircase, and recognized the door described by my friend. I easily opened it and entered the apartment. It was so dark that at first I could distinguish nothing. I stopped short, disagreeably affected by that disagreeable, musty odor of closed, unoccupied rooms. As my eyes slowly became accustomed to the darkness, I saw plainly enough a large and disordered bedroom. The bed without sheets, but still retaining its mattresses and pillows, on one of which was a deep impression, as though an elbow or a head had recently rested there. The chairs all seemed out of place. I noticed that a door, doubtless that of a closet, had remained half open. I first went to the window which I opened to let in the light, but the fastenings of the shutter had grown so rusty that I could not move them. I even tried to break them with my sword, but without success. As I was growing irritated over my useless efforts, and could now see fairly well in the semi-darkness, I gave up the hope of getting more light, and went over to the writing desk. I seated myself in an armchair, and letting down the lid of the desk, I opened the drawer designated. It was full to the top. I needed but three packages, which I knew how to recognise, and began searching for them. I was straining my eyes in the effort to read the superscriptions when I seemed to hear, or rather feel, something rustle at the back of me. I paid no attention, believing that a draught from the window was moving some drapery. But in a minute or so another movement, almost imperceptible, sent a strangely disagreeable little shiver over my skin. It was so stupid to be affected, even slightly, that self-respect prevented my turning around. I had just found the second package I needed, and was about to lay my hand in the third, when a long and painful sigh, uttered just at my shoulder, made me bound like a madman from my seat, and land several feet off. 
as I jumped, I had turned round my hand on the hilt of my sword, and truly, if I had not felt it at my side, I should have taken to my heels like a coward. A tall woman dressed in white stood gazing at me from the back of the chair where I had been sitting an instant before. Such a shudder ran through all my limbs that I nearly fell backward. No one who has not experienced it can understand that frightful, unreasoning terror. The mind becomes vague, the heart ceases to beat, the entire body grows as limp as a sponge. I do not believe in ghosts. Nevertheless, I collapsed from a hideous dread of the dead, and I suffered. Oh, I suffered in a few moments more than in all the rest of my life from the irresistible terror of the supernatural. If she had not spoken, I should have died perhaps. But she spoke. She spoke in a sweet, sad voice that set my nerves vibrating. I dare not say that I became master of myself and recovered my reason. No, I was terrified and scarcely knew what I was doing. But a certain innate pride, a remnant of soldierly instinct, made me, almost in spite of myself, maintain a bold front. She said, Oh, sir, you can render me a great service. I wanted to reply, but it was impossible for me to pronounce a word. Only a vague sound came from my throat. She continued, Will you? You can save me, cure me. I suffer frightfully. I suffer. Oh, how I suffer. And she slowly seated herself in my armchair still looking at me. Will you? she said. I nodded in assent, my voice still being paralysed. Then she held out to me a tortoise-shell comb and murmured, Comb my hair. Oh, comb my hair, that will cure me. It must be combed. Look at my head, how I suffer, and my hair pulls so. Her hair unbound, very long and very black, it seemed to me, hung over the back of the armchair and touched the floor. Why did I promise? Why did I take that comb with a shudder? And why did I hold in my hands her long black hair that gave my skin a frightful, cold sensation, as though I were handling snakes? I cannot tell. That sensation has remained in my fingers, and I still tremble in recalling it. I combed her hair. I handled, I know not how, those icy locks. I twisted, knotted and unknotted, and braided them. She sighed, bowed her head, seemed happy. Suddenly she said, Thank you, snatched the comb from my hands, and fled by the door that I had noticed ajar. Left alone, I experienced for several seconds the horrible agitation of one who awakens from a nightmare. At length I regained my senses, I ran to the window, and with a mighty effort burst open the shutters, letting a flood of light into the room. Immediately I sprang to the door by which that being had departed. I found it closed and immovable. Then the mad desire to flee overcame me like a panic, the panic which soldiers know in battle. I seized the three packets of letters on the open desk, ran from the room, dashed down the stairs four steps at a time, found myself outside. I know not how, and, perceiving my horse a few steps off, leapt into the saddle and galloped away. I stopped only when I reached Rouen and alighted at my lodgings. Throwing the reins to my orderly, I fled to my room and shut myself in to reflect.
For an hour, I anxiously asked myself if I were not the victim of a hallucination. Undoubtedly, I had had one of those incomprehensible, nervous attacks, those exaltations of mind that give rise to visions and are the stronghold of the supernatural. And I was about to believe I had seen a vision, had a hallucination, when, as I approached the window, my eyes fell, by chance, upon my breast. My military cape was covered with long black hairs. One by one, with trembling fingers, I plucked them off and threw them away. I then called my orderly. I was too disturbed, too upset to go and see my friend that day, and I also wished to reflect more fully upon what I ought to tell him. I sent him his letters for which he gave the soldier a receipt. He asked after me most particularly, and, on being told I was ill, had had a sunstroke, appeared exceedingly anxious. Next morning I went to him, determined to tell him the truth. He had gone out the evening before and had not yet returned. I called again during the day. My friend was still absent. After waiting a week longer without news of him, I notified the authorities, and a judicial research was instituted. Not the slightest trace of his whereabouts or manner of disappearance was discovered. A minute inspection of the abandoned chateau revealed nothing of a suspicious character. There was no indication that a woman had been concealed there. After fruitless researches, all further efforts were abandoned, and for fifty-six years I have heard nothing. I know no more than before. End of the Apparition The Hour and the Man by Robert Barr Prince Lotarno rose slowly to his feet, casting one malignant glance at the prisoner before him. You have heard, he said, what is alleged against you. Have you anything to say in your defense? The captured brigand laughed. The time for talk is past, he cried. This has been a fine farce of a fair trial. You need not have wasted so much time over what you call evidence. I knew my doom when I fell into your hands. I killed your brother. You will kill me. You have proven that I am a murderer and a robber. I could prove the same of you if you were bound hand and foot in my camp as I am bound in your castle. It is useless for me to tell you that I did not know he was your brother, else it would not have happened, for the small robber always respects the larger and more powerful thief. When a wolf is down, the other wolves devour him. I am down, and you will have my head cut off, or my body drawn asunder in your courtyard, whichever pleases your excellency best. It is the fortune of war, and I do not complain. When I say that I am sorry I killed your brother, I merely mean I am sorry you were not the man who stood in his shoes when the shot was fired. You, having more men than I had, have scattered my followers and captured me. You may do with me what you please. My consolation is that killing me will not bring to life the man who is shot, therefore conclude the farce that has dragged through so many weary hours. Pronounce my sentence. I am ready. There was a moment's silence after the brigand had ceased speaking. Then the prince said, in low tones, but in a voice that made itself heard in every part of the judgment hall, Your sentence is that on the 15th of January you shall be taken from your cell at four o'clock, conducted to the room of execution, and there beheaded. The prince hesitated for a moment as he concluded the sentence, and seemed about to add something more, but apparently he remembered that a report of the trial was to go before the king, 
whose representative was present, and he was particularly desirous that nothing should go on the records which savored of old-time malignity, for it was well known that His Majesty had a particular aversion to the ancient forms of torture that had obtained heretofore in his kingdom. Recollecting this, the prince sat down. The brigand laughed again. His sentence was evidently not so gruesome as he had expected. He was a man who had lived all his life in the mountains, and he had had no means of knowing that more merciful measures had been introduced into the policy of the government. "'I will keep the appointment,' he said jauntily, "'unless I have a more pressing engagement.' The brigand was led away to his cell. "'I hope,' said the prince, "'that you noted the defiant attitude of the prisoner.' "'I have not failed to do so, Your Excellency,' replied the ambassador. "'I think,' said the prince, "'that under the circumstances his treatment has been most merciful.' "'I am certain, Your Excellency,' said the ambassador, "'that His Majesty will be of the same opinion, "'for such a miscreant beheading is too easy a death.' The prince was pleased to know that the opinion of the ambassador coincided so entirely with his own. The brigand Tosa was taken to a cell in the northern tower, where, by climbing on a bench, he could get a view of the profound valley at the mouth of which the castle was situated. He well knew its impregnable position commanding, as it did, the entrance to the valley. He knew also that if he succeeded in escaping from the castle, he was hemmed in by mountains practically unscalable, while the mouth of the gorge was so well guarded by the castle that it was impossible to get to the outer world through that gateway. Although he knew the mountains well, he realized that, with his band scattered, many killed, and the others fugitives, he would have a better chance of starving to death in the valley than of escaping out of it. He sat on the bench and thought over the situation. Why had the prince been so merciful? He had expected torture, whereas he was to meet the easiest death that a man could die. He felt satisfied there was something in this that he could not understand. Perhaps they intended to starve him to death, now that the appearance of a fair trial was over. Things could be done in the dungeon of a castle that the outside world knew nothing of. His fears of starvation were speedily put to an end by the appearance of his jailer with a better meal than he had had for some time, for during the last week he had wandered a fugitive in the mountains until captured by the prince's men, who evidently had orders to bring him in alive. Why, then, were they so anxious not to kill him in a fair fight if he were now to be merely beheaded. "'What is your name?' asked Toza of his jailer. "'I am called Paolo,' was the answer. "'Do you know that I am to be beheaded on the fifteenth of the month?' "'I have heard so,' answered the man. "'And do you attend me until that time? "'I attend you while I am ordered to do so. "'If you talk much, I may be replaced.' "'That, then, is a tip for silence, good Paolo,' said the brigand. I always treat well those who serve me well. I regret, therefore, that I have no money with me, and so cannot recompense you for good service. That is not necessary, answered Paolo. I receive my recompense from the steward. Ah, but the recompense of the steward and the recompense of a brigand chief are two very different things. Are there so many pickings in your position that you are rich, Paolo? No, I am a poor man. Well... Under certain circumstances, I could make you rich. Paolo's eyes glistened, but he made no direct reply. Finally, he said in a frightened whisper, I have tarried too long. I am watched. By and by the vigilance will be relaxed, and then we may perhaps talk of riches. 
With that the jailer took his departure. The brigand laughed softly to himself. Evidently, he said, Paolo is not above the reach of a bribe. We will have further talk on the subject when the watchfulness is relaxed. And so it grew to be a question of which should trust the other. The brigand asserted that hidden in the mountains he had gold and jewels, and these he would give to Paolo if he could contrive his escape from the castle. Once free of the castle, I can soon make my way out of the valley, said the brigand. I am not so sure of that, answered Paolo. The castle is well guarded, and when it is discovered that you have escaped, the alarm bell will be rung, and after that not a mouse can leave the valley without the soldiers knowing it. The brigand pondered on the situation for some time, and at last said, I know the mountains well. Yes, said Paolo, but you are one man, and the soldiers of the prince are many. Perhaps, he added, if it were made worth my while, I could show you that I know the mountains even better than you do. What do you mean? asked the brigand in an excited whisper. Do you know the tunnel? inquired Paolo, with an anxious glance towards the door. What tunnel? I never heard of any, but it exists, nevertheless. A tunnel through the mountains to the world outside. A tunnel through the mountains? Nonsense! cried the brigand. I should have known of it if one existed. The work would be too great to accomplish. It was made long before your day, or mine either. If the castle had fallen, then those who were inside could escape through the tunnel. Few knew of the entrance. It is near the waterfall up the valley, and is covered with brushwood. What will you give me to place you at the entrance of that tunnel? The brigand looked at Paolo sternly for a few moments. Then he answered slowly, Everything I possess. And how much is that? asked Paolo. It is more than you will ever earn by serving the prince. Will you tell me where it is before I help you to escape from the castle and lead you to the tunnel? Yes, said Tosa. Will you tell me now? No. Bring me a paper to-morrow, and I will draw a plan showing you how to get it. When his jailer appeared, the day after Tosa had given the plan, the brigand asked eagerly, Did you find the treasure? I did, said Paolo quietly. And will you keep your word? Will you get me out of the castle? I will get you out of the castle and lead you to the entrance of the tunnel, but after that you must look to yourself. Certainly, said Tosa. That was the bargain. Once out of this accursed valley, I can defy all the princes in Christendom. Have you a rope? We shall need none, said the jailer. I will come for you at midnight, and take you out of the castle by the secret passage, then your escape will not be noticed until morning. At midnight his jailer came and led Tosa through many a tortuous passage, the two men pausing now and then, holding their breaths anxiously as they came to an open court through which a guard paced. At last they were outside of the castle at one hour past midnight. The brigand drew a long breath of relief when he was once again out in the free air. "'Where is your tunnel?' he asked, in a somewhat distrustful whisper of his guide. "'Hush!' was the low answer. "'It is only a short distance from the castle, but every inch is guarded, and we cannot go direct. We must make for the other side of the valley, and come to it from the north.' "'What?' cried Toza in amazement. Traverse the whole valley for a tunnel a few yards away. It is the only safe plan, said Paolo. If you wish to go by the direct way, I must leave you to your own devices. I am in your hands, said the brigand with a sigh. Take me where you will, so long as you lead me to the entrance of the tunnel. 
They passed down and down around the heights on which the castle stood, and crossed the purling little river by means of stepping-stones. Once Toza fell into the water, but was rescued by his guide. There was still no alarm from the castle as daylight began to break. As it grew more light, they both crawled into a cave which had a low opening difficult to find, and there Paolo gave the brigand his breakfast, which he took from a little bag slung by a strap across his shoulder. "'What are we going to do for food if we are to be days between here and the tunnel?' asked Toza. "'Oh, I have arranged for that, and a quantity of food has been placed where we are most likely to want it. I will get it while you sleep.' "'But if you are captured, what am I to do?' asked Toza. Can you not tell me how to find the tunnel, as I told you how to find my treasure? Paolo pondered over this for a moment, and then said, Yes, I think it would be the safer way. You must follow the stream until you reach the place where the torrent from the east joins it. Among the hills there is a waterfall, and halfway up the precipice on a shelf of rock there are sticks and bushes. Clear them away, and you will find the entrance to the tunnel. Go through the tunnel until you come to a door which is bolted on this side. When you have passed through, you will see the end of your journey." Shortly after daybreak the big bell of the castle began to toll, and before noon the soldiers were beating the bushes all around them. They were so close that the two men could hear their voices from their hiding-place, where they lay in their wet clothes, breathlessly expecting every moment to be discovered. The conversation of two soldiers who were nearest them nearly caused the hearts of the hiding listeners to stop beating. "'Is there not a cave near here?' asked one. "'Let us search for it.' "'Nonsense,' said the other. "'I tell you that they could not have come this far already.' "'Why could they not have escaped when the guard changed at midnight?' insisted the first speaker. "'Because Paolo was seen crossing the courtyard at midnight, and they could have had no other chance of getting away until just before daybreak.' This answer seemed to satisfy his comrade and the search was given up just as they were about to come upon the fugitives. It was a narrow escape, and, brave as the robber was, he looked pale, while Paolo was in a state of collapse. Many times during the nights and days that followed, the brigand and his guide almost fell into the hands of the minions of the prince. Exposure, privation, semi-starvation, and, worse than all, the alternate wrenchings of hope and fear, began to tell upon the stalwart frame of the brigand. Some days and nights of cold winter rain added to their misery. They dare not seek shelter, for every habitable place was watched. When daylight overtook them on their last night's crawl through the valley, they were within a short distance of the waterfall, whose low roar now came soothingly down to them. "'Never mind the daylight,' said Toza. "'Let us push on and reach the tunnel.' I can go no farther, moaned Paolo. I am exhausted. Nonsense, cried Toza. It is but a short distance. The distance is greater than you think. Besides, we are in full view of the castle. Would you risk everything now that the game is nearly won? You must not forget that the stake is your head, and remember what day this is. What day is it? asked the brigand, turning on his guide. It is the 15th of January, the day on which you were to be executed. Toza caught his breath sharply. Danger and want had made a coward of him, and he shuddered now, which he had not done when he was on his trial and condemned to death. "'How do you know it is the fifteenth? he asked at last. Paolo held up his stick, notched after the method of Robinson Crusoe. "'I am not so strong as you are, and if you will let me rest here until the afternoon, 
I am willing to make a last effort and try to reach the entrance of the tunnel. Very well, said Toza shortly. As they lay there that morning, neither could sleep. The noise of the waterfall was music to the ears of them both. Their long toilsome journey was almost over. What did you do with the gold that you found in the mountains? asked Toza suddenly. Paolo was taken unawares and answered without thinking, I left it where it was. I will get it after. The brigand said nothing, but that remark condemned Paolo to death. Toza resolved to murder him as soon as they were well out of the tunnel and get the gold himself. They left their hiding place shortly before twelve o'clock, but their progress was so slow, crawling as they had to up the steep side of the mountain, under cover of bushes and trees, that it was well after three when they came to the waterfall, which they crossed as best they could on stones and logs. There, said Toza, shaking himself, that is our last wetting. Now for the tunnel. The rocky sides of the waterfall hid them from view of the castle, but Paolo called the brigands' attention to the fact that they could be easily seen from the other side of the valley. It doesn't matter now, said Toza. Lead the way as quickly as you can to the mouth of the cavern. Paolo scrambled on until he reached a shelf about halfway up the cataract. He threw aside bushes, brambles, and logs, speedily disclosing a hole large enough to admit a man. "'You go first, said Paolo, standing aside. "'No,' answered Toza. "'You know the way, and must go first. "'You cannot think that I wish to harm you. "'I am completely unarmed.' "'Nevertheless,' said Paolo, "'I shall not go first. "'I did not like the way you looked at me "'when I told you the gold was still in the hills. "'I admit I distrust you.' "'Oh, very well,' laughed Toza. "'It doesn't really matter.' "'And he crawled into the hole in the rock, "'Paolo following him. Before long the tunnel enlarged so that a man could stand upright. "'Stop,' said Paolo. "'There is the door near here.' "'Yes,' said the robber. "'I remember that you spoke of a door,' adding, however, "'What is it for, and why is it locked?' "'It is bolted on this side,' answered Paolo, "'and we shall have no difficulty in opening it.' "'What is it for?' repeated the brigand. It is to prevent the current of air running through the tunnel and blowing away the obstruction at this end, said the guide. Here it is, said Toza, as he felt down its edge for the bolt. The bolt drew back easily, and the door opened. The next instant the brigand was pushed rudely into a room, and he heard the bolt thrust back into its place, almost simultaneously with the noise of the closing door. For a moment his eyes were dazzled by the light. He was in an apartment blazing with torches held by a dozen men standing about. In the center of the room was a block covered with black cloth, and beside it stood a masked executioner, resting the corner of a gleaming axe on the black-draped block, with his hands crossed over the end of the axe's handle. The prince stood there surrounded by his ministers. Above his head was a clock, with the minute hand pointed to the hour of four. "'You are just in time,' said the prince, grimly. "'We are waiting for you.'" End of The Hour and the Man by Robert Barr Gabriel Ernest by Saki "'There's a wild beast in your woods,' said the artist Cunningham as he was being driven to the station. It was the only remark he had made during the drive, but as Van Cheel had talked incessantly, his companion's silence had not been noticeable. A uh, stray fox or two and some resident weasels, nothing more formidable, said Van Cheel. 
The artist said nothing. What, what do you mean about a wild beast? said Van Cheele later when they were on the platform. Nothing. My imagination. Here is the train, said Cunningham. That afternoon Van Cheele went for one of his frequent rambles through his woodland property. He had a stuffed bitten in his study, and knew the names of quite a number of wildflowers, so his aunt had possibly some justification in describing him as a great naturalist. At any rate, he was a great walker. It was his custom to take mental notes of everything he saw during his walks, not so much for the purpose of assisting contemporary science as to provide topics for conversation afterwards. When the bluebells began to show themselves in flower, he made a point of informing every one of the fact. The season of the year might have warned his hearers of the likelihood of such an occurrence, but at least they felt that he was being absolutely frank with them. What Van Cheele saw on this particular afternoon was, however, something far removed from his ordinary range of experience. On the shelf of a smooth stone overhanging a deep pool in the hollow of an oak coppice, a boy of about sixteen lay asprawl, drying his wet brown limbs luxuriously in the sun. His wet hair, parted by a recent dive, lay close to his head, and his light brown eyes, so light there was almost a tigerish gleam in them, were turned towards Van Cheele with a certain lazy watchfulness. It was an unexpected apparition, and Van Cheele found himself engaged in the novel process of thinking before he spoke. Where on earth could this wild-looking boy hail from? The miller's wife had lost a child some two months ago, supposed to have been swept away by the mill-race, but that had been a mere baby, not a half-grown lad. "'What are you doing there?' he demanded. "'Obviously. Sunning myself,' replied the boy. "'Where do you live?' "'Here, in the woods.' "'You can't live in the woods,' said Van Cheele. "'They are very nice woods,' said the boy with a touch of patronage in his voice. "'But where do you sleep at night?' "'I don't sleep at night. That's my busiest time.' Van Cheele began to have an irritated feeling that he was grappling with a problem that was eluding him. "'What do you feed on?' he asked. "'Flesh,' said the boy, and he pronounced the word with slow relish, as though he were tasting it. "'Flesh? What flesh?' "'Since it interests you. Rabbits, wildfowl, hares, poultry, lambs in the season, children when I can get any. They're usually too well locked in at night when I do most of my hunting. It's quite two months since I tasted child flesh.' Ignoring the chafing nature of the last remark, Van Cheele tried to draw the boy on the subject of possible poaching operations. "'You're talking rather through your hat when you speak of feeding on hares. Considering the nature of the boy's toilet, the simile was hardly an apt one. "'Our hillside hares aren't easily caught.' "'At night, I hunt on four feet,' was the somewhat cryptic response. "'I suppose you mean you hunt with a dog,' hazarded Van Cheele. The boy rolled slowly over onto his back and laughed a weird low laugh that was pleasantly like a chuckle, and disagreeably like a snarl. I don't fancy any dog would be very anxious for my company, especially at night. Van Cheele began to feel that there was something positively uncanny about the strange-eyed, strange-tongued youngster. I can't have you staying in these woods, he declared authoritatively. I fancy you'd rather have me here than in your house, said the boy. The prospect of this wild, nude animal in Van Cheele's primly ordered house was certainly an alarming one. "'If you don't go, I shall have to make you,' said Van Cheele. The boy turned like a flash, plunged into the pool, and in a moment had flung his wet and glistening body halfway up the bank where Van Cheele was standing. In an otter the movement would not have been remarkable. In a boy, Van Cheele found it sufficiently startling. His foot slipped as he made an involuntarily backward movement, 
and he found himself almost prostrate on the slippery weed-grown bank with those tigerish yellow eyes not very far from his own almost instinctively he half raised his hand to his throat the boy laughed again a laugh in which the snarl had nearly driven out the chuckle and then with another of his astonishing lightning movements plunged out of view into a yielding tangle of weed and fern what an extraordinary wild animal said van cheele as he picked himself up and then he recalled cunningham's remark there is a wild beast in your woods walking slowly homeward van cheele began to turn over in his mind various local occurrences which might be traceable to the existence of this astonishing young savage something had been thinning the game in the woods lately poultry had been missing from the farms hares were growing unaccountably scarcer and complaints had reached him of lambs being carried off bodily from the hills was it possible that this young wild boy was really hunting the countryside in company with some clever poacher dogs he had spoken of hunting four-footed by night but then again he had hinted strangely at no dog caring to come near him especially at night it was certainly puzzling and then as van cheele ran his mind over the various depredations that had been committed during the last month or two he came suddenly to a dead stop alike in his walk and his speculations the child missing from the mill two months ago the accepted theory was that it had tumbled into the mill-race and been swept away but the mother had always declared she had heard a shriek on the hillside of the house in the opposite direction from the water it was unthinkable of course but he wished that the boy had not made that uncanny remark about child flesh eaten two months ago such dreadful things should not be said even in fun van cheele contrary to his usual wont did not feel disposed to be communicative about his discovery in the wood his position as a parish councillor and justice of the peace seemed somehow compromised by the fact that he was harbouring a personality of such doubtful repute on his property there was even a possibility that a heavy bill of damages for raided lambs and poultry might be laid at his door at dinner that night he was quite unusually silent where's your voice gone to said his aunt one would think you had seen a wolf Van Cheele, who was not familiar with the old saying, thought the remark rather foolish. If he had seen a wolf on his property, his tongue would have been extraordinarily busy with the subject. At breakfast next morning, Van Cheele was conscious that his feeling of uneasiness regarding yesterday's episode had not wholly disappeared, and he resolved to go by train to the neighbouring cathedral town, hunt up Cunningham, and learn from him what he had really seen that prompted the remark about a wild beast in the woods with this resolution taken his usual cheerfulness partially returned and he hummed a bright little melody as he sauntered to the morning-room for his customary cigarette as he entered the room the melody made way abruptly for a pious invocation gracefully asprawl on the ottoman in an attitude of almost exaggerated repose was the boy of the woods he was drier than when van cheele had last seen him but no other alteration was noticeable in his toilet how dare you come here asked van cheele furiously you told me i was not to stay in the woods said the boy calmly but not to come here supposing my aunt should see you and with a view to minimizing that catastrophe van cheele hastily obscured as much of his unwelcome guest as possible under the folds of a morning post at that moment his aunt entered the room this is a poor boy who has lost his way and lost his memory he doesn't know who he is or where he's from 
explained Van Cheel desperately, glancing apprehensively at the waif's face to see whether he was going to add inconvenient candour to his other savage propensities. Miss Van Cheel was enormously interested. Perhaps his underlinen is marked, she suggested. Uh, he seems to have lost most of that, too, said Van Cheel, making frantic little grabs at the morning post to keep it in its place. A naked, homeless child appealed to Miss Van Cheel as warmly as a stray kitten or derelict puppy would have done. We must do all we can for him, she decided, and in a very short time a messenger, dispatched to the rectory where a page-boy was kept, had returned with a suit of pantry clothes and the necessary accessories of shirt, shoes, collar, etc. Clothed, clean, and groomed, the boy lost none of his uncanniness in Van Cheel's eyes, but his aunt found him sweet. We must call him something, till we know who he really is, she said. Gabriel Ernest, I think. Those are nice, suitable names. Van Cheel agreed, but he privately doubted whether they were being grafted on to a nice, suitable child. His misgivings were not diminished by the fact that his staid and elderly spaniel had bolted out of the house at the first incoming of the boy, and now obstinately remained shivering and yapping at the farther end of the orchard, while the canary, usually as vocally industrious as Van Cheel himself, had put itself on an allowance of frightened cheeps. More than ever he was resolved to consult Cunningham without loss of time. As he drove off to the station, his aunt was arranging that Gabriel Erner should help her to entertain the infant members of her Sunday school class at tea that afternoon. Cunningham was not at first disposed to be communicative. "'My mother died of some brain trouble,' he explained. "'So you will understand why I am averse to dwelling on anything of an impossibly fantastic nature that I may see, or think that I may have seen.' "'But what did you see?' persisted Van Cheel. "'What I thought I saw was something so extraordinary that no really sane man could dignify it with the credit of having actually happened. I was standing, the last evening I was with you, half hidden in the hedge-growth by the orchard-gate, watching the dying glow of the sunset. Suddenly I became aware of a naked boy, a bather from some neighbouring pool I took him to be, who was standing out on the bare hillside, also watching the sunset.' His pose was so suggestive of some wild fawn of pagan myth that I instantly wanted to engage him as a model, and in another moment I think I should have hailed him. But just then the sun dipped out of view, and all the orange and pink slid out of the landscape, leaving it cold and grey. And at the same moment an astonishing thing happened. The boy vanished too. "'What, vanished into nothing?' asked Van Cheel excitedly. "'No, that is the dreadful part of it.' answered the artist. On the open hillside, where the boy had been standing a second ago, stood a large wolf, blackish in colour, with gleaming fangs and cruel yellow eyes. You may think— But Van Cheel did not stop for anything as futile as thought. Already he was tearing at top speed towards the station. He dismissed the idea of a telegram. Gabriel Ernest is a werewolf, was a hopelessly inadequate effort at conveying the situation and his aunt would think it a code message to which he had admitted to give her the key. His one hope was that he might reach home before sundown. The cab, which he chartered at the other end of the railway journey, bore him with what seemed exasperating slowness along the country roads, which were pink and mauve with the flush of the sinking sun. His aunt was putting away some unfinished jams and cake when he arrived. "'Where is Gabriel Ernest?' he almost screamed. "'He was taking the little toop child home,' said his aunt. It was getting late, so I thought it wasn't safe to let it go back alone. What a lovely sunset, isn't it? But Van Cheel, although not oblivious of the glow in the western sky, did not stay to discuss its beauties. 
At a speed for which he was scarcely geared, he raced along the narrow lane that led to the home of the Toops. On one side ran the swift current of the mill-stream. On the other rose the stretch of Burr Hillside. A dwindling rim of red sun showed still on the skyline, and the next turning must bring him in view of the ill-assorted couple he was pursuing. Then the colour went suddenly out of things, and a grey light settled itself with a quick shiver over the landscape. Van Cheel heard a shrill wail of fear, and stopped running. Nothing was ever seen again of the Toop child, or Gabriel Ernest, but the latter's discarded garments were found lying in the road, so it was assumed that the child had fallen into the water, and that the boy had stripped and jumped in, in a vain endeavour to save it. Van Cheel and some workmen who were nearby at the time testified to having heard a child scream loudly just near the spot where the clothes were found. Mrs. Toop, who had eleven other children, was decently resigned to her bereavement, but Miss Van Cheel sincerely mourned her lost foundling. It was on her initiative that a memorial brass was put up in the parish church to Gabriel Ernest, an unknown boy who bravely sacrificed his life for another. Van Cheel gave way to his aunt in most things, but he flatly refused to subscribe to the Gabriel Ernest Memorial. End of Gabriel Ernest by Saki An Egyptian Hornet by Algernon Blackwood The word has an angry, malignant sound that brings the idea of attack vividly into the mind. There is a vicious sting about it somewhere. Even a foreigner, ignorant of the meaning, must feel it. A hornet is wicked. It darts and stabs, it pierces, aiming without provocation for the face and eyes. The name suggests a metallic droning of evil wings, fierce flight, and poisonous assault. Though black and yellow, it sounds scarlet. There is blood in it, a striped tiger of the air in concentrated form. There is no escape if it attacks. In Egypt, an ordinary bee is the size of an English hornet, but the Egyptian hornet is enormous. It is truly monstrous, an ominous dying terror. It shares that universal quality of the land of the Sphinx and Pyramids, great size. It is a formidable insect, worse than scorpion or tarantula. The Reverend James Milligan, meeting one for the first time, realized the meaning of another word as well, a word he used prolifically in his eloquent sermons. Devil. One morning in April, when the heat began to bring the insects out, he rose as usual betimes and went across the wide stone corridor to his bath. The desert already glared in through the open windows. The heat would be afflicting later in the day, but at this early hour, the cool north wind blew pleasantly down the hotel passages. It was Sunday, and at half-past eight o'clock he would appear to conduct the morning service for the English visitors. The floor of the passageway was cold beneath his feet, in their thin native slippers of bright yellow. He was neither young nor old. His salary was comfortable. He had a competency of his own, without wife or children to absorb it. The dry climate had been recommended to him, and the big hotel took him in for next to nothing, and he was thoroughly pleased with himself. 
for he was a sleek vain pompous well-advertised personality but mean as a rat no worries of any kind were on his mind as carrying sponge and towel scented soap and a bottle of scrubs ammonia he travelled amiably across the deserted shining corridor to the bathroom and nothing went wrong with the reverend james milligan until he opened the door and his eye fell upon a dark suspicious-looking object clinging to the window-pane in front of him and even then at first he felt no anxiety or alarm but merely a natural curiosity to know exactly what it was this little clot of an odd-shaped elongated thing that stuck there on the wooden framework six feet before his aquiline nose he went straight up to it to see then stopped dead his heart gave a distinct unclerical leap his lips formed themselves into unregenerate shape he gasped good god what is it for something unholy something wicked as a secret sin stuck there before his eyes in the patch of blazing sunshine he caught his breath for a moment he was unable to move as though the sight half fascinated him then cautiously and very slowly stealthily in fact he withdrew towards the door he had just entered fearful of making the smallest sound he retraced his step on tiptoe his yellow slippers shuffled his dry sponge fell and bounded till it settled rolling close beneath the horribly attractive object facing him from the safety of the open door with ample space for retreat behind him he paused and stared his entire being focused itself in his eyes it was a hornet that he saw it hung there motionless and threatening between him and the bathroom door and at first he merely exclaimed below his breath good god it's an egyptian hornet being a man with a reputation for decided action however he soon recovered himself he was well schooled in self-control when people left his church at the beginning of the sermon no muscle in his face betrayed the wounded vanity and annoyance that burned deep in his heart but a hornet sitting directly in his path was a very different matter he realized in a flash that he was poorly clothed in a word that he was practically half naked from a distance he examined this intrusion of the devil it was calm and very still it was wonderfully made both before and behind its wings were folded upon its terrible body long sinuous things pointed like temptation barbed as well stuck out of it there was poison and yet grace in its exquisite presentment its shiny black was beautiful and the yellow stripes upon its sleek curved abdomen were like the gleaming ornaments upon some feminine body of the seductive world he preached against almost he saw an abandoned dancer on the stage and then swiftly in his impressionable soul the simile changed and he saw instead more blunt and aggressive forms of destruction the well-filled body tapering to a horrid point reminded him of those perfect engines of death that reduce hundreds to annihilation unawares torpedoes shells projectiles crammed with secret desolating powers its wings its awful quiet head its delicate slim waist 
its stripes of brilliant saffron all these seemed the concentrated prototype of abominations made cleverly by the brain of man and beautifully painted to disguise their invisible freight of cruel death bah he exclaimed ashamed of his prolific imagination it's only a hornet after all an insect and he contrived a hurried careful plan he aimed a towel at it rolled up into a ball but did not throw it he might miss he remembered that his ankles were unprotected instead he paused again examining the black and yellow object in safe retirement near the door as one day he hoped to watch the world in leisurely retirement in the country it did not move it was fixed and terrible it made no sound its wings were folded not even the black antennae blunt at the tips like clubs showed the least stir or tremble it breathed however he watched the rise and fall of the evil body it breathed air in and out as he himself did the creature he realized had lungs and heart and organs it had a brain its mind was active all this time it knew it was being watched it merely waited any second with a whiz of fury and with perfect accuracy of aim it might dart at him and strike if he threw the towel and missed it certainly would there were other occupants of the corridor however and a sound of steps approaching gave him the decision to act he would lose his bath if he hesitated much longer he felt ashamed of his timidity though pusillanimity was the word thought selected owing to the pulpit vocabulary it was his habit to prefer he went with extreme caution towards the bathroom door passing the point of danger so close that his skin turned hot and cold with one foot gingerly extended he recovered his sponge the hornet did not move a muscle but it had seen him pass it merely waited all dangerous insects had that trick it knew quite well he was inside it knew quite well he must come out a few minutes later it also knew quite well that he was naked once inside the little room he closed the door with exceeding gentleness lest the vibration might stir the fearful insect to attack the bath was already filled and he plunged to his neck with a feeling of comparative security a window into the outside passage he also closed so that nothing could possibly come in and steam soon charged the air and left its blurred deposit on the glass for ten minutes he could enjoy himself and pretend that he was safe for ten minutes he did so he behaved carelessly as though nothing mattered and as though all the courage in the world were his he splashed and soaped and sponged making a lot of reckless noise he got up and dried himself slowly the steam subsided the air grew clearer he put on dressing gown and slippers it was time to go out unable to devise any further reason for delay he opened the door softly half an inch peeped out and instantly closed it again with a resounding bang he had heard a drone of wings the insect had left its perch and now buzzed upon the floor directly in his path. The air seemed full of stings. He felt stabs all over him. 
his unprotected portions winced with the expectancy of pain the beast knew he was coming out and was waiting for him in that brief instant he had felt its sting all over him on his unprotected ankles on his back his neck his cheeks in his eyes and on the bald clearing that adorned his anglican head through the closed door he heard the ominous dull murmur of his striped adversary as it beat its angry wings its oiled and wicked sting shot in and out with fury its deft legs worked he saw its tiny waist already writhing with the lust of battle ah that tiny waist a moment's steady nerve and he could have severed that cunning body from the directing brain with one swift well-directed thrust but his nerve had utterly deserted him human motives even in the professedly holy are an involved affair at any time just now in the reverend james milligan they were inextricably mixed he claims this explanation at any rate in excuse of his abominable subsequent behavior for exactly at this moment when he had decided to admit cowardice by ringing for the arab servant a step was audible in the corridor outside and courage came with it into his disreputable heart it was a step of the man he cordially disapproved of using the pulpit version of hated and despised he had overstayed his time and the bath was in demand by mr mullins mr mullins invariably followed him at seven thirty it was now a quarter to eight and mr mullins was a wretched drinking man a sot in a flash the plan was conceived and put into execution the temptation of course was of the devil mr milligan hid the motive from himself pretending he hardly recognized it the plan was what men call a dirty trick it was also irresistibly seductive he opened the door stepped boldly nose in the air right over the hideous insect on the floor and fairly pranced into the outer passage the brief transit brought a hundred horrible sensations that the hornet would rise and sting his leg that it would cling to his dressing-gown and stab his spine that he would step upon it and die like achilles of a heel exposed but with these and conquering them was another stronger emotion that robbed the lesser terrors of their potency that mr mullins would run precisely the same risks five seconds later unprepared he heard the gloating insect buzz and scratch the oilcloth but it was behind him he was safe good morning to you mr mullins he observed with a gracious smile i trust i have not kept you waiting morning grunted mullins sourly in reply as he passed him with a distinctly hostile and contemptuous air for mullins though depraved perhaps was an honest man abhorring parsons and making no secret of his opinions whence the bitter feeling all men except those very big ones who are supermen have something astonishingly despicable in them the despicable thing in milligan came uppermost now he fairly chuckled he met the snub with a calm forgiving smile and continued his shambling gait with what dignity he could towards his bedroom opposite then he turned his head to see his enemy would meet an infuriated hornet an egyptian hornet 
and might not notice it. He might step on it. He might not. But he was bound to disturb it and rouse it to attack. The chances were enormously on the clerical side. And its sting meant death. May God forgive me, ran subconsciously through his mind, and side by side with the repentant prayer ran also a recognition of the tempter's eternal skill. I hope the devil it will sting him. It happened very quickly. The Reverend James Milligan lingered a moment by his door to watch. He saw Mullins, the disgusting Mullins, step blithely into the bathroom passage. He saw him pause, shrink back, and raise his arm to protect his face. He heard him swear aloud. What's the damn thing doing there? Have I really got him again? And then he heard him laugh, a hearty, guffawing laugh of genuine relief. It's real. The moment of revulsion was overwhelming. It filled the churchly heart with anguish and bitter disappointment. For a space he hated the whole race of men. For the instant Mr. Mullins realized that the insect was not a fiery illusion of his disordered nerves, he went forward without the smallest hesitation. With his towel he knocked down the flying terror. Then he stooped. He gathered up the venomous thing his well-aimed blow had stricken so easily to the floor. He advanced with it, held at arm's length, to the window, he tossed it out carelessly. The Egyptian hornet flew away uninjured, and Mr. Mullins, the Mr. Mullins who drank, gave nothing to the church, attended no services, hated parsons, and proclaimed the fact with enthusiasm. This same Mr. Mullins went to his unearned bath without a scratch. But first he saw his enemy standing in the doorway across the passage watching him, and understood. That was the awful part of it. Mullins would make a story of it, and the story would go the round of the hotel. The Reverend James Milligan, however, proved that his reputation for self-control was not undeserved. He conducted morning service half an hour later, with an expression of peace upon his handsome face. He conquered all outward sign of inward spiritual vexation. The wicked, he consoled himself, ever flourished like green bay trees. It was notorious that the righteous never had any luck at all. That was bad enough. But what was worse? And the Reverend James Milligan remembered for very long was the superior ease with which Mullins had relegated both himself and Hornet to the same level of comparative insignificance. Mullins ignored them both, which proved that he thought himself superior infinitely worse than the sting of any hornet in the world. He really was superior. End of An Egyptian Hornet by Algernon Blackwood The Adventure of the Mason From the Alhambra by Washington Irving There was once upon a time a poor mason, a bricklayer, in Granada who kept all the saints' days and holidays, and Saint Monday into the bargain, and yet, with all his devotion, he grew poorer and poorer, and could scarcely earn bread for his numerous family. 
One night he was roused from his sleep by a knocking at his door. He opened it, and beheld before him a tall, meagre, cadaverous-looking priest. "'Hark ye, honest friend,' said the stranger. "'I've observed that you are a good Christian and one to be trusted. Will you undertake a job this very night?' "'With all my heart, Signor Padre, on condition that I am paid accordingly.' "'That you shall be, but you must suffer yourself to be blindfolded.' To this the mason made no objection, so, being hoodwinked, he was led by the priest through various rough lanes and winding passages, until they stopped before the portal of a house. The priest then applied a key, turned a creaking lock, and opened what sounded like a ponderous door. They entered, the door was closed and bolted, and the mason was conducted through an echoing corridor and a spacious hall to an interior part of the building. Here the bandage was removed from his eyes, and he found himself in a patio, or court, dimly lighted by a single lamp. In the centre was the dry basin of an old Moorish fountain, under which the priest requested him to form a small vault, bricks and mortar being at hand for the purpose. He accordingly worked all night, but without finishing the job, just before daybreak, the priest put a piece of gold into his hand, and having again blindfolded him, conducted him back to his dwelling. "'Are you willing,' said he, "'to return and complete your work?' "'Gladly, Signor Padre, provided I am so well paid.' "'Well, then, to-morrow night at midnight I will call again.' He did so, and the vault was completed. "'Now,' said the priest, you must help me to bring forth these bodies that are to be buried in this vault. The poor mason's hair rose on his head at these words. He followed the priest with trembling steps into a retired chamber of the mansion, expecting to behold some ghastly spectacle of death, but was relieved on perceiving three or four portly jars standing in one corner, they were evidently full of money, and it was with great labour that he and the priest carried them forth and consigned them to their tomb. The vault was then closed, the pavement replaced, and all traces of the work were obliterated. The mason was again hoodwinked and led forth by a route different from that by which he had come. After they had wandered for a long time, through a perplexed maze of lanes and alleys, they halted. The priest then put two pieces of gold into his hand. "'Wait here,' said he, "'until you hear the cathedral bell toll for maintenance. "'If you presume to uncover your eyes before that time, "'evil will befall you.' So saying, he departed. The mason waited faithfully, amusing himself by weighing the gold pieces in his hand and clinking them against each other. The moment the cathedral bell rang its matin peal, he uncovered his eyes and found himself on the banks of the channel. Whence he made the best of his way home and travelled with his family for a whole fortnight on the profits of his two nights' work, 
after which he was as poor as ever. He continued to work a little, and pray a good deal, and keep saints' days and holidays from year to year, while his family grew up as gaunt and ragged as a crew of gypsies. As he was seated one evening at the door of his hovel, he was accosted by a rich old curmudgeon, who was noted for owning many houses and being a griping landlord. The man of money eyed him for a moment beneath a pair of anxious shagged eyebrows. I am told, friend, that you are very poor. There's no denying the facts, senor. It speaks for itself. I presume, then, that you will be glad of a job and will work cheap. As cheap, my master, as any mason in Granada. That's what I want. I have an old house fallen into decay, which costs me more money than it is worth keeping it in repair, for nobody will live in it. So I must contrive to patch it up and keep it together at as small expense as possible. The mason was accordingly conducted to a large deserted house, that seemed going to ruin. Passing through several empty halls and chambers, he entered an inner court, where his eye was caught by an old Moorish fountain. He paused for a moment, for a dreaming recollection of the place came over him. Pray, said he, who occupied this house formerly? A pest upon him, cried the landlord. It was an old miserly priest who cared for nobody but himself. He was said to be immensely rich, and, having no relations, it was thought that he would leave all his treasures to the church. He died suddenly, and the priest and friars thronged to take possession of his wealth. But nothing could they find but a few ducats in a leathern purse. The worst luck has fallen on me, for, since his death, the old fellow continues to occupy my house without paying rent, and there's no taking the law of a dead man. The people pretend to hear the clinking of gold all night in the chamber where the old priest slept, as if he were counting over his money, and sometimes a groaning and mourning about the court. Whether true or false, these stories have brought a bad name on my house, and not a tenant will remain in it. Enough, said the mason sturdily. Let me live in your house rent-free until some better tenant present, and I will engage to put it in repair, and to quiet the troubled spirit that disturbs it. I am a good Christian, and a poor man, and am not to be daunted by the devil himself, even though he should come in the shape of a big bag of money. The offer of the honest mason was gladly accepted. He moved with his family into the house and fulfilled all his engagements. By little and little he restored it to its former state. The clinking of gold was no more heard at night in the chamber of the defunct priest, but began to be heard by day in the pocket of the living mason. In a word, he increased rapidly in wealth to the admiration of all his neighbors, and became one of the richest men in Granada. He gave large sums to the church, 
by way no doubt of satisfying his conscience and never revealed the secret of the vault until on his deathbed to his son and heir end of the adventure of the mason by washington irving august heat by william fryer harvey feniston road clapham august twentieth nineteen hundred and i have had what i believe to be the most remarkable day in my life and while the events are still fresh in my mind i wish to put them down on paper as clearly as possible let me say at the outset that my name is james clarence withencroft i am forty years old in perfect health never having known a day's illness by profession i am an artist not a very successful one but i earn enough money by my black and white work to satisfy my necessary wants my only near relative a sister died five years ago so i am independent i breakfasted this morning at nine and after glancing through the morning paper i lighted my pipe and proceeded to let my mind wander in the hope that i might chance upon some subject for my pencil the room though door and windows were open was oppressively hot and i had just made up my mind that the coolest and most comfortable place in the neighbourhood would be the deep end of the public swimming bath when the idea came i began to draw so intent was i on my work that i left my lunch untouched only stopping work when the clock of st jude's struck four the final result for a hurried sketch was i felt sure the best thing i had done it showed a criminal in the dock immediately after the judge had pronounced sentence the man was fat enormously fat the flesh hung in rolls about his chin it creased his huge stumpy neck he was clean-shaven perhaps i should say a few days before he must have been clean-shaven and almost bald he stood in the dock his short clumsy fingers clasping the rail looking straight in front of him the feeling that his expression conveyed was not so much one of horror as of utter absolute collapse there seemed nothing in the man strong enough to sustain that mountain of flesh i rolled up the sketch and without quite knowing why placed it in my pocket then with a rare sense of happiness which the knowledge of a good thing well done gives i left the house i believed that i had set out with the idea of calling upon trenton for i remember walking along lytton street and turning to the right along gilchrist road at the bottom of the hill where the men were at work on the new tram lines from there onwards i have only the vaguest recollection of where i went the one thing of which i was fully conscious was the awful heat that came up from the dusty asphalt pavement as an almost palpable wave i longed for the thunder promised by the great banks of copper-coloured cloud that hung low over the western sky i must have walked five or six miles when a small boy roused me from my reverie by asking the time 
it was twenty minutes to seven. When he left me, I began to take stock of my bearings. I found myself standing before a gate that led into a yard bordered by a strip of thirsty earth, where there were flowers, purple stock, and scarlet geranium. Above the entrance was a board with the inscription, C.H.S. Atkinson Monumental Mason, Worker in English and Italian Marbles. From the yard itself came a cheery whistle, the noise of hammer blows, and the cold sound of steel meeting stone. A sudden impulse made me enter. A man was sitting with his back towards me, busy at work on a slab of curiously veined marble. He turned round as he heard my steps, and I stopped short. It was the man I had been drawing, whose portrait lay in my pocket. He sat there, huge and elephantine, the sweat pouring from his scalp, which he wiped with a red silk handkerchief. But though the face was the same, the expression was absolutely different. He greeted me, smiling, as if we were old friends, and shook my hand. I apologized for my intrusion. Everything is hot and glary outside, I said. This seems an oasis in the wilderness. I don't know about the oasis, he replied, but it certainly is hot, as hot as hell. Take a seat, sir. He pointed to the end of the gravestone on which he was at work, and I sat down. That's a beautiful piece of stone you've got hold of, I said. He shook his head. In a way it is, he answered. The surface here is as fine as anything you could wish, but there's a big flaw at the back, though I don't expect you'd ever notice it. I could never make really a good job of a bit of marble like that. It would be all right in summer like this. It wouldn't mind the blasted heat. But wait till the winter comes. There's nothing quite like frost to find out the weak points in stone. Then what's it for? I asked. The man burst out laughing. You'll hardly believe me if I was to tell you it's for an exhibition, but it's the truth. Artists have exhibitions, so do grocers and butchers. We have them, too. All the latest little things in headstones, you know. He went on to talk about marbles, which sort best withstood wind and rain, and which was easiest to work. Then of his garden, and a new sort of carnation he had bought. At the end of every other minute he would drop his tools, wipe the shining head, and curse the heat. I said little, for I felt uneasy. There was something unnatural, uncanny in meeting this man. I tried at first to persuade myself that I had seen him before, that his face, unknown to me, had found a place in some out-of-the-way corner of my memory but I knew that I was practising little more than a plausible piece of self-deception. Mr. Atkinson finished his work, spat on the ground, and got up with a sigh of relief. There! What do you think of that? he said with an air of evident pride. The inscription which I read for the first time was this. 
sacred to the memory of james clarence widdencroft born january eighteenth eighteen sixty he passed away very suddenly on august twentieth nineteen hundred and in the midst of life we are in debt for some time i sat in silence then a cold shudder ran down my spine i asked him where he had seen the name oh i didn't see it anywhere replied mr atkinson i wanted some name and i put down the first that came into my head why do you want to know it's a strange coincidence but it happens to be mine he gave a long low whistle and the dates i can only answer for one of them and that's correct it's a rum go but he knew less than i did i told him of my morning's work i took the sketch from my pocket and showed it to him as he looked the expression of his face altered until it became more and more like that of the man i had drawn and it was only the day before yesterday he said that i told maria there were no such things as ghosts neither of us had seen a ghost but i knew what he meant you probably heard my name i said and you must have seen me somewhere and have forgotten it were you at clacton on sea last july i had never been to clacton in my life we were silent for some time we were both looking at the same thing the two dates on the gravestone and one was right come inside and have some supper said mr atkinson his wife is a cheerful little woman with the flaky red cheeks of the country bred her husband introduced me as a friend of his who was an artist the result was unfortunate for after the sardines and watercress had been removed she brought me a door bible and i had to sit and express my admiration for nearly half an hour i went outside and found atkinson sitting on the gravestone smoking we resumed the conversation at the point we had left off you must excuse my asking i said but do you know of anything you've done for which you could be put on trial he shook his head i'm not a bankrupt the business is prosperous enough three years ago i gave turkeys to some of the guardians at christmas but that's all i can think of and they were small ones too he added as an afterthought he got up fetched a can from the porch and began to water the flowers twice a day regular in the hot weather he said and then the heat sometimes gets the better of the delicate ones and ferns good lord they could never stand it where do you live i told him my address it would take an hour's quick walk to get back home it's like this he said we'll look at the matter straight 
if you go back home tonight, you take your chance of accidents. A cart may run you over, and there's always banana skins and orange peel, to say nothing of falling ladders. He spoke of the improbable with an intense seriousness that would have been laughable six hours before, but I did not laugh. The best thing we can do, he continued, is for you to stay here till twelve o'clock. We'll go upstairs and smoke. It may be cooler inside. To my surprise, I agreed. We are sitting in a long, low room beneath the eaves. Atkinson has sent his wife to bed. He himself is busy, sharpening some tools at a little oilstone, smoking one of my cigars the while. The air seems charged with thunder. I am writing this at a shaky table before the open window. The leg is cracked, and Atkinson, who seems a handy man with his tools, is going to mend it as soon as he has finished putting an edge on his chisel. It is after eleven now. I shall be gone in less than an hour. But the heat is stifling. It is enough to send a man mad. End of August Heat by William Fry Harvey Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich, and the air was full of the joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maître d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons, where I was staying, came down, bareheaded, to the carriage, and after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman, still holding his hand on the handle of the carriage door, "'Remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm. But I am sure you will not be late.' Here he smiled and added, "'For you know what night it is.' Johann answered with an emphatic, Ja, mein Herr, and touching his hat, drove off quickly. When we had cleared the town, I said, after signaling to him to stop, Tell me, Johann, what is tonight? He crossed himself as he answered laconically, Walpurgisnacht. Then he took out his watch, a great old-fashioned German silver thing as big as a turnip, and looked at it with his eyebrows gathered together, and a little impatient shrug of his shoulders. I realized that this was his way of respectfully protesting against the unnecessary delay, and sank back in the carriage, merely motioning him to proceed. He started off rapidly, as if to make up for lost time. Every now and then the horses seemed to throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously. On such occasions I often looked around in alarm. The road was pretty bleak, for we were traversing a sort of high, wind-swept plateau. As we drove, I saw a road that looked but little used, and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that even at the risk of offending him, I called Johann to stop, and when he had pulled up, I told him I would like to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses, and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. 
This somewhat piqued my curiosity, so I asked him various questions. He answered fencingly and repeatedly looked at his watch in protest. Finally I said, "'Well, Johann, I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like. But tell me why you do not like to go. That's all I ask.' For answer, he seemed to throw himself off the box. So quickly did he reach the ground. Then he stretched out his hands appealingly to me and implored me not to go. There was just enough of English mixed with the German for me to understand the drift of his talk. He seemed always just about to tell me something, the very idea of which evidently frightened him. But each time he pulled himself up, saying as he crossed himself, Walpurgisnacht. I tried to argue with him, but it was difficult to argue with the man when I did not know his language. The advantage certainly rested with him, for although he began to speak in English, of a very crude and broken kind, he always got excited and broke into his native tongue, and every time he did so he looked at his watch. Then the horses became restless and sniffed the air. At this he grew very pale, and looking around in a frightened way, he suddenly jumped forward, took them by the bridles, and let them on some twenty feet. I followed and asked him why he had done this. For answer, he crossed himself, pointed to the spot we had left, and drew his carriage in the direction of the other road, indicating a cross, and said first in German, then in English, buried him him what killed themselves. I remembered the old custom of burying suicides at crossroads. Ah, I see, a suicide, how interesting! But for the life of me I could not make out why the horses were frightened. Whilst we were talking we heard a sort of sound between a yelp and a bark. It was far away, but the horses got very restless, and it took Johann all his time to quiet them. He was pale and said, It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now. No, I said, questioning him. Isn't it long since the wolves were so near the city? Long, long, he answered, in the spring and summer. But with the snow the wolves have been here not so long. Whilst he was petting the horses and trying to quiet them, dark clouds drifted rapidly across the sky. The sunshine passed away, and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift past us. It was only a breath, however, and more in the nature of a warning than a fact, for the sun came out brightly again. Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, the storm of snow, he comes before long time. Then he looked at his watch again, and straightway holding his reins firmly, for the horses were still pawing the ground restlessly and shaking their heads, he climbed to his box as though the time had come for proceeding on our journey. I felt a little obstinate, and did not at once get into the carriage. "'Tell me,' I said, "'about this place where the road leads.' and I pointed down. Again he crossed himself and mumbled the prayer before he answered, It is unholy. What is unholy? I inquired. The village. Then there is a village? No, 
No, no one lives there hundreds of years. My curiosity was piqued. But you said there was a village. There was. So where is it now? Whereupon he burst out into a long story in German and English, so mixed up that I could not quite understand exactly what he said, but roughly I gathered that long ago, hundreds of years, men had died there and been buried in their graves, and sounds were heard under the clay, and when the graves were open, men and women were found rosy with life and their mouths red with blood. And so, in haste to save their lives, I and their souls, and here he crossed himself, those who were left fled away to other places where the living lived, and the dead were dead, and not, not something. He was evidently afraid to speak the last words. As he proceeded with his narration, he grew more and more excited. It seemed as if his imagination had got hold of him, and he ended in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling, and looking round him as if expecting that some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in an agony of desperation, he cried, Walpurgisnacht, and pointed to the carriage for me to get in. All my English blood rose at this, and standing back, I said, You are afraid, Johann. You are afraid. Go home. I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. The carriage door was open. I took from the seat my oak walking stick, which I always carry on my holiday excursions, and closed the door, pointing back to Munich, and said, Go home, Johann. Walpurgisnacht doesn't concern Englishmen. The horses were now more restive than ever, and Johann was trying to hold them in, while excitedly imploring me not to do anything so foolish. I pitied the poor fellow. He was deeply in earnest. But all the same, I could not help laughing. His English was quite gone now. In his anxiety he had forgotten that his only means of making me understand was to talk my language, so he jabbered away in his native German. It began to be a little tedious. After giving the direction, home, I turned to go down the crossroad into the valley. With a despairing gesture, Johann turned his horses toward Munich. I leaned on my stick and looked after him. He went slowly along the road for a while. And there came over the crest of the hill a man, tall and thin. I could see so much in the distance. When he drew near the horses, they began to jump and kick about, then to scream with terror. Johann could not hold them in. They bolted down the road, running away madly. I watched them out of sight, then looked for the stranger, but found that he, too, was gone. With a light heart I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection, and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance, and certainly without seeing a person or a house. So far as the place was concerned it was desolation itself, but I did not notice this particularly till, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. 
than I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. I sat down to rest myself and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. A sort of sighing sound seemed to be around me, with, now and then, high overhead, a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards, I noticed that great thick clouds were drifting rapidly across the sky from north to south at a great height. There were signs of coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and, thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. The ground I passed over was now much more picturesque. There were no striking objects that the eye might single out, but in all there was a charm of beauty. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The brightness of the day had gone, the air was cold, and the drifting of clouds high overhead was more marked. They were accompanied by a sort of far-away rushing sound, through which seemed to come at intervals that mysterious cry which the driver had said came from a wolf. For a while I hesitated. I had said I would see the deserted village, so on I went, and presently came on a wide stretch of open country, shut in by hills all around. Their sides were covered with trees which spread down to the plain, dotting in clumps the gentler slopes and hollows which showed here and there. I followed with my eye the winding of the road and saw that it curved close to one of the densest of these clumps and was lost behind it. As I looked there came a cold shiver in the air and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles and miles of bleak country I had passed, and then hurried on to seek the shelter of the wood in front. Darker and darker grew the sky, and faster and heavier fell the snow, till the earth before and around me was a glistening white carpet, the further edge of which was lost in misty vagueness. The road was here but crude, and when on the level its boundaries were not so marked as when it passed through the cuttings, and in a little while I found that I must have strayed from it, for I missed underfoot the hard surface, and my feet sank deeper in the grass and moss. Then the wind grew stronger and blew with ever-increasing force till I was fain to run before it. The air became icy cold, and in spite of my exercise I began to suffer. The snow was now falling so thickly and whirling around me in such rapid eddies that I could hardly keep my eyes open. Every now and then the heavens were torn asunder by vivid lightning, and in the flashes I could see ahead of me a great mass of trees, chiefly yew and cypress, all heavily coated with snow. I was soon amongst the shelter of the trees, and there, in comparative silence, I could hear the rush of the wind high overhead. Presently the blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night. By and by the storm seemed to be passing away. It now only came in fierce puffs or blasts. At such moments the weird sound of the wolf appeared to be echoed by many similar sounds around me. 
Now and again through the black mass of drifting cloud came a straggling ray of moonlight, which lit up the expanse and showed me that I was at the edge of a dense mass of cypress and yew trees. As the snow had ceased to fall, I walked out from the shelter and began to investigate more closely. It appeared to me that among so many old foundations as I had passed, there might be still standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this I presently found an opening. Here the cypresses formed an alley leading up to a square mass of some kind of building. Just as I caught sight of this, however, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I passed up the path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked, but there was hope of shelter, and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness. The storm had passed, and perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to cease to beat. But this was only momentarily, for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm, which appeared to resume its course with a long, low howl, as of many dogs or wolves. I was awed and shocked, and felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me till it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then, while the flood of moonlight still fell on the marble tomb, the storm gave further evidence of renewing as though it was returning on its track. Impelled by some sort of fascination, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was, and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it and read over the Doric door in German, Countess Stolingen of Graz, in Styria, sought and found death, 1801. On the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. On going to the back I saw graven in great Russian letters, THE DEAD TRAVEL FAST. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish for the first time that I'd taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me, which came under almost mysterious circumstances, and with a terrible shock. This was Valpurgis Night. Valpurgis Night, when, according to the belief of millions of people, the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held revel this very place the driver had specifically shunned this was the depopulated village of centuries ago this was where the suicide lay and this was the place where i was alone unmanned 
shivering with cold in a shroud of snow, with a wild storm gathering a cane upon me. It took all my philosophy, all the religion I'd been taught, all my courage not to collapse in a paroxysm of fright. And now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it, and this time the storm bore on its icy wings not snow, but great hailstones which drove with such violence that they might have come from the thongs of Valeric slingers, hailstones that beat down leaf and branch and made the shelter of the cypresses of no more avail than though their stems were standing corn. At the first I had rushed to the nearest tree, but I was soon faint to leave it and seek the only spot that seemed to afford refuge, the deep Doric doorway of the marble tomb. There, crouching against the massive bronze door, I gained a certain amount of protection from the beating of the hailstones, for now they only drove against me as they ricocheted from the ground and the side of the marble. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant, as I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes were turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bier. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped as by the hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that before I could realize the shock, moral as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then there came another blinding flash which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as if in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapped in the flame, and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder crash. The last thing I heard was this mingling of dreadful sound as again I was seized in the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me and the air around seemed reverberant with the howling of wolves. The last sight that I remembered was a vague, white, moving mass, as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their sheeted dead and that they were closing in on me through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. Gradually there came a sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck, and all down my spine and my ears, my feet were dead yet in torment. But there was in my breast a sense of warmth, which was by comparison delicious. It was a nightmare, a physical nightmare, if one may use such an expression, for some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult for me to breathe. 
This period of semi-lethargy seemed to remain a long time, and as it faded away I must have slept or swooned. Then came a sort of loathing, like the first stage of seasickness, and a wild desire to be free from something. I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me, as though all the world were asleep or dead, only broken by the low panting as of some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat, then came a consciousness of the awful truth which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me and now licking my throat. I feared to stir, for some instinct of prudence made me lie still. But the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath, fierce and acrid, upon me. For another spell of time I remembered no more. Then I became conscious of the low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then, seemingly very far away, I heard a hello, hello, as of many voices calling in unison. Cautiously I raised my head and looked in the direction whence the sound came, but the cemetery blocked my view. The wolf still continued to yelp in a strange way, and a red glare began to move round the grove of cypresses as though following the sound. As the voices drew closer, the wolf yelped faster and louder. I feared to make either sound or motion. Nearer came the red glow, over the white pall which stretched into the darkness around me. Then all at once from beyond the trees there came at a trot a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery. I saw one of the horsemen, soldiers by their caps and their long military cloaks, raise his carbine and take aim. A companion knocked up his arm and I heard the ball whiz over my head. He had evidently taken my body for that of the wolf. Another sighted the animal as it slunk away, and a shot followed. Then, at a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, others following the wolf as it disappeared among the snow-clad cypresses. As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, although I could see and hear all that went on around me. Two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. "'Good news, comrades!' he cried. "'His heart still beats!' Then some brandy was poured down my throat. It put vigor into me, and I was able to open my eyes fully and look around. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I heard men call to one another. They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations and the lights flashed as the others came pouring out of the cemetery pell-mell like men possessed. When the further ones came close to us, those who were around me asked them eagerly, "'Well, have you found him?' The reply rang out hurriedly, "'No, no, come away quick, quick, this is no place to stay, and on this of all nights.' 
"'What was it?' was the question asked in all manner of keys. The answer came variously, and all indefinitely, as though the men were moved by some common impulse to speak, yet were restrained by some common fear from giving their thoughts. "'It, it, indeed,' gibbered one, whose wits had plainly given out for the moment. "'A wolf, and yet not a wolf,' another put in shudderingly. "'No use trying for him without the sacred bullet,' a third remarked in a more ordinary manner. "'Serve us right for coming out on this night. Truly we have earned our thousand marks,' were the ejaculations of a fourth. "'There was blood on the broken marble,' another said after a pause. "'The lightning never brought that there. And for him, is he safe? Look at his throat.' See, comrades, the wolf has been lying on him and keeping his blood warm. The officer looked at my throat and replied, He's all right. The skin is not pierced. What does it all mean? We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. What became of it? asked the man who was holding up my head and who seemed the least panic-stricken of the party, for his hands were steady and without tremor. On his sleeve was the chevron of a petty officer. "'It went to its home,' answered the man, whose long face was pallid, and who actually shook with terror as he glanced around him fearfully. "'There are graves enough there in which it may lie. Come, comrades, come quickly, let us leave this cursed spot.' The officer raised me to a sitting posture, as he uttered a word of command— then several men placed me upon a horse. He sprang to the saddle behind me, took me in his arms, gave the word to advance, and turning our faces away from the cypresses, we rode away in swift military order. As yet my tongue refused its office, and I was perforce silent. I must have fallen asleep, for the next thing I remembered was finding myself standing up, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight, and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected like a path of blood over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they'd seen, except that they found an English stranger guarded by a large dog. Dog! That was no dog! cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly, I said a dog. Dog, reiterated the other ironically. It was evident that his courage was rising with the sun, and pointing at me, he said, Look at his throat. Is that the work of a dog, master? Instinctively I raised my hand to my throat, and as I touched it I cried out in pain. The men crowded round to look, some stooping down from their saddles, and again there came the calm voice of the young officer. A dog, as I said. If aught else were said, we should only be laughed at. I was then mounted behind a trooper, and we rode on into the suburbs of Munich. Here we came across a stray carriage into which I was lifted, and it was driven off to the Quatre Saisons, 
the young officer accompanying me whilst the trooper followed with his horse, and the others rode off to their barracks. When we arrived, Herr Delbrück rushed so quickly down the steps to meet me that it was apparent he'd been watching within. Taking me by both hands, he solicitously led me in. The officers saluted me and was turning to withdraw when I recognized his purpose and insisted that he should come to my rooms. Over a glass of wine, I warmly thanked him and his brave comrades for saving me. He replied simply that he was more than glad, and that Herr Delbrück had at first taken steps to make all the searching party pleased. At which ambiguous utterance the maitre d'hôtel smiled, while the officer pleaded duty and withdrew. But, Herr Delbrück, I inquired, how and why was it that the soldier searched for me? He shrugged his shoulders, as if in depreciation of his own deed, as he replied, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I served to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? I asked. The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. But surely you would not send a search party of soldiers merely on this account. Oh, no, he answered. But even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyar, whose guest you are. And he took from his pocket a telegram which he handed to me, and I read, Bistritz, be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English, and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves and night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula As I held the telegram in my hand, the room seemed to whirl around me, and if the attentive maître d'hôtel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being in some way the support of opposite forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyze me. I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of the snow-sleep and the jaws of the wolf. End of Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker Stormship of the Hudson by Charles Skinner It was noised about New Amsterdam two hundred years ago that a round and bulky ship flying Dutch colors from her lofty quarter was careering up the harbor in the teeth of a north wind through the swift waters of an ebbing tide and making for the Hudson a signal from the battery to heave to and account for herself being disregarded a cannon was trained upon her and a ball went whistling through her cloudy and imponderable 
mass, for timbers she had none. Some of the sailor folk talked of mirages that rose into the air of northern coasts and seas, but the wise ones put their fingers beside their noses and called to memory the flying Dutchman, that wanderer of the seas, whose captain, having sworn that he would round Cape Horn in spite of heaven and hell, has been beating to and fro along the bleak Fujian coast and elsewhere for centuries, being allowed to land but once in seven years, when he can break the curse if he finds a girl who will love him. Perhaps Captain Vanderdecken found this maiden of his hopes in some Dutch settlement on the Hudson, or perhaps he expiated his rashness by prayer and penitence. Howbeit, he never came down again, unless he slipped away to sea in snow or fog so dense that watchers and boatmen saw nothing of his passing. A few old settlers declared the vessel to be the half-moon, and there were some who testified to seeing that identical ship with Hudson and his spectre crew on board making for the Catskills to hold carouse. This fleeting vision has been confounded with the storm-ship that lurks about the foot of the Palisades and Point No Point, cruising through Tappan Zee at night when a gale is coming up. The Hudson is four miles wide at Tappan, and squalls have space enough to gather force. Hence, when old skippers saw the misty form of a ship steal out from the shadows of the western hills, then fly like a gull from shore to shore, catching the moonlight on her topsails, but showing no lanterns, they made to windward and dropped anchor, unless their craft were stanch and their pilots' brains unvexed with liquor. On summer nights, when falls that curious silence which is ominous of tempest, the storm-ship is not only seen spinning across the mirror surface of the river, but the voices of the crew are heard as they chant at the braces and halyards in words devoid of meaning to the listeners. End of Stormship of the Hudson by Charles Skinner The Legend of a Gateway by Richard Jeffreys A great beech tree with a white mark some way up the trunk stood in the mound by a gate which opened into a lane. Strangers coming down the lane in the dusk often hesitated before they approached this beach. The white mark looked like a ghostly figure emerging from the dark hedge and the shadow of the tree. The trunk itself was of the same hue at that hour as the bushes, so that the whiteness seemed to stand out unsupported. So perfect was the illusion that even those who knew the spot well, walking or riding past, and not thinking about it, started as it suddenly came into sight. Ploughboys used to throw flints at it, as if the sound of the stone striking the tree assured them that it was really material. Some lichen was apparently the cause of this whiteness. The great beech indeed was known to be decaying, and was dotted with knot-holes high above. The gate was rather low, so that anyone could lean with arms over the top bar. 
at one time a lady used to be very frequently seen just inside the gate generally without a hat for the homestead was close by sometimes a horse saddled and bridled but without his rider was observed to be fastened to the gate and country people being singularly curious and inquisitive if they chanced to go by always peered through every opening in the hedge till they had discerned where the pair were walking among the cowslips more often a spaniel betrayed them especially in the evening for while the courting was proceeding he amused himself digging with his paws at the rabbit holes in the mound the folk returning to their cottages at even smiled and looked meaningly at each other if they heard a peculiarly long and shrill whistle which was known to every one as luke's signal some said that it was heard every evening no matter how far luke had to ride in the day his whistle was sure to be heard towards dusk luke was a timber dealer or merchant a calling that generally leads to substantial profit as wealth is understood in country places he bought up likely timber all over the neighbourhood he had wharves on the canal and yards by the little railway station miles away he often went up to london but if it was ninety miles he was sure to be back in time to whistle if he was not too busy the whistle used to go twice a day for when he started off in the morning no matter where he had to go to that lane was the road to it the lane led everywhere up in the great beach about eleven o'clock on spring mornings there was always a wood pigeon the wood pigeon is a contemplative sort of bird and pauses now and then during the day to consider over his labours in filling his crop he came again about half past four but it was at eleven that his visit to the beach was usually noticed from the window in the lady's own room the beach and the gate could be seen and as that was often luke's time she frequently sat upstairs with the window open listening for the sound of hoofs or the well-known whistle she saw the wood pigeon on so many occasions that at last she grew to watch for the bird and when he went up into the tree put down her work or her book and walked out that way secure in the top of the great beech and conscious that it was spring when guns are laid aside the wood pigeon took no heed of her there is nothing so pleasant to stroll among as cowslips this mead was full of them so much so that a little way in front the surface seemed yellow they had all short stalks this is always the case where these flowers grow very thickly and the bells were a pale and somewhat lemon colour the great cowslips with deep yellow and marked spots grow by themselves in bunches in corners or on the banks of brooks here a man might have mown acres of cowslips pale but sweet out of their cups the bees hummed as she walked amongst them a closed book in her hand dreaming she generally returned with luke spaniel beside her for whether his master came or not the knowing dog rarely missed his visit aware that there was always something good for him one morning she went dreaming on like this through the cowslips past the old beech and the gate and along by the nut-tree hedge 
it was very sunny and warm and the birds sang with all their might for there had been a shower at dawn which always set their hearts atune at least eight or nine of them were singing at once thrush and blackbird cuckoo afar off dove and greenfinch nightingale robin and loud wren and larks in the sky but unlike all other music though each had a different voice and the notes crossed and interfered with each other yet they did not jangle but produced the sweetest sounds the more of them that sang together the sweeter the music it is true they all had one thought of love at heart and that perhaps brought about the concord she did not expect to see luke that morning knowing that he had to get some felled trees removed from a field the farmer wishing them taken away before the mowing grass grew too high and as the spot was ten or twelve miles distant he had to start early not being so much on the alert she fell deeper perhaps into reverie which lasted till she reached the other side of the field when the spaniel rushed out of the hedge and leaped up to be noticed quite startling her at the same moment she thought she heard the noise of hoofs in the lane it might be luke and immediately afterwards there came his long shrill and peculiar whistle from the gate under the beech she ran as fast as she could the spaniel barking beside her and was at the gate in two or three minutes but luke was not there nor was he anywhere in the lane she could see up and down it over the low gate he must have gone on up to the homestead not seeing her at the house however she found they had not seen him he had not called a little hurt that he should have galloped on so hastily she set about some household affairs resolved to think no more of him that morning and to give him a frown when he came in the evening but he did not come in the evening it was evident he was detained luke's trees were lying in the long grass beside a copse and the object was to get them out of the field across the adjacent railway and to set them down in a lane on the sward whence he could send for them at leisure the farmer was very anxious to get them out of the grass and luke did his best to oblige him when luke arrived at the spot having for once ridden straight there he found that almost all the work was done and only one tree remained this they were getting up on the timber carriage and luke dismounted and assisted while it was on the timber carriage he said as it was the last they could take it along to the wharf the farmer had come down to watch how the work got on and with him was his little boy a child of five or six when the boy saw the great tree fixed he cried to be mounted on it for a ride but as it was so rough they persuaded him to ride on one of the horses instead as they all approached the gate at the level crossing a white gate with the words in long black letters to be kept locked they heard the roar of the morning express and stayed for it to go by so soon as the train had passed the gate was opened and the horses began to drag the carriage across as they strained at the heavy weight the boy found the motion uncomfortable and cried out 
and luke always kind-hearted went and held him on whether it was the shouting at the team the cracking of the whip the rumbling of the wheels or what was never known but suddenly the farmer who had crossed the rail screamed the goods round the curve by the copse and till then hidden by it swept a goods train scarce thirty yards away luke might have saved himself but the boy he snatched the child from the horse hurled him literally hurled him into the father's arms and in the instant was a shapeless mass the scene is too dreadful for further description this miserable accident happened as the driver of the goods train afterwards stated at exactly eight minutes past eleven o'clock it was precisely at that time that luke's lady dreaming among the cowslips heard the noise of hoofs and his long shrill and peculiar whistle at the gate beneath the beach she was certain of the time for these reasons first she had seen the wood-pigeon go up into the beach just before she started out secondly she remembered nodding to an aged labourer who came up to the house every morning at that hour for his ale thirdly it would take a person walking slowly eight or ten minutes to cross that side of the mead and fourthly when she came back to the house to see if luke was there the clock pointed to a quarter past and was known to be a little fast without a doubt she had heard the well-known whistle apparently coming from the gate beneath the beach exactly at the moment poor luke was dashed to pieces twelve miles away end of the legend of a gateway Where the Tides Ebb and Flow by Lord Dunsany I dreamt that I had done a horrible thing, so that burial was to be denied me either in soil or sea, neither could there be any hell for me. I waited for some hours knowing this, then my friends came for me and slew me secretly and with ancient rite, and lit great tapers and carried me away. It was all in London that the thing was done, and they went furtively at the dead of night along grey streets and among mean houses until they came to the river. And the river and the tide of the sea were grappling with one another between the mud banks, and both of them were black and full of lights. A sudden wonder came into the eyes of each as my friends came near to them with their glaring tapers. All these things I saw as they carried me dead and stiffening, for my soul was still among my bones, because there was no hell for it, and because Christian burial was denied me. They took me down a stairway that was green with slimy things, and so came slowly to the terrible mud. There in the territory of forsaken things, they dug a shallow grave. When they finished, they laid me in the grave, and suddenly they cast their tapers to the river. And when the water had quenched the flaring lights, the tapers looked pale and small as they bobbed upon the tide, and at once the glamour of the calamity was gone. And I noticed then the approach of the huge dawn, and my friends cast their cloaks over their faces, and the solemn procession was turned into many fugitives that stole furtively away. 
then the mud came back wearily and covered all but my face there i lay alone with quite forgotten things with drifting things that the tide will take no farther with useless things and lost things and with the horrible unnatural bricks that are neither stone nor soil i was rid of feeling because i had been killed but perception and thought were in my unhappy soul the dawn widened and i saw the desolate houses that crowded the marge of the river and their dead windows peered into my dead eyes windows with bales behind them instead of human souls i grew so weary looking at these forlorn things that i wanted to cry out but could not because i was dead then i knew as i had never known before that for all the years that herd of desolate houses had wanted to cry out too but being dead were dumb and i knew then that it had yet been well with the forgotten drifting things if they had wept but they were eyeless and without life and i too tried to weep but there were no tears in my dead eyes and i knew then that the river might have cared for us might have caressed us might have sung to us but he swept broadly onwards thinking of nothing but the princely ships at last the tide did what the river would not and came and covered me over and my soul had rest in the green water and rejoiced and believed that it had the burial of the sea but with the ebb the water fell again and left me again alone with the callous mud among the forgotten things that drift no more and with the sight of all those desolate houses and with the knowledge among all of us that each was dead in the mournful wall behind me hung with green weeds forsaken of the sea dark tunnels appeared and secret narrow passages that were clamped and barred from these at last the stealthy rats came down to nibble me away and my soul rejoiced thereat and believed that he would be free perforce from the accursed bones to which burial was refused very soon the rats ran away a little space and whispered among themselves they never came any more when i found that i was accursed even among the rats i tried to weep again then the tide came swinging back and covered the dreadful mud and hid the desolate houses and soothed the forgotten things and my soul had ease for a while in the sepulchre of the sea and then the tide forsook me again to and fro it came about me for many years then the city council found me and gave me decent burial it was the first grave that i had ever slept in that very night my friends came for me they dug me up and put me back again in the shallow hold in the mud again and again through the years my bones found burial but always behind the funeral lurked one of those terrible men who as soon as night fell came and dug them up and carried them back again to the hole in the mud and then one day the last of those men died who had once done to me this terrible thing i heard his soul go over the river at sunset and again i hoped a few weeks afterwards i was found once more and once more taken out of that restless place and given deep burial in sacred ground 
where my soul hoped that it should rest. Almost at once, men came with cloaks and tapers to give me back to the mud, for the thing had become a tradition and a rite. And all the forsaken things mocked me in their dumb hearts when they saw me carried back, for they were jealous of me because I had left the mud. It must be remembered that I could not weep. And the years went by seawards where the black barges go, and the great derelict centuries became lost at sea, and still I lay there without any cause to hope, and daring not to hope without a cause, because of the terrible envy and the anger of the things that could drift no more. Once a great storm rode up, even as far as London, out of the sea from the south, and he came curving into the river with the fierce east wind, and he was mightier than the dreary tides, and went with great leaps over the listless mud. And all the sad forgotten things rejoiced, and mingled with things that were haughtier than they, and rode once more amongst the lordly shipping that was driving up and down. And out of their hideous home he took my bones, never again I hoped to be vexed with the ebb and flow. And with the fall of the tide he went riding down the river and turned to the southwards, and so went to his home. And my bones he scattered among many isles along the shores of happy alien mainlands. And for a moment, while they were far asunder, my soul was almost free. Then there arose, at the will of the moon, the assiduous flow of the tide and it undid at once the work of the ebb, and gathered my bones from the marge of sunny isles, and gleaned them all along the mainland shores, and went rocking northwards till it came to the mouth of the Thames. And there turned westwards its relentless face, and so went up the river and came to the hole in the mud, and into it dropped my bones. And partly the mud covered them, and partly it left them white, for the mud cares not for its forsaken things. Then the ebb came, and I saw the dead eyes of the houses and the jealousy of the other forgotten things that the storm had not carried thence. And some more centuries passed over the ebb and flow and over the loneliness of things forgotten, and I lay there all the while in the careless grip of the mud, never wholly covered, yet never able to go free, and I longed for the great caress of the warm earth or the comfortable lap of the sea. Sometimes men found my bones and buried them, but the tradition never died, and my friends' successors always brought them back. At last barges went no more, and there were fewer lights. Shaped timbers no longer floated down the fairway, and there came instead old wind-uprooted trees in all their natural simplicity. At last I was aware that somewhere near me a blade of grass was growing, and the moss began to appear all over the dead houses. One day some thistle-down went drifting over the river. For some years I watched these signs attentively until I became certain that London was passing away. Then I hoped once more, 
and all along both banks of the river there was anger among the lost things, that anything should dare to hope upon the forsaken mud. Gradually the horrible houses crumbled, until the poor dead things that never had had life got decent burial among the weeds and moss. At last the May appeared, and the convolvulus. Finally the wild rose stood up over mounds that had been wharves and warehouses. Then I knew that the cause of nature had triumphed and London had passed away. The last man in London came to the wall by the river, in an ancient cloak that was one of those that once my friends had worn, and peered over the edge to see that I was still there. Then he went, and I never saw men again. They had passed away with London. A few days after the last man had gone, the birds came into London, all the birds that sing. When they first saw me, they all looked sideways at me. Then they went away a little and spoke among themselves. He only sinned against man, they said. It is not our quarrel. Let us be kind to him, they said. Then they hopped nearer me and began to sing. It was the time of the rising of the dawn. And from both banks of the river and from the sky and from the thickets that were once the streets, hundreds of birds were singing. As the light increased, the birds sang more and more. They grew thicker and thicker in the air above my head, till there were thousands of them singing there, and then millions and at last I could see nothing but a host of flickering wings with the sunlight on them and little gaps of sky. Then when there was nothing to be heard in London but the myriad notes of that exultant song, my soul rose up from the bones in the hole in the mud and began to climb heavenwards, and it seemed that a laneway opened amongst the wings of the birds, and it went up and up, and one of the smaller gates of paradise stood ajar at the end of it, and I knew by a sign that the mud should receive me no more, for suddenly I found that I could weep. At this moment I opened my eyes in a bed in a house in London, and outside some sparrows were twittering in a tree in the light of the radiant morning and there were tears still wet upon my face, for one's restraint is feeble while one sleeps. And I arose and opened the window wide, and stretching my hands out over the little garden, I blessed the birds whose song had woken me up from the troubled and terrible centuries of my dream. End of Where the Tides Ebb and Flow The Greatest Good of the Greatest Number by Gertrude Atherton. Morton Blaine returned to New York from his brief vacation to find awaiting him a frantic note from John Schuyler, the man nearer to him than any save himself, imploring him to come at once. The appeal was supplemented with the usual intimation that the service was to be rendered to God rather than to man. The note was twenty-four hours old. Blaine, without changing his traveling clothes, rang for a cab and was driven rapidly up the avenue. He was a man of science, not of enthusiasms, 
cold, unerring, brilliant, a superb intellectual machine, which never showed a fleck of rust, unremittingly polished, and enlarged with every improvement. But for one man he cherished an abiding sympathy. To that man he hastened on the slightest summons, as he hastened now. They had been intimate in boyhood, then in later years through mutual respect for each other's high abilities and ambitions. As the cab rolled over the asphalt of the avenue, Blaine glanced idly at the stream of carriages returning from the park, lifting his hat to many of the languid pretty women. He owed his minor fame to his guardianship of fashionable nerves. He could calm hysteria with a pressure of his cool, flexible hand, or a sudden modulation of his harsh voice. And women dreaded his wrath. There were those who averred that his eyes could smoke. He leaned forward and raised his hat with sudden interest. She who returned his bow was as cold in her coloring as a winter night, but possessed a strength of line and depth of eye which suggested to the analyst her power to give the world a shock did circumstance cease to run abreast of her. She was leaning back indolently in the open carriage, the sun slanting into her luminous skin and eyes, her face locked for the benefit of the chance observer, although she conversed with the faded individual at her side. As her eyes met those of the doctor, her mouth convulsed suddenly, and a glance of mutual understanding passed between them. Then she raised her head with a defiant, almost reckless movement. Blaine reached his friend's house in a moment. The man who had summoned him was walking aimlessly up and down his library. He was unshaven, his hair and his clothing were disordered. His face had the modern beauty of strength and intellect and passion and weakness. A flash of relief illuminated it as Blaine entered. "'She has been terrible,' he said. "'Terrible! I have not had the courage to call in anyone else, and I'm worn out. She's asleep now, and I got out of the room for half an hour. The nurse is exhausted, too. Do stay tonight. I will stay. Let us go upstairs.' As they reached the second landing, two handsome children romped across the hall and flung themselves upon their father. "'Where have you been?' they demanded. "'Why do you shut yourself up on the third floor with Mama all the time? When will she get well?' Schuyler kissed them and bade them return to the nursery. "'How long can I keep it from them?' he asked bitterly. "'What an atmosphere for children, my children, to grow up in!' If you would do as I wish, and send her where she belongs, I shall not. She is my wife. Moreover, concealment would then be impossible. They had reached the third floor. He inserted a key in a door, hesitated a moment, then said abruptly, I saw in a paper that she had returned. Can it be possible? I saw her on the avenue a few moments ago. Was it the doctor's imagination, or did the goaded man at his side flash him a glance of appeal? They entered a room whose doors and windows were muffled. The furniture was solid, too solid to be moved except by muscular arms. 
There were no mirrors nor breakable articles of any sort. On the bed lay a woman with ragged hair and sunken yellow face, but even in her ruin indefinably elegant. Her parted lips were black and blistered within. Her shapely, skinny hands clutched the quilt with the tenacious suggestion of the eagle, that long-lived defiant bird. At the bedside sat a vigorous woman, the pallor of fatigue on her face. The creature on the bed opened her eyes. They had once been what are vaguely known as fine eyes. Now they looked like blots of ink on parchment. "'Give me a drink,' she said feverishly. "'Water! Water! Water!' she panted, and her tongue protruded slightly. Her husband turned away, his shoulders twitching. The nurse held a silver goblet to the woman's lips. She drank greedily, then scowled up at the doctor. "'You missed it,' she said. "'I should be glad, for I hate you. Only you give me more relief than they.' they are afraid they tried to fool me the idiots but they didn't try it twice i bit she laughed and threw her arms above her head the loose sleeves of her gown fell back and disclosed arms speckled as if from an explosion of gunpowder just an ordinary morphine fiend thought the doctor and she is the wife of john schuyler an hour after dinner, he told the husband and nurse to go to bed. For a while, he read, the woman sleeping profoundly. The house was absolutely still, or seemed to be. Had pandemonium reigned, he could hardly have heard an echo of it from this isolated room. The window was open, but looked upon roofs and backyards. No sound of carriage wheels rose to break the quiet. Despite the stillness, the doctor had to strain his ear and catch the irregular breathing of the sick woman. He had a singular feeling, although the most unimaginative of men, that this third floor, containing only himself and the woman, had been sliced from the rest of the house and hung suspended in space, independent of natural laws. It was after the book had ceased to interest him that the idea shaped itself, born of another, as yet unacknowledged, skulking in the recesses of his brain. At length he laid aside the book, and going to the bed, looked down upon the woman, coldly, reflectively, exactly as he had often watched the quivering of an animal, dissected alive in the cause of science. Studying this man's face, it was impossible to imagine it agitated by any passion, except thirst for knowledge. The skin was as white as marble. The profile was straight and mathematical. The mouth a straight line. The chin square as that of a chiseled fate. The jaw was prominent, powerful, relentless. The eyes were deeply set and gray as polished steel. The large brow was luminous, very full, an index to the terrible intellect of the man. As he looked down on the woman, his thin nostrils twitched once, and his lips compressed more firmly. Then he smiled. It was an odd, 
almost demoniacal smile. A physician, he said half aloud, has almost as much power as God. The idea strikes me that we are the personification of that useful symbol. He plunged his hands into his pockets and walked up and down the long, thickly carpeted room. Those are the facts in the case, he continued. The one man I love and unequivocally respect is tied hand and foot to that unsexed, dehumanized morphine receptacle on the bed. She is hopeless. Every known specific has failed, must fail, for she loves the vice. He has one of the best brains of this day prolific in brains, a distressing capacity for affection, human to the core. At the age of forty-two, in the maturity of his mental powers, he carries with him a constantly sickening sense of humiliation. A proud man, he lives in daily fear of exposure and shame. At the age of forty-two, in the maturity of his manhood, he meets the woman who conquers his heart, his imagination, who compels his faith by making other women abhorrent to him, who allures and maddens with the certainty of her power to make good his ideal of her. He cannot marry her. That animal on the bed is capable of living for twenty years. So much for him, a girl of twenty-eight whose wealth and brain and beauty and that other something that has not yet been analyzed and labeled, have made her a social star, who has come to wonder, then to resent, then to yawn at the general vanity of life, is suddenly swept out of her calm orbit by a man's passion, and with the swiftness of decision natural to her, goes to Europe. She returns in less than three months, for these two people there is but one sequel, the second chapter will be written the first time they are alone. Then they will go to Europe. What will be the rest of the book? First, there will be an ugly and reverberating scandal. In the course of a year or two, she will compel him to return in the interest of his career. She will not be able to remain so proud a woman could not stand the position. Again, he will go with her. In a word, my friend's career will be ruined. So many novelists and reporters have written the remaining chapters of this sort of story that it is hardly worth while for me to go any further. So much for them. Let us consider the other victims, the children. A morphine mother in an asylum, a father in a strange land, with a woman who is not his wife. The world cognizant of all the facts of the case they grow up at odds with society. Result? They are morbid, warped, unnormal. In trite old English, their lives are ruined, as are all lives that have not had a fair chance. He returned abruptly to the bedside. He laid his finger on the woman's pulse. No morphine tonight, and she dies. A worthless wretch is sent where she belongs. Four people are saved. His breast swelled. His gray eyes seemed literally to send forth smoke. They suggested some noiseless, deadly weapon of war. He exclaimed aloud, My God, what a power to lie in the hands of one man! 
I stand here, the arbiter of five destinies. It is for me to say whether four people shall be happy or wretched, saved or ruined. I might say with Nero, I am God, he laughed. I am famed for my power to save where others have failed. I am famed in their comic weeklies for having ruined the business of more undertakers than any physician of my day. That has been my role, my professional pride. I have never felt so proud as now. The woman, who had been moving restlessly for some time, twitched suddenly and uncontrollably. She opened her eyes. "'Give it to me, quick,' she demanded. Her voice, always querulous, was raucous. Her eyes were wild. "'No,' he said deliberately. "'You will have no more morphine, not a drop.' She stared at him incredulously, then laughed. "'Stop joking,' she said roughly. Give it to me quick, quick. I am very weak. No. Then, as he continued to hold her eyes, her own gradually expanded with terror. She raised herself on one arm. You mean that? she asked. Yes. He watched her critically. She would be interesting. You are going to cure me with drastic measures, since others have failed? Possibly. Her face contracted with hatred. She had been a rather clever woman, and she believed that he was going to experiment with her. But she had also been a strong-willed woman, and used to command since babyhood. Give me that morphine, she said imperiously. If you don't, I'll be dead before morning. He stood imperturbable. She sprang from the bed and flung herself upon him, strong with anger and apprehension. Give it to me, she screamed. Give it to me. And she strove to bite him. He caught her by the shoulder and held her at arm's length. She writhed and struggled and cursed. Her oaths might have been learned in the gutter. She kicked at him and strove to reach him with her nails, clawing the air. She looked like a witch on a broomstick. What an exquisite bride she was, he thought. And what columns of rubbish have been printed about her and her entertainments. The woman was shrieking and struggling. Give it to me, you brute, you fiend. I always hated you. Give it to me. I am dying. I am dying. Help. Help. But the walls were padded and she knew it. He permitted her to fling herself upon him, easily brushing aside her jumping fingers and snapping teeth. He knew that her agony was frightful. Her body was a network of hungry nerves. The diseased pulp of her brain had ejected every thought but one. She squirmed like an old autumn leaf about to fall. Her ugly face became tragic, the words shot from her dry, contracted throat. Give me the morphine! Give me the morphine! Suddenly realizing the immutability of the man in whose power she was, she sprang from him and ran frantically about the room, uttering harsh, bleat-like cries. She pulled open the drawers of a chest, rummaging among its harmless contents, gasping, quivering, bounding, 
as her tortured nerves commanded. When she had littered the floor with the contents of the chest, she ran about screaming hopelessly. The doctor shuddered, but he thought of the four innocent people in her power and in his. She fell in a heap on the floor, biting the carpet, striking out her arms aimlessly, tearing the nightgown into strips, then lay quivering a hideous, speckled, uncanny thing who should have been embalmed and placed beside the Venus of Milo. She raised herself on her hands and crawled along the carpet, casually at first, as a man stricken in the desert may, half-consciously, continue his search for water. Then the doctor, intently watching her, saw an expression of hope leap into her bulging eyes. She scrambled past him towards the washing-stand. Before he could define her purpose, she had leapt upon the goblet inadvertently left there, and had broken it on the marble. He reached her just in time to save her throat. Then she looked up at him pitifully. "'Give it to me!' She pressed his knees to her breast. The red burned out, tear ducts yawned. The tortured body stiffened and relaxed. Poor wretch, he thought. But what is the physical agony of a night to the mental anguish of a lifetime? Once, once, she gasped, or kill me. Then, as he stood implacable, kill me, kill me. He picked her up, put a fresh nightgown on her, and laid her on the bed. She remained as he placed her too weak to move, her eyes staring at the ceiling, above the big four-posted bed. He returned to his chair and looked at his watch. She may live two hours, he thought, possibly three. It is only twelve. There is plenty of time. The room grew as still as the mountaintop whence he had that day returned. He attempted to read, but could not. The sense of supreme power filled his brain. He was the gigantic factor in the fates of four. Then circumstance, the outwardly wayward, the ruthlessly sequential, played him an ugly trick. His eyes, glancing idly about the room, were arrested by a big, old-fashioned rocking chair. There was something familiar about it. Soon he remembered that it resembled one on which his mother had used to sit. She had been an invalid, and the most sinless and unworldly woman he had ever known. He recalled, with a touch of the old impatience, how she had irritated his active, aspiring, essentially modern mind with her cast-iron precepts of right and wrong. Her conscience flagellated her, and she had striven to develop her sons to the goodly proportion of her own. As he was naturally a truthful and upright boy, he resented her homilies mightily. Conscience, he once broke out, impatiently, has made more women bores, more men failures, than any ten vices in the rogue's calendar. She had looked in pale horror and taken refuge in an axiom. Conscience makes cowards of us all. He moved his head with involuntary pride. 
the greatest achievement of civilization was the triumph of the intellect over inherited impressions every normal man was conscientious by instinct however he might outrage the sturdy little judge clinging tenaciously to his bench in the victim's brain it was only when the brain grew big with knowledge and the will clasped it with fingers of steel that the little judge was throttled then cast out conscience what was it like the doctor had forgotten he had never committed a murder nor a dishonorable act had the impulse of either been in him his cleverness would have put it aside with a smile of scorn he had never scrupled to thrust from his path whoever or whatever stood in his way and had stridden on without a backward glance his profession had involved many experiments that would have made quick havoc of even the ordinary man's conscience conscience an awkward guest for an unsuspected murderer for the groundling whose heredity had not been conquered by brain fancy being pursued by the specter of the victim the woman on the bed gave a start and groan that recalled him to the case in hand he rose and walked quickly to her side her eyes were closed her face was black with congested blood he laid his finger on her pulse it was feeble it will not be long now he thought he went toward the chair he felt a sudden distaste for it a desire for motion he walked up and down the room rather more rapidly than before if i were an ordinary man he thought i suppose that tortured creature on the bed would haunt me to my death rot a murderer i should be called if the facts were known i suppose well she is worse did i permit her to live she would make the living hell of four people the woman gave a sudden awful cry the cry of a lost soul shot into the night of eternity the stillness had been so absolute the cry broke that stillness so abruptly and so horridly that the doctor strong-brained strong-nerved as he was gave a violent start and the sweat started from his body i am a fool he exclaimed angrily welcoming the sound of his voice but i wish to god that it were day and there were noises outside he strode hurriedly up and down the room casting furtive glances at the bed the night was quiet again and still that cry rang through it and lashed his brain he recalled the theory that sound never dies the waves of space had yielded this to him good god he thought am i going to pieces if i let this wretch this criminal die i save four people if i let her live i ruin their lives the life of a man of brain and pride and heart the life of a woman of beauty and intellect and honor the lives of two children of unknown potentialities for whom the world has now a warm heart the greatest good of the greatest number the principle that governs civil law has not even the worthy individual been sacrificed to it again and again 
does it not hang the criminal dangerous to the community and is that called murder what am i at this moment but law epitomized shall i hesitate my god am i hesitating conscience is it that a superfluous instinct transmitted by my ancestors and coddled by a woman is it that which has sprung from its grave rattling its bones conscience makes oh shame that i should succumb when so much is at stake that i should hesitate when the welfare of four human beings trembles in the balance conscience that in the moment of my supreme power i should falter he returned to the woman he reached his finger toward her pulse then hurriedly withdrew it and resumed his restless march this is only a nightmare born of the night and the horrible stillness tomorrow in the world of men it will be forgotten and i shall rejoice but there will be recurring hours of stillness of solitude will this night repeat itself will that thing on the bed haunt me will that cry shriek in my ears oh shame of my selfishness what am i thinking of to let that base degraded wretch exist that i may live peaceably with my conscience to let four others go to their ruin that i may escape a few hours of torment that i i should come to this the greatest good of the greatest number the greatest conscience makes cowards of us all to his unutterable self-contempt and terror he found his will for once powerless to control the work of the generations that had preceded him his iron jaw worked spasmodically his gray eyes looked frozen the marble pallor of his face was suffused with a tinge of green i despise myself he exclaimed with fierce emphasis i loathe myself i will not yield conscience they shall be saved and by me the greatest i will maintain my intellectual supremacy that if nothing else she shall die he halted abruptly perhaps she was already dead then he could reach the door in a bound and run downstairs and out of the house to be followed he ran to the bed the woman still breathed faintly her mouth twisted into a sardonic pertinent expression his hand sought his pocket and brought forth a case he opened it and stared at the hypodermic syringe his trembling fingers closed about it and moved toward the woman then with an effort so violent he fancied he could hear his tense muscles creak he straightened himself and turned his back upon the bed at the same moment he dropped the instrument to the floor and set his heel upon it end of the greatest good of the greatest number the spook house by ambrose bierce on the road leading north from manchester in eastern kentucky to boonville twenty miles away stood in eighteen sixty two a wooden plantation house of a somewhat better quality than most of the dwellings in that region. 
the house was destroyed by a fire in the year following probably by some stragglers from the retreating column of general george w morgan when he was driven from cumberland gap to the ohio river by general kirby smith at the time of its destruction it had for four or five years been vacant the fields about it were overgrown with brambles the fences gone even the few negro quarters and outhouses generally fallen partly into ruin by neglect and pillage for the negroes and poor whites of the vicinity found in the building and fences an abundant supply of fuel of which they availed themselves without hesitation openly and by daylight by daylight alone after nightfall no human being except passing strangers ever went near the place it was known as the spook house that it was tenanted by evil spirits visible audible and active no one in all that region doubted it any more than he doubted what was what he was told of sundays by the traveling preacher its owner's opinion of the matter was unknown he and his family had disappeared one night and no trace of them had ever been found they left everything household goods clothing provisions the horses in the stable the cows in the field the negroes in the quarters as it all stood nothing was missing except a man a woman three girls a boy and a babe it was not altogether surprising that a plantation where seven human beings could simultaneously be effaced and nobody the wiser should be under some suspicion one night in june eighteen fifty nine two citizens of frankfort colonel j c mcardle a lawyer and judge myron vay of the state militia were driving from boonville to manchester their business was so important that they decided to push on despite the darkness and mutterings of an approaching storm which eventually broke upon them just as they arrived opposite the spook house the lightning was so incessant that they easily found their way through the gateway into a shed where they hitched and unharnessed their team they then went to the house through the rain and knocked at all the doors without getting any response attributing this to the continuous uproar of the thunder they pushed at one of the doors which yielded they entered without further ceremony and closed the door that instant they were in darkness and silence not a gleam of the lightning's unceasing blaze penetrated the windows or crevices not a whisper of the awful tumult without reached them there it was as if they had suddenly been stricken blind and deaf and mcardle afterwards said that for a moment he believed himself to have been killed by a stroke of lightning as he crossed the threshold the rest of this adventure can as well be related in his own words from the frankfurt advocate of august sixth eighteen seventy six when i had somewhat recovered from the dazzling effect of the transition from uproar to silence my first impulse was to reopen the door which i had closed and from the knob of which i was not conscious of having removed my hand i felt it distinctly still in the clasp of my fingers my notion was to ascertain by stepping again into the storm whether i had been deprived of sight and hearing i turned the doorknob and pulled open the door it led into another room this apartment was suffused with a faint greenish light the source of which i could not determine making everything distinctly visible though nothing was sharply defined everything i say but in truth the only objects within the blank stone walls of that room were human corpses in number they were perhaps eight or ten it may well be understood that i did not truly count them they were of different ages or rather sizes from infancy up and of both sexes all were prostrate on the floor except one apparently a young woman who sat up 
her back supported by an angle of the wall. A babe was clasping the arms of the older woman. A half-grown lad lay face downward across the legs of a full-bearded man. One of the two was nearly naked, and the hand of a young girl held the fragment of a gown which she torn open at the breast. The bodies were in various stages of decay, all greatly shrunken in face and figure. Some of them were little more than skeletons. While I stood stupefied with horror by this ghastly spectacle and still holding open the door, by some unaccountable perversity in my attention, was diverted from the shocking scene and concerned itself with trifles and details. Perhaps my mind, with an instinct of self-preservation, sought relief in matters which would relax its dangerous tension. Among other things, I observed that the door that I was holding open was of heavy iron plates, riveted. Equidistant from one another and from top and bottom, three strong bolts protruded from the beveled edge. I turned the knob, and they were retracted flush with the edge, released it, and they shot out. It was a spring lock. On the inside there was no knob, nor any kind of projection, a smooth surface of iron. While noting these things with an interest and attention, which it now astonishes me to recall that I felt myself thrust aside, and Judge Vey, whom in the intensity and the vicissitudes of my feelings I had altogether forgotten, pushed by me into the room. "'For God's sakes!' I cried. "'Do not go in there. Let us get out of this dreadful place.' He gave no heed to my entreaties, but, as fearless a gentleman as lived in all the South, walked quickly to the center of the room, knelt beside one of the bodies for a closer examination, and tenderly raised its blackened and shriveled head in his hands. A strong, disagreeable odor came through the doorway, completely overpowering me. My senses reeled. I felt myself falling, and in clutching at the edge of the door for support, pushed it shut with a sharp click. I remember no more. Six weeks later I recovered my reason in a hotel at Manchester, whither I had been taken by strangers the next day. For all these weeks I had suffered from a nervous fever, attendant with a constant delirium. I had been found lying in the road several miles away from the house, but how I escaped from it to get there I never knew. On recovery, or as soon as my physicians permitted me to talk, I inquired the fate of Judge Vey, whom, to quiet me as I now know, they represented me as well and at home. No one believed a word of my story, and who can wonder? And who can imagine my grief when, arriving at my home in Frankfurt two months later, I learned that Judge Vey had never been heard of since that night. I then regretted bitterly the pride which since the first few days after the recovery of my reason had forbidden me to repeat my discredited story and insist upon its truth. With all that afterward occurred, the examination of the house, the failure to find any room corresponding to that which I have described, the attempt to have me adjudged insane, and my triumph over my accusers, the readers of The Advocate are familiar. After all these years, I am still confident that the excavations which I have neither the legal right to undertake nor the wealth to make would disclose the secret of the disappearance of my unhappy friend, and possibly of the former occupants and owners of the deserted and now destroyed house. I do not despair of yet bringing about such a search, and it is a source of deep grief to me that it has been delayed by the undeserved hostility and unwise incredulity of the family and friends of the late Judge Vey. Colonel McArdle died in Frankfurt on the 13th day of December in the year 1879.
End of The Spook House by Ambrose Bierce The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe True. Nervous. Very, very dreadfully nervous I had been and am. But why will you say that I am mad? The disease had sharpened my senses. Not destroyed, not dulled them. Above all was the sense of hearing acute. I heard all things in heaven and in the earth. I heard many things in hell. How then am I mad? Hearken, and observe how healthily, how calmly I can tell you the whole story. It is impossible to say how first the idea entered my brain. But once conceived, it haunted me day and night. Object there was none. Passion there was none. I loved the old man. He had never wronged me. He had never given me insult. For his gold I had no desire. I think it was his eye. Yes, it was this. He had the eye of a vulture. A pale blue eye with a film over it. Whenever it fell upon me, my blood ran cold. And so, by degrees, very gradually, I made up my mind to take the life of the old man, and thus rid myself of the eye forever. Now this is the point. You fancy me mad. Madmen know nothing. But you should have seen me. You should have seen how wisely I proceeded. With what caution, with what foresight, with what dissimulation I went to work. I was never kinder to the old man than during the whole week before I killed him. And every night, about midnight, I turned the latch of his door and opened it, oh, so gently. And then, when I had made an opening sufficient for my head, I put in a dark lantern, all closed, closed that no light shone out, and then I thrust in my head. Oh, you would have laughed to see how cunningly I thrust it in. I moved it slowly, very, very slowly so that I might not disturb the old man's sleep. It took me an hour to place my whole head within the opening, so far that I could see him as he lay upon his bed. Ha! Would a madman have been so wise as this? And then, when my head was well in the room, I undid the lantern, cautiously, oh, so cautiously, cautiously, for the hinges creaked, I undid it just so much that a single thin ray fell upon the vulture eye. And this I did for seven long nights. Every night, just at midnight. But I found the eye always closed. And so it was impossible to do the work. For it was not the old man who vexed me, but his evil eye. And every morning, when the day broke, I went boldly into the chamber, and spoke courageously to him, calling him by name in a hearty tone, and inquiring how he had passed the night. So you see, he would have been a very profound old man indeed, to suspect that every night, just at twelve, 
I looked in upon him while he slept. Upon this eighth night, I was more than unusually cautious in opening the door. A watcher's minute hand moves more quickly than did mine. Never before that night had I felt the extent of my own powers, of my sagacity. I could scarcely contain my feelings of triumph. To think that there I was, opening the door, little by little, and he not even to dream of my secret deeds or thoughts. I fairly chuckled at the idea, and perhaps he heard me, for he moved on the bed suddenly as if startled. Now you may think that I drew back, but no. His room was as black as pitch with the thick darkness, for the shutters were close fastened through fear of robbers. And so I knew that he could not see the opening of the door, and I kept pushing on it steadily, steadily. I had my head in, and was about to open the lantern, when my thumb slipped upon the tin fastening, and the old man sprang up in bed, crying, Who's there? I kept quite still, and said nothing. For a whole hour I did not move a muscle, and in the meantime I did not hear him lie down. He was still sitting up in the bed, listening, just as I have done, night after night, hearkening to the death watches in the wall. Presently I heard a slight groan, and I knew it was the groan of mortal terror. It was not a groan of pain or of grief. Oh no! It was the low, stifled sound that arises from the bottom of the soul, when overcharged with awe. I knew the sound well. Many a night, just at midnight, when all the world slept, it has welled up from my own bosom, deepening with its dreadful echo the terrors that distracted me. I say I knew it well. I knew what the old man felt, and pitied him, although I chuckled at heart. I knew that he had been lying awake ever since the first slight noise, when he had turned in the bed. His fears had been ever since growing upon him. He had been trying to fancy them causeless, but could not. He had been saying to himself, It is nothing but the wind in the chimney. It is only a mouse crossing the floor. Or, it is merely a cricket which has made a single chirp. Yes, he had been trying to comfort himself with these suppositions but he had found all in vain, all in vain, because death, in approaching him, had stalked with his black shadow before him, and enveloped the victim, and it was the mournful influence of the unperceived shadow that caused him to feel, although he neither saw nor heard, to feel the presence of my head within the room. When I had waited a long time, very patiently, without hearing him lie down, I resolved to open a little, a very, very little crevice in the lantern. So I opened it. You cannot imagine how stealthily, stealthily, until at length a simple dim ray, like the thread of the spider, shot out from the crevice and fell full upon the vulture eye. 
It was open—wide, wide open—and I grew furious as I gazed upon it. I saw it with perfect distinctness, all a dull blue, with a hideous veil over it that chilled the very marrow in my bones. But I could see nothing else of the old man's face or person, for I had directed the ray, as if by instinct, precisely upon the damned spot. And have I not told you that, what you mistake for madness, is but over-acuteness of the sense? Now, I say there came to my ears a low, dull, quick sound, such as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I knew that sound well. It was the beating of the old man's heart. It increased my fury, as the beating of a drum stimulates the soldier into courage. But even yet I refrained and kept still. I scarcely breathed. I held the lantern motionless. I tried how steadily I could maintain the ray upon the eye. Meantime, the hellish tattoo of the heart increased. It grew quicker and quicker and louder and louder every instant. The old man's terror must have been extreme. It grew louder, I say, louder every moment. Do you mark me well? I have told you that I am nervous. So I am. And now, at the dead hour of the night, amid the dreadful silence of that old house, so strange a noise as this excited me to uncontrollable terror. Yet, for some minutes longer, I refrained and stood still. But the beating grew louder. Louder. I thought the heart must burst. And now... A new anxiety seized me. The sound will be heard by my neighbour. The old man's hour had come. With a loud yell, I threw open the lantern and leaped into the room. He shrieked once, only once. In an instant I dragged him to the floor and pulled the heavy bed over him. I then smiled gaily to find the deed so far done. But for many minutes the heart beat on with a muffled sound. This, however, did not vex me. It would not be heard through the wall. At length it ceased. The old man was dead. I removed the bed and examined the corpse. Yes, he was stone, stone dead. I placed my hand upon the heart and held it there many minutes. There was no pulsation. He was stone dead. His eye would trouble me no more. If still you think me mad, you will think so no longer when I describe the wise precautions I took for the concealment of the body. The night waned, and I worked hastily, but in silence. First of all I dismembered the corpse. I cut off the head, and the arms, and the legs. I then took up three planks from the flooring of the chamber, and deposited all between the scantlings. I then replaced the board so cleverly, so cunningly, that no human eye, not even his, could have detected anything wrong. There was nothing to wash out, no stain of any kind, no blood spot whatever. I had been too wary for that. A tub had caught all. <laughs> when I had made an end of these labours, it was four o'clock, still dark as midnight. As the bell sounded the hour, there came a knocking at the street door. 
I went down to open it with a light heart, for what had I now to fear? There entered three men, who introduced themselves with perfect suavity as officers of the police. A shriek had been heard by a neighbour during the night. Suspicion of foul play had been aroused. Information had been lodged at the police office, and they, the officers, had been deputed to search the premises. I smiled. For what had I to fear? I bade the gentleman welcome. The shriek, I said, was my own in a dream. The old man, I mentioned, was absent in the country. I took my visitors all over the house. I bade them search, search well. I led them at length to his chamber. I showed them his treasures, secure, undisturbed. In the enthusiasm of my confidence, I brought chairs into the room and desired them here to rest from their fatigues, while I myself, in the wild audacity of my perfect triumph, placed my own seat upon the very spot beneath which reposed the corpse of the victim. The officers were satisfied. My manner had convinced them. I was singularly at ease. They sat, and while I answered cheerily, they chatted of familiar things. But, ere long, I felt myself getting pale and wished them gone. My head ached, and I fancied a ringing in my ears. But still they sat, and still chatted. The ringing became more distinct. It continued, and became more distinct. I talked more freely to get rid of the feeling, but it continued and gained definiteness, until at length I found that the noise was not within my ears. No doubt, I now grew very pale. But I talked more fluently, and with a heightened voice. Yet the sound increased. And what could I do? It was a low, dull, quick sound. Much such a sound as a watch makes when enveloped in cotton. I gasped for breath. And yet the officers heard it not. I talked more quickly, more vehemently, but the noise steadily increased. I arose and argued about trifles, in a high key and with violent gesticulations, but the noise steadily increased. Why would they not be gone? I paced the floor to and fro with heavy strides, as if excited to fury by the observations of the men, but the noise steadily increased. Oh God, what could I do? I foamed, I raved, I swore. I swung the chair upon which I had been sitting, and grated it upon the boards. But the noise arose over all, and continually increased. It grew louder, 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 and still the men chatted pleasantly and smiled. Was it possible they heard not? Almighty God, no, no! They heard, they suspected, they knew they were making a mockery of my horror. This I thought, and this I think. But anything was better than this agony. Anything was more tolerable than this derision. I could bear these hypocritical smiles no longer. I felt that I must scream or die. And now, again, hark! Louder, 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 louder! Villains! I shrieked! Dissemble no more! I admit the deed! Tear up the planks! Here, here! It is the beating of his hideous heart! 
End of The Telltale Heart by Edgar Allan Poe